This is Jocko Podcast number 261 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. Being in the teams is the best job in the world. Probably heard me say that before, the best job in the world. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Well, first of all, the job itself, which consists of shooting machine guns, jumping out of airplanes, blowing things up, scuba diving, running around in the woods. It's just a freaking awesome job. So, so, so you got that. On top of that, you got this mission, the mission that you're focused on. You're on a mission to protect America, to protect democracy, to protect freedom, to protect people. And in order to do that, kill bad guys. Because you're supposed to do all that protecting. In order to do all that protecting, you got to kill bad guys, which... which as a kid and really as a man for that matter, that's what me and my friends always wanted to do. And I'm sorry if that doesn't sit right with you or if you think I'm some kind of a monster because of it, but that that's the reality. So that's another reason why the job is awesome. But the last thing and certainly not the least thing, in fact, the best thing about the job by far is the boys. The boys, the guys you get to work with. They're, they're awesome. And contrary to popular belief, there's no cookie cutter format that represents a guy in the SEAL teams. The guys come in all shapes and sizes. They come from all different backgrounds. And it should be noted that not all of them are good guys. There are some knuckleheads for sure. There's some egomaniacs. There's some guys that really aren't part of the team. There's some guys that look out for themselves. There's guys that don't help out. There's some guys that don't care about the mission. There's guys that put themselves above the team. So there's there's some of those types running around and that's true in any organization. But as a whole, The boys are pretty legit. They're hardworking, they're tough, they put the team first. They get the mission done. And they have fun while they're doing it and you can count on them. Which is an underrated thing, right? You can count on them. And I was lucky enough to work with a ton of those guys during my career. I was leaving Ramadi, so it was the end of my last deployment, and I was leaving Ramadi, and another task unit came in to take our place. And they were coming into a complete and utter firestorm of sustained combat. And look, we had all been deploying a bunch over the years, since 9-11 and this was 2006 sort of the end of 2006 and so so guys knew what it was like to go on combat deployments but 
this particular combat deployment that we had been on in the Battle of Ramadi was significant. We had a, a lot of casualties. And these guys that were coming to replace us, I mean, I knew that they were coming into something that SEALs hadn't deployed into in a long time. And look, I'm not saying that SEALs weren't deploying into dangerous places they were, but kind of a known scenario like that, it'd been a while. And so I felt horrible, actually. I felt horrible for the new task unit that was showing up to replace us because I felt like we had learned so much there and we had gotten good at our jobs and we, I felt like we were leaving this other task unit in a bad spot. And I was worried about them and worried how they would survive. <clears throat> well, I knew a few of their guys. A few of their guys I knew and, and that gave me uh, a level of comfort. One of the guys that I knew was the senior enlisted guy of the task unit, a guy named Steve Ward, one of, one of the good guys. And I, I kind of knew him tangentially over the years because I had turned, I had turned over with him in Baghdad a, a couple years earlier. He'd been in a leadership position in a platoon at Team Five and to run a bunch of operations and done a great job. And I'd gotten a solid turnover from him, so that was awesome. And it just made my comfort level go up that someone was coming in that was humble enough to listen and learn, not just from me, not just from Task Unit Bruiser, but also from the Army and the Marine Corps, and who is also smart enough and knowledgeable enough to mix in that knowledge and that experience with humility and make sense of the whole crazy situation, which is what he did. And when Steve came back from that deployment, which, which was a hard deployment for them, we ended up working together Actually, actually, truly working together for the first time at Tradet, the training command. He took over the land warfare training cell as the senior enlisted advisor in that training block, and we ended up spending <laughs> spending a lot of time together, training and preparing SEALs for combat deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was a, uh, I, I. It's hard for me to even say it was a challenging job. Yeah, it was a challenging job, but it was so critical and it was so rewarding to be able to work with the young frogmen and pass on the lessons learned to the next generation so that they could go out there and take the fight to the enemy and keep themselves safe, as safe as they possibly could. And I eventually retired out of that job and Steve carried on in his career. He went on to more senior positions of leadership and continued to deploy over and over again in support of the war on terror until a few months ago when he finally retired. And since then, we've been working together again, still, still actually training leaders, this time for leadership in the business world. But we're back at it, and it is an honor to be working with Steve again, and it is an honor to have Steve here on the podcast 
to tell us about his life, his experiences, and his lessons learned. Steve, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Jocko. You were one of the guys in the beginning when this podcast kind of kicked off that was giving me reports from the field that you were in the game listening to it. Yeah, me and Gardner were <laughs> going back and forth. You know, in some of the books you covered early on, like the last 100 yards, I was like, damn, how can you not get on the net and listen to that for, you know, a couple hours? So it was good. Yeah, and here you are sitting in the sitting in the chair. Uh, let's go. Let's let's rock and roll. Yeah. Let's talk about where Steve Ward Ward came from. Yep. So grew up in Sacramento, California, small town. Um, my mom and dad were divorced, so I'd go see my dad in the in the summer months, and my sister and my mom and I we all grew up together in Sacramento. Um, I graduated high school in '91. Went what, to, you, uh, slow your roll, bro. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a list to cover, <laughs> so, man. Come so, on. So, so what your what your mom do? What your mom do for a living? So she worked at uh, Davis College. She uh-huh. was like an administrator there. And then what about your dad? Where was your dad? So my dad, he was an air traffic controller. So he kind of bounced around the U.S. Mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time in Florida, Puerto Rico, uh, up in Washington. Did, so did you see much of your dad growing up? Yeah, in the summertime, we, me and my sister would go out and see him for anywhere from two weeks to thirty days at a time. So it was good. Well, you know, as so good as it could be. <laughs> so you you just breezed through like oh went to high school and then graduated. You were about to like be in the navy. Well, well did yeah. you play sports? Yes. So played uh, baseball, soccer, and football coming up. Any um, good? I'd say I was an average athlete. Nothing mm-hmm. special. I wasn't consistent. I had good like for baseball. I had times when I was doing good, and then I'd get in a slump and wouldn't do so good. Slump so, due to bad attitude. Slump from. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good way to word this here. Slump from not, I guess, being good enough. You know, like you get – so I was a pitcher. I played mm-hmm. baseball. I played pitcher, and I played outfield. And I'd have some times where I'd get up there and, you know, my friends would be cracking jokes at me. You're going to beam the first batter. You're going to beam the first batter. You're going to beam the first batter. First pitch, I beam the first batter. I'm like, <laughs> damn. You know, you're not, you can't crack, crack jokes up on the mound because you just hit somebody with a baseball. So, I'll, you know, didn't pan out too good for me. So my junior year, I kind of quit baseball. And my freshman year, I started playing football, and I really enjoyed football. Contact sport, hard, like a lot of hard work goes into that. So I enjoyed football, finished that up my, you know, senior year. I played all four years. Um, in soccer, I kind of quit playing that when I was probably like around 13, 14 years old. What, kind of, like what, what, what were your friends doing when you weren't playing sports? Getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Getting in trouble. So sports, you know, I was probably like a – I wouldn't say a bad kid, but I was definitely off the path. Seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, not good things for me. You know, I got I was picking up trash on the side of the roads. I was on probation, just doing stupid shit. For for what? Just nothing. I care to repeat on the net. <laughs> just uh, what do they call that? Delinquent. Delinquent. I was a delinquent, and it wasn't my friends. It was me. I was a guy that was like wanted when my friends came around. I was the guy instigating and kind of leading the charge on doing. What kind of music were you listening to? Yeah, just whatever, like country, rap, rock, it didn't matter. Just didn't matter. We had the old AM, FM radios. There ain't nothing That's it. going on. Yeah, It was a different yeah. time. Yeah. You were limited to what you could actually hear. Yeah. Was it a small town? Um, yeah, so I grew up actually in West Sac. It was definitely a small town. Okay. And, uh, so, yeah, small town, smaller high school. Well, I went to a high school called River City. Um, it was small. Yeah. Did they have wrestling there? They had they started a wrestling program I think when I was in about tenth grade there mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't wrestle I mm-hmm. played football and I didn't I stayed away from basketball, um, yeah. How was your grades? Look, not, I'm not willing good. to venture. Not guess. good. <laughs> not they were not good. I I passed high school by the you know barely passed high school. 
So it wasn't good for me. I didn't pay attention, had good teachers, always giving you good advice. I was just not into learning. So you were a little bit of a troublemaker, right? Do you think when you were being a troublemaker, do you think you were doing it for attention? Do you think you were doing it for the thrill? Do you think you were doing it for adrenaline? Like, why do you think you were doing it? I, I think when I was a, tr- which I was, yeah. I think of a lot of it, what I was doing to sort of prove to myself and my friends that I was like, uh, uh, tough, like yeah. type things. Like, I, I don't care. I'll do this. Like that kind of thing. When I think back yeah. as to why I did dumb shit, which I yeah. did plenty of, I think that's why a lot of it was like to prove that I was a quote and I'm putting in big air quotes here tough because the stuff I was doing was by no stretch of the imagination tough. Yep. I'd say I fall in that same category trying to prove something just doing and and I got an adrenaline rush out of doing those dumb things Mm -hmm. and it took a long time to get out of my system. So you said that was mostly sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth grade? Seventh, eighth, and ninth, yeah. By tenth grade, were you kind of a little bit more squared away? Turn in the corner, yes. Yep. Did you feel? Did you have some run-ins with the law that kind of straightened you back out? Probation and picking up trash on the side of the road mm-hmm. kind of squared me away real quick. You got to wear the little <laughs> orange vest. You're in the van with all the rest of the delinquents. You're on the road on Saturday and Sundays. Not a not a good situation. <laughs> Not a good situation. So then you you graduate, you barely graduate high school. At what point did you think about joining the Navy? Or did you think about joining the Marine Corps, the Army? What what was the situation with enlisting in the military? So I remember one of my high school teachers told me, hey, you got three choices when you get out of high school. And he's kind of mentoring us. None of us know it at the time. But he's like, hey, you can go to college, which I highly recommend. You can get a job or you can join the military. Or you can do a combination of one and two. And that kind of always stuck with me, you know. And then as I started going into college, like, man, I just I don't want to learn. I wasn't ready to learn. Wait a second. So you just skipped right to you're in college. So you when you when you were still in high school, you you didn't join the Navy or join the military while you were in high school. Correct. He gave you the three options: job, college, military. You chose college. Yes. First. Yep. You thought, all right. Did you have any freaking vision of any kind whatsoever? You're just like, no, sign up for whatever classes they signed me up for. Yeah, so so I just signed up for the basic general education stuff. You know, went for a full semester and then dove into the second semester. And that's where, like at one point, I don't even know how the recruiter wound up at our door, but the recruiter wound up on our doorstep. Mm -hmm. And I started talking to him. And Wait, the doorstep of what? Your house, of the house. So, you know, you go through and I was like, yeah, this is, Something I think I might be interested because your in. Ma- your mom called the damn recruiter and sent him over. Oh, there. she was kicking him out of there. <laughs> oh, really? She was not having any other recruiter. She told him get the hell out of here. No times. kidding. Yeah. He was kept, your mom a hippie or something? No, no. She's a farm girl. Oh, she okay. grew up on a farm. Yeah. She just didn't. She didn't want me joining the military. Mm-hmm. But you talked to him. I talked to him and was he a navy recruiter? Navy guy. Yep. Navy recruiter. Did you have any inkling? Did you have any? Parents, grandparents, anything about the military yep. that you so, understood? Yeah, so my grandfather was in the Army, and he was he never went. He was around the World War II era, but he never went and served. You know, he got stationed out uh, in Alaska somewhere. And then my dad was in the Air Force. So I had some small touch points there with some cool stories of, you know, grandfather being in the military. always talked about throwing his grenade, and the sergeant was telling him that was the best throw ever type thing. Mm-hmm. And then my dad was in the Air Force. 
your grandfather was getting told you're gonna beam the batter with that grenade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. whack. <laughs> so then, so the guy, t- the the recruiter talks to you, and at this point, you realize college is like a waste of your time. Yes, I'm done with school. With school, I didn't enjoy high school, and I definitely wasn't enjoying college at that point. In Which my life. college was it? I was just called Sac City Community College. So you and you were so you were living at home during this time. Yes. Yep. Living at home, working part time, going to college. What was your part time job? Man, I don't remember what it was. I had a couple jobs growing up. I mm-hmm. like I worked in a, a bunch of different little restaurants, being a busboy, being a dishwasher, mm-hmm. um, moved furniture with a guy named Craig, who's great family <laughs> guy. And so we'd get on the road. He worked for Allied Furniture, and we'd be trucking on down to L.A. <laughs> with furniture in the back of his big old eighteen wheeler. It was actually a good job. It was hard work, but it paid good money. It was paying ten bucks an hour back then. That was oh, yeah. that was good money. You were kind of the man with ten bucks an hour. I was the man with ten bucks an hour. <laughs> yeah, and that was a lot better pay than the Navy paid you. I'll tell you that. Back then. So how'd the Navy recruiter convince you? He was just like, "Hey, come in and give this a go, man." And you know, so I went through, did all the ASVAB testing. He's like, "All right, we can get you in uh, in June time frame." And what what job were you signing up for? Because you didn't enlist. Did you know no. about the SEALs at this point? No, I didn't. I never. I didn't know what a SEAL was. So I just I was signing up to go to the regular Navy to go on a ship Dang, to figure bro. life out. Yep. <laughs> Little did I know I was about to get after some, some bathroom cleaning. <laughs> so so what what like job did he sell you on? He didn't sell me. He was just like I mean, so I had I grew up with some friends and they, you know, a lot of people were getting in trouble. People were doing drugs, all that kind of dumb mm-hmm. stuff. So I just knew I had the best option for me at that point in my life was to get out of Sacramento and go try something different. So the job I would, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Did you, you go know? to, did you go UD undesignated? Yes. Oh, yep. damn. Yeah. So I was in, you know. So for people that don't know, like in the Navy, you have a job. It's called your rating. And your job is, you know, you might be a welder. You might be a, a technician or an engine man that's going to work on engines, or you might run a weapon system, and they have names for all these different jobs. But if you don't have a job, they call it, and I remember this from boot camp, yeah. it was a threat. They'd say, yeah, you keep this up, you're going to go to the fleet, UD, yeah. undesignated, yeah. which means you have no job, no skill, you're just going to go in yeah. there. So that threat that I got told, was actually what you got signed up for. Go to the fleet, UD, undesignated. Sign me up. I'm ready to roll. <laughs> Get me out of sack. <laughs> yeah. Get me out of here. Yeah. So you rolled into boot camp? Yep. Rolled into boot camp. Finished up in, uh, I want to say, right around October time frame. So went to boot camp. When did you go to boot camp? In July 1991. Okay. And then did you go to Orlando? No, no, here in San Diego. Oh, you went to San Diego. Yep. That's right, TC. West Coast. Yep. So you went you went to boot camp, and you just went to boot camp eight weeks. It was eight weeks? I think eight weeks. So you went to eight weeks of boot camp, and then to the fleet. Oh, yeah, eight weeks of boot camp. Then I went to seaman training, because I was going to work in deck department. That was my undesignated. I was uh-huh. going to be you know, uh-huh. a seaman. So got trained up for three weeks there, and then showed up to a ship sometime in, I think, November, December time frame <laughs> of 91. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey that's Jocko insane, it's not dude. that funny <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy dude yeah that's was, cra- well, well, you must have done good on your ASVABs that guy didn't try and make you into like yeah. whatever some other rates we could get more 
No. That's crazy, yeah. dude. Well, that's in. So that was probably my first lesson learned in life. Hey, pay attention in school <laughs> so you score good on your ASVAB so you have options, right? Hey, when you're in high school, you don't. I didn't ever really thought about that. Hey, I just yeah. need to make it through. But yeah. in life, you're going to be given some tests, whether you're going to go work in a fire department, a police department, you're going to go in the military. And so the better edu- educated you are, the more options you're going to have available to mm-hmm. you. And I didn't do so good, so my options were limited. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. one thing I always try and explain when like parents ask me about kids and like what. The, and I think one of the biggest things you can do for a kid, besides yeah. getting them into jujitsu, is making them realize that their actions today have yeah. impact on the rest of their life. Absolutely. Because we get little kids, and, and I'm, when I say little kids, I'm talking me when I was 23, yeah. right? Yeah. What I'm doing right now is gonna impact where I'm gonna be, right? And so how can you expect a 13-year-old or a 15-year-old, and you know, girls might be a little bit smarter than boys. It's possible. It, it seems, judging from my own children. Anyways, let me, let me, let me rephrase that because I don't want to generalize. In my personal family, it seems like my daughters are a little better at connecting yep. what they're doing right now with the future than my son, who just d- d- doesn't do it as much. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. When you realize that what I'm doing right now as a kid, and it's not just kids, what I'm doing right now as a human is gonna impact the way my life goes. Yep. And you might end up in the fleet UD. UD, <laughs> getting after it. So, <laughs> so you do eight weeks of boot camp, three weeks of Prep semen yep. prep school, and then boom, you go to a ship. Yep. How, what was that wake up call like? It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. What in what it, way? Yeah, it just it was it was a lot of hard work. You know, it's so when you show up in deck department and you're an E two, you're getting every, you know, uh, you're getting all the assignments that are not fun to do. Mm-hmm. You know, you're cleaning bathrooms, you're painting the ship, you're chipping paint off the ship, you're you're just doing all the things on ship maintenance. And so you're eating some humble pie for breakfast, lunch, and dinner while you're doing this. It gave me a chance to, to kind of grow up a little bit. And it was good. It was hard work. I had riff, to roll, roll, the, roll the sleeves up and get dirty. Yeah. You had, you had time to reflect. Yeah. Time to reflect. What were you thinking about when you were reflecting? I was... So when I'm reflecting on it, I'm just like, hey, man, can you make the best out of this situation? So I had one of my buddies that I uh, I went through boot camp with. We wound up on the same ship, Chris. And me and him just always had competition. We got put in the same deck department, and every assignment they gave us, we are like running up and down them stairwell ladders, just oh, dang. Complete, you know, completing assignments, coming back like, hey, what else do you got from me? Like, hey, you knuckleheads, that's supposed to take you to lunchtime. We're like, well, we're done. Give us more. <laughs> that's awesome, man. So um, it was, it was fun. We made the best of it, you know. And we had some good, some good leadership on the ship and some bad leadership. You got a. That was my first exposure to kind of what right looks like, what bad leadership looks like. Um, so it was good. And you're taking down all these data points and you're storing it in your head, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and probably one of the biggest things I took out of that assignment is we had guys that were super knowledgeable, just very good. Like we had a, a BM2, and he was super good at, at being a bosun mate. He knew everything, how to tie all the ropes, all the maintenance. He knew everything, and he was squared away. Hard worker, looked out for his guys. You're like, that's a dude I want to be like. Um, you don't always talk about Echelon Front, hey, modeling the correct behaviors. That dude was modeling all the right behaviors, busted his ass, did good things, and he was getting promoted while I was on that ship. So you're like, ah, data point. Mm-hmm. That's what right looks like. Same thing with the handful of chiefs that were on that ship. Just good, solid dudes. They weren't afraid to 
roll their sleeves up, get in there with the guys, and get to work. You know, like, all right, check. Mental note on that. So then how long how long was it when you were in the fleet until you heard about the teams? Yeah, so we had a couple guys that didn't make it through SEAL training. They showed up, um, came friends with those guys at some point, and they told me all about, you know, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And I was like, damn, that's something I'm interested in. So I started training up. They told me kind of all the things you need to do to be successful. They took me over to the obstacle court course, uh, showed me all the tricks on how to navigate that thing, a lot of technique. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, I was getting my application together and submitting everything. So when I hit the two-year mark on the ship, I'd had my application back. I was approved to go to, to SEAL training, and everything was dialed in as tight as it could be, no matter what I was going to have to do two years on that ship. So you weren't even close to your two years yet, and you already had your application in? I, I would say I had it in right around the probably 13, 14-month cycle. So you owed whatever whatever those yep. months were, another yep. year or something like that, 10 months left. Yep, yep, something like that. Before and, they'd release you. Yeah, and the cool thing was, you know, we had two, my uh, division master chief was an E9, obviously. He was a good dude, and then our CMC, our command master chief of the of the ship, was a good guy. And they're like, hey, man, you work hard. You stay out of trouble. We'll make some phone calls. We'll make sure that you get a shot at going to Bud's. And they didn't have to do that. You know, they could have been like, hey, pack sand, Jack. You, you want to get off the ship, ship, get out of the fleet and go to some other program? That's not helping us out. They didn't do that. They looked out for me, you know, working hard, staying out of trouble, being a good person. All those three things were, were, were good, you know. So, again, it was kind of like reinforcing good behaviors. Um, so always be thankful to those guys. And then uh, the guys, the the guys that showed up that had been to Buds. What kind of impression did that give you? Did you? Because there's a weird thing that somehow you have to think that you can actually do it, right? Yeah. Or you know, like for me, I was like, oh, I can, I can do this, which is a really arrogant thing to think, right? It's arrogant yeah. to think most people quit, but I'm going to be able to do it. Yeah. I wasn't sure where I was going to shake out on the whole thing. To be honest with you, I didn't like run long distance and growing up you know we did a lot of sprints in football um and i wasn't good with pull-ups that so pull-ups i was i definitely sucked at and i was like all right i don't know if i'm gonna be able to do the amount of pull-ups that are needed done so i just started working hard on my pull-ups got on a good running program got on a good swimming program those guys taught me how to do the side stroke and so you know i just get up early in the morning and knock all this stuff out go in and either do a, a weightlifting program and then do my cardio at, at lunchtime or vice versa and uh every now and then those guys would come over and be like hey dial this in, work on this, look at that. Um, so I was I was mentally and physically prepared for first phase on what to expect because these guys had given me so much information. Mm-hmm. Um, Did those guys talk about what happened to them? Yeah, so one of the uh, two of the guys, one of the guys made it past Hell Week. Another guy was in second phase and he got dropped for a pool comp. And then the other guy, he was he got up right around the third week mark or four week mark in first phase and he got injured and he got rolled out. Guy got dropped for pool comp. In second phase, yep. And then what would you say the other one was? The one guy made it past Hell Week, and something happened when he was waiting a class up for second phase, and they dropped him. And then the third guy, he made it, I think, to like week three or four. Mm-hmm. And then got hurt or quit? He got, I think he, well, he said he got. Right, right, you know, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know. No I, one ever quits. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no one ever quits. So you had a pretty good idea of what you're going into. Yep. Because like I can tell you, I didn't have anybody that had, I didn't know anyone that went to SEAL training at all, you know, because I was in the civilian world. So for me, I didn't know what pool comp was. I didn't understand anything. 
It was just a blank, open nothing and do nothing. But you had a decent idea of what was going to be coming. Yep. Yep. I good. I was I was physically and mentally prepared for first phase. Did you get your pull up squared away? I did. I actually went in a little better with my pull ups, and you know the deal when you show up and you start classing up, you're starting from scratch again. So now you're you, from where I came in, I was coming back down uh, with you know my run, run times and swim times and all that stuff. Meaning you were in better shape than what was required. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Which yep. is the way you freaking should try and get there. Yep. Yep. So you show up to buds. Did you get what you expected? Yes. Yeah, it was it was full benefit. So it was good times. What class were you in? I was in 194. So we start we classed up, I want to say right around January of uh 1994. What did you have the did you have problems with anything? In buds? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so first phase, first phase, and third phase were those came a lot more natural to me. You know, I grew up hunting and fishing and shooting guns and doing all that fun stuff. So third phase wasn't bad. First phase I was mentally prepared for. Second phase I'd never scuba dived. I never did any diving, and for me that was the hardest phase. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually failed a, a couple events in there. Like I failed pool comp the the first go round, mm-hmm. you know, and then when I did my retest, I passed it, and then like every little thing, you know, you're doing ditch and darn, you're doing all these little things with scuba tanks and going down and doing stuff. Like I was jacking it all up. And for me, my learning style, I really have to digest, you know, what it is I need to do and kind of like visualize it. Mm-hmm. And things were on a quick tempo for dive phase. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't, uh, it, yeah, it wasn't good for were me. You, did you feel like you were on the bubble the whole time? Like it, when I failed pool comp, I was like, all right, damn, I'm not going to make it through this, man. Mm-hmm. You know, you're on the wall of shame. That doesn't help either. You're yeah. like looking at bricks. You're like, geez, you know. I failed pool comp too. Yeah. Yeah. I had our ops guy from TradeNet, our ops warrant officer from TradeNet put me through. Yeah. Pool comp. Savage. Yeah. He just. Well, you know what's crazy with pool comp? Like I'm going through and in my head I had the procedures down and I thought I did good. I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm down there, they're tying the whammy, not doing all this shit. And I'm like, I'm cool, calm, and collect. I'm going through the procedures, and the instructor just yanks me up by the tank. She's like, you failed, get on the wall. And I was like, damn, seriously? Like, I'm going through trying to think of what I did wrong. I'm like, I, I thought I was good, you know, but I didn't know if they were playing games with me or what. But I went over on the wall. I was like, shit, I don't know if I'm going to make it. That uh, that guy that failed me, who's a great guy, but <clears throat> when he fa- he same thing. He had me down there. I was down there at pool comp was 30 minutes when I went through, and I know they shortened it at some point to 20 minutes, but when I went through, it was 30 minutes, and he just, what he did was, was he just, uh, he ripped my mask off, and then he just started doing like a bob, and he would bob down, he would come down, he would just knock the regulator out of my mouth, yeah. and then he'd go back up, and I would grab the regulator, put it back in, I'd clear it, and then he'd knock it out again, and he did that for 19 minutes. Damn. And then, and I just kept replacing it. And every one of those breaths was a nightmare because you're trying to get the get the water out of there, swallow some of the water, and then get a breath, and then and then boom, he'd knock it out again. And you can't defend yourself, you can't protect yourself, and you can't panic. So I just kept doing it. And then at 19 minutes, he just comes down and gives me the thumbs up, come to the surface, and I come up and I'm like, I feel fine. And he goes, he goes, you didn't look comfortable down there, you fail. And I was like, okay, so I guess that's that. Roger that. Yeah. What's a whammy knot? Like they just tighten this complex knot. Oh, it's like a multiple knots in one. Oh, okay, knot. so it's not like a specific like methodology, or is it just like a generally speaking jam up? So knot? The, the, during this 
evolution called pool competency, also yeah. known as pool comp. Pool comp. Yeah. They want to make sure that you are beyond fully comfortable in the water. Yeah. You will not pass this if you're not comfortable in the water. Zero yeah. percent chance. Yeah. So what they do is they they cause problems. So you have these old school scuba gear on, like Jacques Cousteau style stuff. <laughs> with oh, yeah. big, these big hoses. One yeah. hose goes in, one hose comes out, and they're just like rubber hoses. Yeah. And they start taking these things. And they first they start off, they knock off your mask, they rip off your fins, they pull your regulator out. And then they start pulling your regulator out and then like undoing your thing. And eventually they pull it out and put it behind you, pull your regulator behind you and tie it in a knot. You got to take your gear off, pull the rig over your back, untie the knot, start breathing again, put everything back on in order, following the procedures. As soon as you get it back on, boom, they hit you again. And so they keep doing this. Mm -hmm. And eventually they give you what's called a whammy knot, which is a knot that you cannot get out. It won't come out. So now what you have to do is ditch your rig, which means you have to take it off, you have to lay it on the bottom of the pool, you have to take your weight belt off and place it on top of the tank so they don't float. Then you have to kiss your regu- or kiss your manifold. Yep, yep. You'd kiss your manifold. Oh no, you request permission to go up, they give you permission, you know, you give, you give them a thumbs up, they give you like an okay thumbs up. Then you kiss your manifold, and then you blow and go to the surface. What do you mean and kiss your manifold? You literally, the, the part of the scuba tank is called a manifold. It's where the regulator kind of comes out of. Mm. You kiss that. Like, why? I don't get it. Because those are the procedures <laughs> oh, that that's, you're following. That's the deal. Okay, like you got to follow these directions yep. kind of thing. You kiss your okay, manifold, right? Did you yep. have to kiss your manifold? Yes. Yeah, so yep. you kiss your manifold. And then you blow and go, which means you're not going to give yourself a, an air ambulism by the, right. by the air expanding your lungs. And then you go to the surface. You blow and go to the surface. When you get to the surface, you give a thumbs up and you say, I feel fine. Yeah. And they either say, you know, good job, you passed. Or they say, you looked uncomfortable, you failed. <laughs> which for me, they said, you looked uncomfortable, you failed. Mm-hmm. And then for Steve, they said, you looked uncomfortable, you failed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say, though, one thing that's different about me was I did good on everything else. So right. when I failed pool comp, I was like, oh God, like this is it. I can't, I'm, I'm gonna fail. I was super sketched out. Yeah, not me. That wasn't my first time failing. So, so you like failed like ditch and dawn ditch and, and dawn. buddy there, breathe. I was good on the buddy breathe, uh, ditch and dawn and w- something else. I don't know what else I failed. Bro. There was like three things. <laughs> it my, wasn't good. My buddy breathe partner was a freaking wrestler from Iowa. He was a beast of a guy. He was a total freaking panic in the water (laughs) this dude would take the freaking buddy breathe from me because you're using one set of scuba tanks he would take it and just breathe off of it for like a long time yeah and then he then i'd be like hey you know like give him a single like hey but i need that right now you know and so he'd give it back to me and as soon as i took one breath he'd be like you know giving me the signal he needs more (sighs) but you but you passed the second time yep passed it made it out made it made it in the third phase and then third phase was uh Uneventful, easier. You know, you're just doing a lot of running, swimming, and shooting. So it was, it was, that was a lot easier than second phase for me. And running, you were good. Running good. I had all my run times down before I went into bud, so I wasn't so concerned about run. I was just worried about kind of getting injured. Swimming. What about the open ocean swims? Good to go. No factor. No factor. Did you 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 were honor man? Yeah, yeah. So I so and I, you were firing the gut. Yeah. So the That's way they impressive, dude. Yeah, the way they worked it is, I think we voted the fire in the gut before the honor man results came out. 
you know, and the class voted that for me. And I was like, all right, that's awesome. And then they're like, hey, Ward, you got Honor Man too. And I was like, all right, check Roger that. Um, what, so. what, what, well, the reason I say that's impressive is the Honor Man is usually somebody that's like it does really well in all the events, like running, mm-hmm. swimming, O course. And the fire in the gut is usually a guy that like doesn't. Yeah. It's a guy that had to kind of gruel through it and yeah. gut through it to pass. Yeah. Like in my class, it was Jeff Higgs who yeah. had hypothermia multiple times, like five yeah. or six times. And he just, he, he showed back up to buds, even though they kicked him out, he showed up to class in his dungarees and just kept doing it. <laughs> so he got fire and gut, like, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. And then honor man was Keith Camaro, who's a total stud athlete. Yeah. But for you to get both those, that's pretty freaking. Yeah. So how did you even get that? I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> it didn't feel like it. You know? Were you one of the leading guys? Were you an E4 at this point? So, yeah, I'd made E4 off the ship before I went to Bud. So I showed up to Bud's and I was an E4 already. Were you the class leading petty officer? Or no, was there no. like a second class in there? No, we had a second class in there. And I think eventually we had a, you know, he got the, the guy, uh, our original LPO, he got stress fractures and um, had real bad shin splints. So he got rolled out and another guy came in and uh, he took over the class LPO stuff. So, <clears throat> was he, what was Hell Week like for you? <laughs> Hell Week, I'll tell you what, Hell Week wasn't. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. It uh-huh. sucks for everyone. Uh-huh. I had enough gas in my tank. I think I could have went one more day. Mm-hmm. But, it, it, you know, it was manageable. Yeah. It was manageable. We just had a guy on who ended up in SF, but he went to Bud's, and he didn't make it through Bud's, but he said Bud's was really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was like, That's, he goes, if you're thinking you're going to go there, you're going to get what you ask for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, for me, Hell Week was kind of cool because – I wasn't the best runner, I wasn't the best swimmer. And so it was like hard for me, like I had to put out super hard to pass those evolutions and I had the fear of failing. Yeah. And and Hell Week, you, there's no time limit on, there's no time limit on no. the evolutions, just keep yeah. going. And I'm yeah. pretty good at keeping going. That's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, a, that's a good thing I'm good at, just keep yeah. going no matter what. I, I, the one thing I remember about Hell Week is, you remember when we were doing Steel Pier? Mm-hmm. That was one of the coldest, points I'd had in my life mm-hmm. you know they were hosing us off on that thing and it felt like my damn hip flexors were gonna pop off yeah. we're doing flutter <laughs> kicks and then they'd pop us in the ocean and the ocean had to have been around 60 degrees but the ocean was way warmer yeah, yeah, than so still feels hot so you're in there and you're like oh man this is great keep us in the ocean for a little longer you know and they'd pop you back up there and back and forth and man I could barely walk when we got off of that damn that damn pier so the pier evolution in hell week was was horrible and then the instructors just wrenching down on that rope when you're carrying the boats to and from child, that shit sucked. You mean wrenching down on the rope so that the thing is pulling down on your head? On your head, yes. Yeah, yeah I thought my little neck was gonna snap off there. Were they jumping while. from boat to boat when you were in? We had instructors in our boat. I don't remember them jumping to another yeah. boat, but we were carrying them around. Instructors were jumping from boat to boat. Damn. And yeah. like I remember hearing my freaking neck bones just grinding. Yep. And I was like, this doesn't seem like it's good for me. <laughs> but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So honor man yep. and fire in the gut guy. And of course you check into team five and no one cares about any of that. No one cares. They're like, hey new guy, grab go clean the shitters. And you're like, damn, I thought I got away from these shitters. <laughs> They're following me everywhere. And uh, you checked into team five? Yep. Checked Did into team five in August nineteen ninety four. And then back then, you know, we still had to go through STT so they pop you in a platoon and you start doing your platoon workup but you're also got to detach from your platoon and go over and go through uh seal tactical training oh no kidding so okay so but your your platoon workup started our platoon workup we it was almost we were a couple months before starting the workup but we were 
broken off and, and going to STT and the platoon had just started some things when we had finished up. And you went to the group STT, didn't you? No, team, I think, no, it was just the team. STT. Just your team? Yep, okay. just our team. Yep. God, I thought they had already combined because eventually they combined Yep. where every guy went directly to a group. Well, not directly, but everyone went through STT together for a while. Yeah. Oh, they still do now, but there was a time when they started. I thought they started around that time. Yeah. So with you, it's just guys from Team 5? Yep, yep. Was it run by Team 5? It was run by Team 5, our okay. training team. Yeah, so. that's the same thing that yep. I did. Yeah. And well, did you have any idea what your job was going to be? No. I got you know put in the platoon, and uh, initially I was a A-dub, A-dub guy in there, and oh, I well. worked in air. <laughs> the, the problem I had with A-dub is I was left-handed. Oh. And uh, we'd had one of our guys in training, and he's like, hey, man, you're that dude's left-handed. Why do you guys have him shooting an A-dub? Because, you know, all the rounds are, or the uh, brass and – um, little, link, yeah, link are f- going out to the right, which is going right across your field of fire, and then you're in your face and stuff. So like, hey, put them on rear security. So got on uh, rear security for that first platoon, and then worked in there and dabbled around in first lieutenant and uh, ordnance. What kind of platoon was it? Just a spec ops platoon. Spec ops platoon. Yep, yep. So we were deploying out to a little island out there in the Pacific. Did you? Uh, how was how was like your platoon leadership? No, the first platoon was not was not good. Mm-hmm. So I got to see, hey, what wrong looks like, you know. <laughs> and it, it was kind of funny. Like our uh, – it was a classic case of, you know, our, our OIC was was a good dude, but I think he was too smart for his own good. Mm-hmm. And uh, he I think he was a little more concerned with PT and being in good shape, and he was a phenomenal athlete, like you know, one of them triathlete guys. Mm-hmm. But it came at the cost of showing up to dive evolutions on time. Jeez. came at the cost of – being a good tactical leader down on the ground, which is Oof. what everyone's hungry for. Um, so I think he kind of lost, you know, a lot of our guys' respects. And he was kind of hard-headed, you know, mm-hmm. that, that classic uh, I'm smarter than everyone else type thing. So it didn't go over good. And it, it, it was just a – it was weird, you know. It was weird. And I didn't realize how, you know, I'm trying to find a good way to word this. <laughs> It wasn't an ideal platoon. Right. And you don't realize that until you get into a really good platoon. Yeah. For you, you didn't know anything different. Correct. So for you, that's just the way a platoon was. Yep. Yep. And the scary thing about that is you get such a big impression made on you by your first platoon yeah. that if you're not careful, you can think that other platoons are jacked up because they're not like your first platoon. Yeah. You know, yep. you're so impressionable. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was interesting. So the, the there was a huge difference between my first platoon and third platoon. Our th- my the third platoon I did, we were like the best platoon of the team, and mm-hmm. it felt good. Like the leadership was dialed in; they were balanced out. Our platoon chief was squared away, well respected. He was good tactically. He was good administratively. Like that's the dude I want to be like. Mm-hmm. You know, that was uh, in your third platoon. That was my third platoon. My, you know, my second platoon was was better than my first. Still, a lot of room for improvement. You know. And were you rear security? Did you move up to point man or something? Now? Yeah, yeah, I moved up to a point man at some point. I think my second platoon, the third platoon, I was running point. Running point. You're tall for a point man. I know. How man. tall are you? Yeah, um, six two. Yeah, because you have a dub written all over you till they find out you're left handed. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what were you? You know, just to give people a reminder, this is the '90s, so we don't have a lot of assets. Nope. We don't have a lot of money. Nope. We don't have. We're not really doing any real missions, nope. barely. Nope. Uh, you know, some guys like Gardner went to Somalia, uh, but that was a real rare occurrence. 
Yeah. So what we would do is train, get ready, go on deployment, kind of party. Um, it's kind of like what the what the scene was. Yeah. I was, well, it's kind of funny because when I showed up to the team, Gardner was already in there. He already had a couple of platoons on his belt. Mm-hmm. I'm on the damn quarter deck watch, and uh, this dude has a long name. He's, he's still in, so I won't say his name, but he had a long name, and I'm like, tension in the team five compound, so-and-so, you know, reports of the quarter deck, and I butchered his name. Well, who do you think's calling me on the damn phone, you know, Gardner? <laughs> and he was a hard case, man. Hey, you effing new guy, say his name right. And I was like, shit, man. That's a pretty, I, yeah, that's a pretty good yeah. Gardner invitation. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I was like, damn, I'm not getting out of the compound tonight without getting taped up and thrown in a damn mill van, you know. Yeah. So, but. So this was 94. Yeah, because at that time, actually, yeah, at those years, you were starting to get a migration to Team 5 from, like, for instance, from Team 1. People yeah. wanted to leave Team 1 if they didn't like the Stalag. Yeah. And so there was a whole, like, gang of guys that went down to Team 5. I remember that. To just get, yeah. to, to have some freedom. No fun one. Yeah, no migrating fun Migrating down the street. Yep, they were coming on down the <laughs> migrating street. Migrating north. <laughs> Gardner, Gardner was always at Team 5, so he was, but he was just like, why would I want, more like, why would I want to be over there where there's a bunch of rules that you have to follow? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Gardner was funny, man. Well, you could always find Gardner out when we were doing uh, working in the desert because you just look for some smoke. You know, like, look for fire. Look for fire. There's Gardner. He's lighting some shit on fire. Gardner guy. <laughs> so uh, you do your third platoon. Yep. And then what? What are you thinking? What are you thinking about your life at that point? So, so it's what, what year is it? So this is, uh, I finished my third platoon in 99. And uh, so I was going through a divorce, had a kid, mm-hmm. and I was like, hey, I got to hit the reset button. So I, I talked to our mass chief, our CMC, and I was like, hey, man. I, he was like, hey, we want to bring you in here and be the training cell LPO. And I was like, hey, man, I, I got a lot of baggage right now. I need to break contact here, go reset. So I got orders over to um, our special boat team mm-hmm. at the headquarters element. And I got put in their training cell, and we were – basically setting up operational readiness exercises mm-hmm. just Got like it. we used to run. Yep. And so so you went, just to, so everyone understands, you went from, instead of being a team training cell, which you're going to be gone all the time doing yep. training trips, you go to a boat training and then the ORE training, so you're going to be home a lot more. Yes. Yep. And so at that point, I was ready to go back to school. So as soon as I got there, I was already enrolled back in college on like a, a one-year I don't know what you'd call it, but you know how they have the military program. So I was going to school Saturday and Sunday to knock out all my upper-level units from my bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. and then I was working on my lower-level units at the same time. So I did, I winded up finishing up my degree in about three years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm there going in through the training. We're home, away trips every now and th- every now and again, and uh, it, it was good, man. I had good leadership in there, These you know, the special warfare combatant craft crewmen. Mm-hmm. Them dudes are squared away. And mm-hmm. so I got to learn a lot about the boats, and, and that playoff – or it helped me out later on because you're really learning, you know, hey, how far can these things go, load capacity, all those key tactical things that matter when it comes into a mission planning process for training or for a mission. Yeah, and um, what's good is you start to relate those to helicopters and yep. aircraft and vehicles. And so it gives you a, a better sense because as a young team guy, I was really lucky I was a, com- I was a communicator, I was a comm yeah. guy, so I was always involved in the planning more than my peers, right? Yep, yep. The point man might plan the the in, you know the route, yep. but like I was like, okay, here's what we're gonna here's what we're gonna do for communications during the insert, and then once we're on target. So I was more involved in the planning, which was super lucky. And then I did ARGs, 
where I was working with the Marine Corps and working with the big Navy. So once again, what's the distance that this helicopter can take us to insert us? What's the distance that we can get with our boats? What's the distance that our ribs, once again, the boats, how far can they take us? What's their capacity? So I was very lucky that I got that opportunity because once you realize how to plan with assets, it's a big, it transfers to all different assets. Makes you makes you smarter across the board. Yep. Yep. So all that was good. So in uh, while I was there at the boat at the boat dead, I was like, hey, not much going on in the nineties. I was kind of like ready to punch out of the military, mm-hmm. and so I started uh, putting in my application for the CHP California Highway Patrol. Went in through all the interview process, all the testing, got my letter of acceptance, and I was kind of just on standby. I was mm-hmm. going to transition out, and then in August of that year in two thousand one, I made chief. I don't know how the hell I made chief that. You know, I wasn't expecting to put it on. It was like a total shocker, you know. And then in September 2001, 9-11 happened. I was like, all right, shit, I'm staying in, man. We've mm-hmm. been <laughs> waiting a long time to get in the <laughs> I've base. Been, I've been training for whatever. Yeah, we had yeah. been seven years, seven I years. guess. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. So, you know, from there I worked with uh, the CMC over at Team 5 to get back there. And he's like, hey, I got a platoon chief slot open if you want him. I was like, hell yeah. You rolled right into a platoon chief slot. Yep. After September 11th. Yes. So I went back to the team. I left like a few months early TAD to go back to Team 5 until my orders could catch up. And then got over there and like I think right around January, February time frame, we started forming up our platoon, getting ready for a 12-month workup cycle. So you called the CMC at Team 5? Yep. And said, hey, bro. Well, I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was saying, hey, bro. But I, <laughs> the other mass chief I had with me at the boat debt, uh-huh. he was my second platoon chief. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, I'm working with with Jimmy over here at Team 5, you want to, they got a spot open, you want I was like, hell yeah, I want it. Dude, my point is like, man, build some good relationships with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Build some good relationships with people because yeah. that pays off, you yeah. know? And that means, you, how do you build good relationships? Not by kissing ass, by yeah. working hard, by doing yes. a good job. That's how you build yeah. good relationships. When I checked into Team 7 after September 11th, it was actually like, whatever, two years after September 11th, my, the, the CO there, which first of all, the detailer who I was friends with sent me to the next deploying team. So when I left, I had to go to college for a semen animal program. When I left college, I went to the next deploying team. Yeah, That's not luck, bro. And then when I got to the team, the commanding officer who I'd also worked for in the past, fired a platoon commander and put me in as a platoon commander whatever three months before deployment damn that's that's just you know that's based on my past performance and and relationships for sure but the relationships are built on the fact that I worked hard and was trustworthy to get the job done yeah so you never plus you just never know who you're gonna be working with no you know don't burn any bridges man don't don't burn any bridges Yeah. yeah and just going back to what you're saying there that your credibility in the teams is everything your reputation? Yeah, you don't want to have a reputation of being a, you know, a, a jackass, kook. a jackass, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Yeah. You don't want to be that. Yeah. Dude. yeah, and your reputation is is a, I don't know what the word to describe it. It is a heavy thing that sticks with you. It's yep. I should say it's a sticky thing. It's yep. a sticky thing, and if you have good reputation. It, it'll stick with you. If you yep. have a bad reputation, it'll stick with you. Yep. It can take people years to overturn a bad reputation. Yep. And interestingly, it can also take people years to ruin a good reputation. Yeah. Like a person with a good reputation 
can make mistakes and people are like, oh yeah, don't worry about it, it's Fred, you know, yeah. Fred's good to go. Yeah. Or a person with a bad reputation can make one little slip up and people are like, you gotta be kidding me, we need to get rid of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Pull his trident, get him out of here. Yeah, yeah. I like, and I, I hate to say that, because right, right, that's like, that's like what? That's like political and all this stuff. Yeah. But it's just the reality of the situation, and there's there's a reason for that. Because yeah. look, human beings are going to mess up. But if you, I guess the difference is you have a good a good person with a good reputation. They earn that reputation by consistent good performance. Yep. And eventually, that reputation stands on its own. And therefore, if they make a mistake, which everyone's going to make mistakes when they make a mistake, when they make a mistake, which they will, people go, "Ooh, you know, like, guess what? You know what?" They've done a they've done a hundred good things. That's how they built that reputation. Now here comes a bad one. All right, we'll, we'll we'll carry on. Whereas if you've done a bunch of bad things, and now you do something bad, oh, you're you're yeah. good. You don't have any leg to stand on. Yep, yep. You're screwed. So that reputation thing, and it's every it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But man, in the teams, it's a it's a big thing. It's a big thing. It's damn near everything. It's damn near everything. <laughs> it's damn near everything. Your rep. Yeah. Uh, so you roll in. Now you're a platoon com- a platoon chief at Team Five. Yep. Getting ready to deploy. Yes. Yep. At what point do you realize you guys are going to Iraq? We didn't know until probably January 2003. So we're mm-hmm. you know I'm there. I get there in October 2001. January February 2002. We start our 12 month long workup cycle. And it's going through, and it looks like, hey, we're going into Iraq. You know, um, we no one really understood the scale of that thing, how big it would wind up being, how many years it would wind up being, you know. So when they told us, hey, you're going over, we were like, hell yeah, man, yeah. this is awesome, you know. Because you, like everybody else in the teams, was worried that there would be a three-month war and you'd miss the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. Which is so hard to explain to people, yeah, especially yeah. now that we've been at war for almost 20 years straight. Yeah, It's hard to explain to people how much it meant to go to war when there was no war going on. Yeah, it was everything. Like, you were just like, man, this is going to be awesome, you know? And everyone's getting prepped. You don't know, you're like, I don't know what to expect. They, everyone was thinking they had chemical weapons, mm-hmm. you know? Hell, <laughs> we were going through all kinds of mop drills with our oh, CBR yeah. gear and just going through everything. Our EOD guys were getting everyone tuned up, so we were dialed in. Um, and you're looking at the freaking mop uniforms. Oh yeah, and it's like got a elastic drawstring at the waist, yeah. and like you, yeah. you're thinking, wait a second, yep. this is supposed to keep me alive. <laughs> Ain't happening. Whatever. <laughs> Let's rock and roll. Yeah. Did you ever think that? Did you ever take that charcoal freaking light laden suit and be like, hey, how? Wait, you're saying this thing's gonna save me? It's got some. Yeah. Elastic drawstring around the ankles, and that's supposed to keep me good to go. It, yeah, that that mop suit didn't have a good reputation, dude. <laughs> for sure, it was it was lacking. I don't know what the U.S. government paid for those mop suits, and what <laughs> level of security they provided us, but I don't have a lot of confidence. I guarantee it was a lot. And the gas masks, dude. Oh, like, yeah. what are the chances? But that's what we were getting told we were going to do, and not yep. one single guy said no. Because we, I did one op where we mopped up because we thought yeah. we were hitting a target that had allegedly some whatever chemical yeah. weapons. And you know what everyone did? Everyone got jocked up. Everyone put yep. those gas masks on. Everyone put those stupid freaking yeah. uniforms on. I'll tell you what, we had quite a few missions when we got over to Iraq where we were going around with some of those three-letter agencies mm-hmm. looking all over the place, seeing what was around. 
and everything we saw was uh, was old. It was like mm-hmm. it had been there, left, you know, nothing new at all, you know. Um, as far as CBR. CBR, yeah. Shit. Like all the facilities and everything was like nothing's been here for a long-ass time. Mm-hmm. So. so, all right, well, let's. so you get done with your workup. You find out you're going to Iraq in January, yep. and you guys are going on deployment in like April or something? Yep. Yep, April time frame. So uh, Team 3 was already over there, and just going back to your relationships piece, we had a couple guys on the platoons that were dialed in with some Team 3 guys, and they started sharing information, you know, back and forth. Hey, here's what's going on. Here's what to expect. So that gave us a really good idea on what we needed to, to prep for. And so right around April time frame, we deploy over to Kuwait, and we're staged in Kuwait waiting to go into Iraq. Team 3's, I think, wrapping things up at that point, and we might have already turned over with them. Um, and we're actually in um, Kuwait for a, a handful of weeks there. <laughs> I want to say right around three weeks. And we actually did our first op out of Kuwait into Iraq on 53s. That was, was that sounded like a crazy op. It was good. It was a good shakeout. Right. Nothing, nothing happened. But we planned for 96 hours. We went through all of our helicopter rehearsals, you know, and it was a big op. We loaded up those uh, our DPVs, Desert mm-hmm. Patrol vehicles, and we went in with a big package. And we... What was your mission? To go take down the, the dam. Get control. Oh, to get control of Haditha? Get, it wasn't Haditha. It was somewhere up north, Mukarim. Okay. Mukarim Dam. So uh, we went up there, and it was a long-ass flight in there, and we're all jacked up on the catnip. You think you're going to get in the shit, you know, yeah. and we're flying there. We got our <laughs> E&R plan laid out in case a helicopter gets shot down. We got our mop gear with us, yeah. and we're roping down off 53s onto the dam. With our CBR gear, you look like you know Michelin snowman. Did, were you down. masked up when you when you fast roped? We were not. the The game plan was secure the dam, get everything set up, get everything cleared, and then they had some tunneling systems in there because it was a dam. Mm-hmm. They wanted us to go inside the tunneling system, see if there's any you know weapons of mass destruction or chemical weapons in there. So, the once we secured the dam, which it took a little while because you don't really think yep. about how big a dam is on the inside. There's a lot of shit going on in there. Um, is this a one platoon op? This is so we had or like a platoon our, plus. No, we had platoon plus. So we had our platoon, our mobility element, and we also brought in some uh, STV bubbas, which was good. They'd already mm-hmm. been there and they'd cleared a ton of ships, small, you know, little uh, what do you call the little boats out there? Dows. Dows. They yeah. cleared a ton of dows. So these guys had already had some reps under their belt. <clears throat> so we were excited to uh, to get them on the op of those. But yeah, we went in there uneventful, cleared it, checked the tunnels, nothing there. Then we, you know, waited there a couple of days, and then we uh, pulled out. But that—that's a—that's like a big, that's the big mish that we were planning for in the '90s, like oh, that type of thing. Dude, yeah. Like, hey, here it is. Yeah. You're gonna helo in. This is the big mish, and plus, that was your first combat operation. Yes. Yep. It was a big deal. It, like, it felt good to get that under our belt. In the and we, we, um, it was a good shakeout for planning because you know you're over there going through the 96 hour planning cycle. Um, a lot of good lessons learned. First time using 53s on a, on a mission uh-huh. like that. Um, so it was good, you know. And, and one of the things I jacked up was me and another guy, our medical guy who squared away duty, stayed in the teams for a while. But we roped down, and we had our CBR gear strapped on our sides. Mm-hmm. And so as we're coming down, we got that damn molly pack. You know, you got to weave it in and out of the, yeah. the, the nylon. I didn't weave mine in and out like I was supposed to. So I went through a couple, but I left like the bottom undone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I hit the wheel or the skin of the aircraft, but that thing, that damn thing came <clears throat> popping off. Of course, I had my MVGs in there. Ooh. The helo, you know, and the uh, the backpack goes over the side. Same thing with 
the other cat that was with me. We think the world will wash, you know, put it in the river and stuff. And everyone always talked about, hey, it's not a big deal. You can, you get, you know, write it off as a combat, as a combat, combat loss. loss. That's what everyone was talking about. You know, like, all right, yeah, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Combat loss. I was like, dude, the skipper was not happy. The combat loss write off was not a thing. Yeah. We learned that the well, what's way. really not a thing is trying to do a night clearance without nods. Yeah, Not night vision. We white lighted everything then. Okay. So back then we're coming up on the dam, we're white lighting it, and then even the clearance on the inside. So you were lucky. In that respect. What do you mean? I'm saying if you you said you said you lost your nods, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. saying you're yeah. lucky that you didn't. Yes. That you weren't them. didn't need them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that is accurate. Because that would have freaking you'd have just been blind walking around. Yep. Waiting to. Yeah. Walk into a wall. Yeah, it was. It was just buddy along with somebody. Yeah, it was a good lesson learned for me, especially being a platoon chief. Did you uh, that little Molly weave? How many Molly weaves did you make? Like two? I think I had about three in there. I think there was around five, <clears throat> and I just left out the last two and snapped it in. Snapped her in. Yep, snapped her in. Get her done. She's good. Not so good. <laughs> Not a good situation. And the skipper was pissed. Oh, he was hot, man. I was on the mat with him. Like, he's, you know, calling me to task on that one. Yeah, l- luckily, like I said, you had a good reputation. Like, if you had a bad reputation at that point, that would have really sucked. Yeah, yeah. Would have really sucked. Yep. So that was your first big mesh. And then what? But and that was out of Kuwait. That was out of Kuwait, yep. Yep. And then what happened? Then we moved up into Baghdad. We had a little camp set up out there. At, uh, we called it Camp Posey. You know, mm-hmm. we had a, I don't know if you know Posey, but a good mm-hmm. uh, warrant officer, Vietnam dude. Yeah, yeah. Good, like yeah, good the stories. Best, man, the best. And we had another guy, we called him Ranger, and uh, those two dudes came in. They helped build out the camp. You know, we took a Ranger with us on uh, <clears> on quite a few missions. Good dude. And then we just started operating out of Posey into Baghdad. Yep. We were right there at the Baghdad International Airport. And what I was impressed with looking back, or what I am impressed at looking back, is you guys were freaking super proactive in getting missions started. Yeah. Like you guys were super proactive in forming relationships yep. and, and getting the intel that you needed from various sources and, and starting to do a lot of operations. Yeah, we set the foundation for you guys because yep. you guys came in and did like four times more than what we did. But we were definitely laying that foundation. And, and one of the things we had, our task unit senior enlisted leader, um, he was dialed in and he came from Damnick. Mm-hmm. And so he had a lot of good relationships. And, you know, you know, yep. Damnick was over there at that point. And so he was tied in with a lot of the three-letter agencies, mm-hmm. which opened up the door with quite a few missions, shared intelligence. So that really helped set that uh, that foundation for us. And then from there, we were starting to get, you know, some good missions. And, hell, even if you're getting one mission, you're like, all right, we're good to go, you yeah. know, because you think we all think we're going to be out of there within six, seven months, like the whole thing's shutting down. Yep. Um, but obviously it didn't. Yeah, so what was your – you guys got in some gunfights too. Yeah. What, we, was the, what was the first one like? What do you remember? Our first shootout was kind of funny. We were dialing in our standard operating procedures for a shootout, um, which we hadn't done. Like, you know, we went through training. Training was good, but it was nowhere near the level that, you know, we provided our guys once we got over to mm-hmm. trade it. It wasn't anywhere near that. So we identified a few of the gaps we had, and we went, we developed, we brought in the platoon, we brought in guys with experience, and we developed our standard operating procedure for what we're going to do inside a house if we get in a shootout. And it was basically suppress fire, cover, crash, maneuver. Using a cover and move, mm-hmm. we're going to deploy some crashes. Someone's going to be suppressing fire while all that's happening. 
So on this particular mission, we went in and uh, the house, the guy marked for us was the wrong house. We didn't know that. Well, on imagery, everything looked dialed in tight and they mark it. It looks good. We go in, breach the door, so we've gone explosive. So now the neighborhood's starting to wake up. We clear the house. I kept everything on the clock. We clear the you know two-story house in under two minutes. Then we get the call on the net, hey, reset. The, ho- the actual target house is down the street. So we reset, reconsolidate, you know, one's on the left, two's on the right, gear check, you know, sensitive equipment check, everyone's good, come back out of the house, grab our wood ladders, patrol back down the, the road, and the right house is marked. And we go up there, and it was the right house. It had a double security screen door. We go explosive on it. We got a, a failed breach. So now it's turning into a big construction project. Mm-hmm. Guys are up with the And quickies. not to mention, just so everybody knows, like, after you hit the first house, everybody in a two-mile square radius knows what's happening. And if you're in that neighborhood, you know exactly what's happening. So if you're a bad guy in that neighborhood, you are now alert and ready to be attacked, and you're prepping. Yep, exactly. So now we got a failed breach. We're on the outside of the structure. The breachers are working through, getting through that heavy security screen door. Um, We're kind of raking windows. We're deploying crashes in there to keep people away from the front door. We finally get entry clear the first floor, everything's good, we're dialed in. And back then, we always pressed into our guys, hey, you make the call. If you stack on the stairs, you're the number two guy, you got three or four more guys behind you, make the call and go up the stairs. We don't want to just have this lag period where you're waiting for me or the OIC to make yep. a decision tell you what to do, decentralized command. So the guys stack on the stairs, I'm right there, I just came out of the, the kitchen area, they start moving up the stairs, and there's a young kid upstairs with an AK-47. So he's like 10 feet away, and he's just – Full auto, ka, 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 ka. And our guys are on the stairs. They're trying to return fire, but the, the volley's just all around our dudes, man. Um, I'm yelling at the guys, get back down here. They come back down the stairs, and then we go through our shootout procedures, which which paid dividends. They worked. We couldn't shoot, get at the guy because the guy's on the second deck, and now we're down below him. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to get the direct fire. So our guys are exposing themselves a little bit, trying to get an angle here. Guys are deploying crashes. We deployed about five, six crashes. There's no more gunfire. We're like, all right, check. Um, we're going up. So, you know, we go up the stairs. The kid had actually dropped his gun. We clear the, uh, the second deck. There's freaking smoke everywhere. So it was just, I mean, we're gagging. There's so much smoke in the house. Um, go up there. The guy's not there. We're like, where the hell did this guy go? And um, our guys go out on the, on, the, on the deck patio, and they're clearing. And now we're looking really hard. Like, where is this guy? And the kid is a young kid hiding behind curtains. And, you know, the guy's there, and then, Boom, our guys muzzle strike the guy, get him into the center of the room. We cuff him up, and that was that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyone get hit by him, by the bad guy? Any no, casualties? so, you know, our, our guy heading up the stairs first, the first guy up, he had a grazer over his MVGs. Um, it actually hit his, his mount, um, but he, he didn't get hit. It was like it was a total pulp fiction. Pulp fiction scenario. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah, like he had angels on his because that could have been a bad night. We could have had two, three guys hit in that one volley, and no one got hit. We. We were extremely lucky. How many how many rounds do you think the guy shot? One mag or two mags? Did he get a reload? No, no, no. He didn't get a reload. He, he, I think he got a full mag off, somewhere in between 25 and 30 rounds. Damn, dude. Yeah. From it, 10 feet. Yeah. Yep. Close. It's clo- I mean, I don't know how he – he probably missed because he was on full auto. You mm-hmm. know how those things yep. get. You're just bouncing all around when you go on full auto. Um, and, and the dude, you know – the guy was just a total douchebag that shot at us, too. He's like, I love George Bush. I love Coca-Cola. And you're like, you just shut up, man. <laughs> so, yeah, we cuffed him up. And that was that was emotional when you're getting shot at that close and you're dealing with a bad dude that just mm-hmm. tried to kill you. 
you know, those uh, emotions get jacked up pretty high. Um, we had some good teammates there. I mean, I was I wanted to kill the dude, um, but you, we can't do that, you know, mm-hmm. as much as you want to. It's, you're gonna, <laughs> it's not going to be good. But we got him cuffed up, took him over to our uh, detention facility. And, you know, the, the guys did good that night. And they did good because of the training, the talk-throughs that we did, going through the checklist, going through multiple rehearsals. Every time these missions came up, all that panned out. All that worked in our favor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for that, that one event, for that one shootout, that all worked for us, you know. Having uh, – having contingency plans which is that what you guys had yeah. and it's what you know we have all kinds of contingency plans I mean every I add every immediate action drill that we do is a contingency plan like oh if we get shot at from over there this is what we're gonna do if we get shot at from over there this is what we're gonna do yeah. so having those contingency plans it just makes it so that you don't really have to think decentralized command just works everyone yeah. knows what to do they know what the objective is they make it happen yeah. and so you can make very little call very very you can give very little direction and things still will yeah. proceed the way they're supposed to What about um, what about your next what about your next gunfight? So, our next one I think was our uh, our helicopter. So we'd gone in after this guy and he um, he shot an RPG and killed an army guy. And so we were going in after him. And so we came in. We did quite a bit of helo work that deployment. So we came in with our helicopters and our game plan was to you know land on the X, assault the building and get and grab the guy and go. And he was out in this. Uh, I think he was actually out in Fallujah, Ramadi. So there were some palm groves out there. So on insertion, we come in and, and the helicopters went to the wrong house. You know, and our MVGs back then, they're kind of, they're not good. So we could see how that, so we, we, we sat down and we're like, this is not the right house, get back up. They get back up, do one orbit, come back into the right house, land us, we dump off, clear the building, everything's uneventful, we get the bad guy. Now as we're going through all the uh, sensitive site exploitation, we're trying to grab as much as we can on this guy, you know, we get a, a report as we're breaking out that, hey, there's two or three armed guys coming your way in through this palm grove. So the helicopters were a ways out, but we had a gunship overhead. And so we set up a quick hasty perimeter, little fush hook, and we're going to wait to see if these guys came into us. Well, they never came into us. They sent something was wrong, and they bagged ass. So we get set up in the palm grove, and we're calling in the helicopters at this point to come pick us up. And as we're setting up the perimeter, you know, someone calls out over the radio, hey, man, there's a tracer fire that just went by. And no one else had seen it. There's one dude paying attention in his field of fire, sees one round mm-hmm. come in. And so he calls it out. So we kind of go on hyper alert here. We're, we're waiting. We're watching. And as the helos are coming in, this dude, they were probably like 300 yards from us. They start opening up with AAA fire over our LZ. Now, the only thing protecting us at that time is we had a palm grove. And the LZ's here and the house is somewhere over here. So this tracer fire is coming over the palm grove. And it, the, the issue we had is like um, – communicating this back up the chain. We had our task unit commander on the ground with us on this mm-hmm. one. And some people just didn't see this shit. Some people didn't see the tracer fire coming. And I picked it up pretty damn quick once the guy called it out. And you're like, holy shit, that's a good volley of fire. We're going to get a helicopter shot down if we're not careful of her. So anyways, the helicopter comes in, picks up the package, grabs our headquarters element, they bounce out, and then we just go over to our secondary LZ, which was, you know, pretty easy. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was very uncomfortable knowing that, hey, you got AAA fire coming over the top of you. You know, when these helos get shut down, it's going to be a long night, especially out here in this rural area. We didn't have any backup. And then what was your op tempo like? It wasn't bad. It wasn't like we were going out digging targets every night. But mm-hmm. we would. Uh, we got a point there where we were going out at least twice a week, I'd say, once or twice a mm-hmm. week. 
Yeah, more like twice a week. But in between that, we were doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you're yeah. doing mobility stuff. You're going to do a little bit of sniper stuff here and there, um, which which was which was good. And then just going back on decentralized command, you know, the the other CQC or close quarter combat shootout we had, you know, our guys were going up to this uh, house. And, man, there was freaking telephone wires everywhere, man. <laughs> And you know how that is. You're like, there's yeah. no rhyme or reason. Well, yeah. How do you guys live with this? Just wires, dangling. wires everywhere. <laughs> you know, and we got to hop over this damn gate, yeah. you know, to get to this house. So we literally made, like 30 or 40 wires. Yeah. Like you could be just total mayhem wires. Yep. And we, we planned for it. We actually picked it up on the imagery. We're going through our rehearsals and we're like, hey, there's wires everywhere. As you're coming over at this spot right here, be careful. Don't get your nods hit on them. Don't, you know, we got to be quiet. So we start going up and over. We get the entry team over, and actually we had our, our full squad into the courtyard because the distance from the gate to the actual house was a lot, and it was mm-hmm. a big house, so we needed assaulters up front. So we get up front, and the, uh, uh, you know, the, the entry team's going through, you know, our breacher's going through, laying the charge on the door, going through all the procedures, and the next thing you know, you get this whack, bang, 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 doors, are, rounds are coming through the door. And so, you know, our breacher, we borrowed him from another platoon. He was dialed in, good dude. Um, you and Leif know him. But so he's he's laying the charge and he's using his cover right. If he's in the center of the door, the dude's getting shot yep. with a forty-five cal pistol. But he's off to the side using his covers like he's supposed to. Sets the charge. Our guys, our other guys, holding security. They go through our standard operating procedures. They're waking the windows. They're shooting in through the window to get the person away from it, and they're dumping crashes in to keep the person away, kick them out away from the doorway. So, boom, we blow it. Of course, there's a propane tank there, so the whole damn doorway catches on fire. So now we can't. You know, we got a failed breach area. We can't get in there. The door's open, but there's just mm-hmm. this massive propane fire going on. So we got to go to our secondary door. And you get over to the secondary door, and these these dudes got a damn drop bar on there. So we, I mean, it took us forever to get in. It was a shit show. <laughs> we get entry into the into the doorway, and there's like a family of eight people sleeping in there. And they're like, they're still sleeping. We're like, how is it possible? We just blew in your door. There's gunshots going on, and you are you all are still like physically sleeping, they're like zombies, you know. So, anyways, we got in there, clear the building. That sounds so unbelievable. If you haven't been to Iraq before, like you can't explain things like that. Yeah, you can't. You can't explain things like that. No, to get an explosive breach, a failed breach, (laughs) shotguns going off, a fire, and the team, the freaking family, just racked out. Yep, they were racked out. Yeah, they were zombies, man. What did you ever catch the guy that was shooting through the door? Yeah, it was. uh, It was actually the. I think it was uh, one of the guy's wives shooting through there. And she's like, hey, I thought you thought you were looters. You're like coming in to rob our house. And mm-hmm. we're like, yeah, no, we're not looters, you know. But um, anyways, we got that situation all squared away. That's a rough that, – that, well, when I say that's a rough one, that's the kind of mission where things can go really sideways. Oh, man. Like if you start fragging that room, oh, man. which you could easily – Yep. Do yep. to say, "Ham, hey, look, we just got shot at. I'm throwing some frag grenades into this room, and actually, you know, you got a family, eight person family, and yep. they're getting blown apart by frag grenades because the woman was trying to defend her house from looters. Which again may sound like a crazy story, and it could also be the absolute 100 percent truth. We, yep. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not going to try and you know replay the situation that you lived through, but yeah. that could be legit. Yeah, yep. and you have no idea when been, you're out there, and that'd have been that'd have been horrible." Yeah, it'd yeah, been a freaking yeah. nightmare. Yep, yep. Well, any other big missions that uh, that you guys did? Didn't you guys do like some some like SA seven recovery op oh, or something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we I forgot about that one. So we were out. We went out there, you know, working with some other intel people out there, and they're like, "Hey, we're going after some of this sensitive stuff here." Mm-hmm. We, you know, um, anyways. So 
we went and hit this farmhouse. We got good air coverage over ahead of us. No one's there. The place is a ghost town. We start going through our sensitive site exploitation. And, man, it was like a gold mine. You know, the, the, the perimeter around it was just this big, huge cache. And so we found a, a truckload of, you know, uh, SA-7 and SA-14 missiles, a ton of RPGs, uh, rocket propel grenades, and launchers. And so things started getting a little spicy around the area, so we are calling a l- little bit of a fire support, and we actually had to turn that over to uh, an Army unit who came in the next day during daylight, and they started going through the field, and there was like, ra- I mean, it was like radios. It was like enough shit to outfit a damn Army, mm. you know. Um, so that, that, was a, that was a good op. Nothing happened, but we found a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. so, you, you know, you leave there feeling pretty good about it. And that, so that was a good, that was a freaking great deployment for you guys, especially in like whatever, 2003, that, yeah. that deployment was pretty freaking epic. Oh man, we left there and we're like, we're the man. <laughs> we're never coming back here again. Yeah. Cause Literally. no one, ever, no one ever thought you'd be back there again. No, no, no. It, and it was good. And so the one thing we did that was really good with our platoon that we learned from the team three guys when we relieved them is we shared information. You know, I was back with, you know, your old your brother there at Team One communicating everything I had back to him. Hey, mm-hmm. here's what we're doing. Here's what worked. Here was here's what didn't work. Here's some things to think about with mobility, mm-hmm. and you just try to share as much information as possible. You know, yeah. that way the next guys coming in they know what to expect and they can adjust training, come in at a high level, ready to to rock and roll. I know when you guys came in, you guys did, I don't know, four time, four or five times the amount of missions we did for that deployment. Yeah, well, you get, you guys were pushing a lot of information back to us. I know you guys were feeding my platoon chief, and my platoon chief was already like a mobility kind of <laughs> mobility uh, dude, and so he yeah. was just amped, bro. Yeah. We were doing freaking uh, freaking tire change drills like NASCAR, Damn. like a yeah. pit crew. I mean, it was just like it was on. Yeah. But here's the funny thing: we were we were on an ORE prior to that deployment. So yeah. like maybe three months before going on deployment, we were on an OR. We we did our ORE shipboard and we went and we were doing hydrographic reconnaissance of red beach up at camp pendleton with lead line and slate dude like it was the world hadn't caught up yep right the world hadn't caught up yet and thank god you know like after that we were we we found some humvees we borrowed humvees from like the cbs or something and started running op running you know training ops down at like the old NTC, the old Naval Training Center where they had a bunch of old buildings that were all dilapidated, but we started running little ops in there with our, you know, and our task unit commander had actually been in Iraq on the push-up, so he had some experience. Our task unit SEA had also been in Iraq on the push-up, so he had some experience, um, which was awesome, and they're both great guys. So we were, and we were just going off of the reports of how you guys were doing stuff. And we were just like, okay, this is what they're doing? Cool, this is what we're gonna do. This is what they did, this is how they rigged their vehicles? Okay, this is how we're gonna rig our vehicles. So that's kind of what we did. And then I know you and I did a turnover, wasn't, we we did it like Bahrain, right? Uh, Yeah, Bahrain, that's where I was at. We had a platoon left up there and our mobility element was left up there. And we came back a few weeks early out of Bahrain just because there wasn't enough room to bring everyone in, so. Yeah. yeah, so we sat down, did an awesome turnover with you guys, with you and your OIC, yep. who's yep. a freaking great dude. That yep. was awesome. And I was kind of, like, I knew who you were yeah, just from, I guess, being around, but then that was that was when I was like, that's when I first really remember getting a working, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I might have seen you yep. at McPee's or something, yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, but the first time I ever actually got a working, I think that was the first time I ever did some kind of working uh, 
I think that was the first time I crossed paths with you. Yeah. yeah. Always hear the name out there. I mean, I was roommates with Taco, and Taco had nightmare stories with you and Chris. He's <laughs> like, those guys, man, they need to quit beating us up. <laughs> we were uh, – we were we were we were hostile as young seals. Yeah, we, we had the gang mentality for sure, for sure. Um, so, then what'd you do when you got home from that deployment? So, got back off that deployment, and uh, there was another platoon chief slot open. So the CMZ was like, "Hey, man, you, the guy that was gonna come doesn't look like he's gonna come. Do you want to do, do another one?" I was like, "Hell yeah, I do!" So then, you know, started form up another platoon, got a bunch of new guys in, new OIC, and uh, started another twelve month workup cycle. Dang. That's you got freaking two platoon chief slots. Yep, yep. It was awesome, man. That's the best job in the world. The task unit spot is is good. Yeah, but the yeah. platoon chief slots a lot. Oh yeah, better. platoon chief. Yeah. I mean, I always say like E five in a platoon. I was just talking to some guys the other night that were E five. Some students like, hey, you're good, man. E five in a platoon is an awesome place to be, and it is. Yeah. It is. It's an awesome place to be, and hopefully, you reach a point where you go. I can take care of those awesome guys. Yep. And that's when you go, okay, I'm going to be an LPO or I'm going to be a yep. platoon chief or I'm going to be a, a, you know, if you go the officer route, you can try and go that officer route. But at some point you realize the best thing I can do as a, to be a good E5 is to take care of the other E5s means I got to get promoted. I got to take care of them. Yep. And the best way I can do that is to in, increase my rank a little bit. Yep. So I yep. have a little bit more sway. Yep. We don't have to do dumb shit. Yep. Yep. You know, I'm complaining about my boss. You know, you can only complain so much before yep. you got to actually do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's rare that someone gets to do platoon chiefs back to back like that. I mean, no, it's rare that a guy even gets to do two platoon chiefs slots. That's yeah. freaking rare. Yeah, we're getting better at it now. That's you know, good. That's one of the things that I know at the headquarters level they're really looking at. You know, before there, our, um, our rating really took control over, hey, you can only do one. You got to mm-hmm. move out. Another guy's got to move in. And they started looking at that because, you know, we had we were losing quite a few tactical leaders. Mm-hmm. Like their guys are getting fired. Why are they getting fired? Hey, they need more seasoning. Yeah. Hey, let's grab – let's keep two, three guys that are doing really good to keep that uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Continuity. Continuity at the team. And these are dialed-in people. You know, you can count on them and uh, move it forward. So we've gotten better with, uh, with that over the last 10 years. Yeah. So there's guys – it's common now for – your top two or three guys to stay at the team. That's Even if they pick up senior chief, they're going to stay in that platoon chief uh, Yeah, that's level. awesome. Yep. That's awesome. And so then you do another workup. You must have been freaking dialed now. You're doing a second platoon chief workup? The second platoon chief was way easier than the first. Hell yeah. The, the first one, so I didn't do a platoon LPO, so I was sucking on a fire hose. Oh, okay. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Hell yeah, so, you were. Yeah. So, you know, setting up the platoon, there's just – And you had never worked in training either. Nope. Ooh. Not a team. Yeah. See, I'll tell you, man. My whole, you know, that's probably, you know, my first three platoons, the leadership strategy tactics yeah. we were talking about. My first three platoons, I learned these certain things, right? Yeah. And I wrote about it in leadership strategy and tactics. But where, that was like where all these seeds got planted. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, you want to know where the fertilizer and the water came from on those yeah. seeds? It was working in training cell at SEAL Team 1, yep. where I was a single enlisted E5. And you know what trip I went on? Every freaking trip there was. I taught everything. I would volunteer for every course. I'd, you know, we would go teach land warfare. Then I'd teach diving. Then I'd teach CQC. I'd just do it. And I was the main instructor on any of them. Yeah. I was just a guy that was out there like, I'll go on that trip. Oh, I'll go on that trip. And that's where those little seeds started to come to fruition. And the biggest thing was 
when you're instructing, and you know this now that yeah. we worked in land warfare, yeah. when you're running, when you're watching IADs or you're teaching IADs, yeah. you are de facto detached. So you're yeah. watching and you can see and you realize how easy it is when you're detached. Yeah. And when you realize how easy it is when you're detached, then you go, wait a second, if I'm in there, I just need to take a step back and see what the hell's yeah. going on and that yeah. can make a good call. Yep. So that is where I learned so much. So for you have to not done that, definitely had to make your first platoon chief go around a little rough. It was hard. I, I got lucky like the our sister platoon, that platoon chief was dialed in. He'd done all those things. He was on his like seventh platoon. I was doing my fourth at the mm-hmm. time. And so I leaned on him. I'd ask him 100 million questions on things. Mm-hmm. And he always gave me good uh, good guidance, man. So yeah. Dan, oh, good dude, you know. Him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And th- so then you get done with that one. And now you're now you're going through it again, and now you're kind of like I'm like you, this is easy day. This. You're dealing with the same issues. I got all my standard operating procedures in place. So for every block of training we're doing, I'm, plus you're a freaking combat vet. I'm a combat. You're vet. kind of the man. I'm ready to get after it. Yeah. <laughs> so it was way easier, man. Way easier. You know. Now you're always going to have those same personnel issues, and now you know how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. You know what right looks like. Yeah. And then what was that? Um, then you were going back to Iraq again? Yep. So we wound up back over, you know, you guys came in in late or September 2003. We mm-hmm. went back in September 2004. Mm-hmm. And the place was just a disaster. Roadside bombs all over yep. the place. I mean, you know the drill. Foreign yeah, fighters yeah. all over the place. It was a shit show. Yeah, that that was the the end of my de- first deployment was yep. when we went and tr- got Yakubi, which was Sodder's guy, and that yep. set the whole freaking thing into a, just a total mayhem. Yep. And we saw that. We saw the, like, it was it was a radical change. Yeah. Because before that, like in, what would it be, in March yeah. of 2004, it was kind of like, okay, we'll go do a mission in April. We were, you could look out and you'd see f- smoke and fire Damn, and yeah. vehicles burning. Yeah. And like it was totally, it was a very different scenario yeah. in that one month period in April of 2004. Damn, yeah. And um, it just got worse from yeah, there. Yeah. And then when, by the time you guys showed up, it was, yeah, it was a disaster. I remember, and we were doing the PSD mission, so we weren't doing our oof. typical direct action, but we got in there and in my platoon, we got split up. So we're in squads now supporting other platoons. Because you need X number of people to protect these guys. Um, and one of the good things that the headquarters element did is they rotated guys out for a sniper mission. So, hey, if you're sniper qualified, you come on in. And so we covered down within our, our PSD elements. And guys would go out and do sniper stuff. So I was lucky. I got to get out there on Haifa Street a couple mm-hmm. times. Were you a sniper? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah I was a sniper. Yeah. So I went through uh, I went through sniper school in 98. And that was back when it was out at Coaling and stuff. Oh, okay. And when I got back off of... Uh, that deployment night, and I want to work for uh, Mark. He was running the sniper course, so I did a couple instructor, you know, uh, courses with him. Mm-hmm. So it was it was good, and that helped me out for you know the 2003 deployment, 2004, the 2006 deployment. You know, <laughs> hell yeah. But I remember getting out on Haifa Street, and it was the first time we're out, and we did sniper work in 2003, but there wasn't nothing going on. Everything mm-hmm. was under control. And I remember going out there and we're supporting an army unit. They're doing a clearance. So we come in, dump out of the Bradley, set up in the in the buildings. We got all our sectors covered. And like there's this mooge in an apartment building with an RPG launching RPGs at Apaches that are in the area. And, and like, you know the deal. Like you don't shoot a rocket from a room. That's not good. 
<laughs> good <laughs> practice, right? You're going to jack yourself up. He's just in there getting after him, dunk, dunk. And, like, so the Apaches come in, and they're just like, go, 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 go. And they just take the dude out. And you're like, holy shit, man, this place is not good. You totally know? different. And then you come <clears throat> out for extract. The brads are coming in to pull us out, and, like, there's rounds coming in at you. We didn't deal with that in 2003. Mm-hmm. 2003, we had the upper hand. Mm-hmm. You know, you're operating at nighttime, but we had – the upper hand with what we were doing. Um, so it's just, it was different. And then at that same time in 2004, you had Phantom Fury out there in Fallujah mm-hmm. going off, you know, and you had good dudes supporting that. And that was just, I remember looking up on the uh, the jock screen and the Marines are going through and doing a clearance at nighttime. And there's like grenades getting chucked out and the Marines are just going in and getting after it. I mean, they're carrying like 25 mags in there yep. and going building by building. You know, like God bless the Marine Corps, man. These dudes yep. are like... <laughs> badasses and we all wanted to be there like hey switch with us man come do the psd thing we want to be out there doing what you're doing um but so anyway so we, you know phantom fury had just died down They're like hey we want to send a, a a sniper element up to samara and so like leif got chosen to be oic and i was like hey they selected me to come in there with leif i was like cool we put our 10 man 11 man team together went up to samara and we thought we were going to get after it you know it was it, go time it was go time we were going to get some and it was uneventful, man. Nothing happened. We set up damn near. We were out in the streets every damn day setting up, man. And it was just, you know, the the guys were going after their real cage. It was like mm-hmm. civilians. You, like you don't know what your enemy looked like. They'd come in, set an IED. You didn't even know they set it, and then they'd be out of there. Mm-hmm. How um, many? How much did you spend? How much time did you spend on Haifa Street? Not much. I'd say I probably got out there about six or seven times total for that. And I was only in Iraq for ninety days during that time period. And then you rotated out to uh, the Pacific? Yep, yep, over to PI. Yep, Guam and PI. And the PSD was, look, it was a hard mission and everything, but relatively uneventful because that's what it was supposed to. So uh, at that time, SEALs were providing security for the top seven. Something like that. uh, Authorities in Iraq and, you know, in charge of keeping them safe and did an awesome job. Yeah. But that, in doing an awesome job meant there wasn't, Action, thankfully, yeah, because yeah. the action probably would have been a giant two thousand palm V bid that would have killed everybody or oh. some something crazy like that. Yeah, in in two thousand four, that was the first time we I really started seeing the you know uh, you know the truck bombs, the car bombs they were building, and I mean they built them. You know this they they put so much explosives in them that the damn springs and shocks would break on them. You mm-hmm. know <laughs> they'd be trying to get on base and they're like jacked up. Yeah. Yeah, not good. So, but that, but that wrapped up another deployment for you. Yep. And, and then, so then what, then what'd you do? So then stayed at team five. I made uh senior chief in 2005, picked up a task. You're making up for going to the fleet UD. Yeah. I mean, you're making yeah. rank quick. Yeah, man. Yeah. It, were, was, you, were you making rank quick for on average, above average? It seems like you are. Uh, yeah. So I would say probably above average up to chief mm-hmm. and then you know i got passed over the first time for senior chief and then made it the second time rightfully so you, mm-hmm. you don't want guys to make rank too fast you want guys to really mm-hmm. understand what they're doing and why they're doing it which takes time mm-hmm. it takes a lot of reading takes repetitions and i think when i put on chief i didn't i was undergunned mm-hmm. you know with my my training and my experience um so it was good that i got passed over my first time for senior chief you know, so anyway, so I made senior chief in 2005 and then picked up a task unit. And, you know, from there we started working up to relieve you guys. Did, when did you guys know that you were going to relieve us? I, I would say right around March, April time frame of 2006, right when you're oh, deploying so when we over. we got there. 
Yep, right around that same time frame. Yep, yep. They're like, hey, you guys are going to come in behind these guys and replace them. At what point did you guys start tracking like what was happening? You guys started getting hot and heavy in what May June time frame. Yeah, in April time frame. April time frame. Yeah, like as soon as we got there, it was getting crazy. It was right around then. In like we, all of us were just kind of thinking, hey, it's going to be like a Fallujah style clearance, Mm -hmm. and Fallujah went pretty quick. Yep. It went pretty quick. You know, there was a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of good work being done. A lot of people getting killed, U.S. soldiers getting uh, injured. Um, We thought it was going to be like that. We didn't know it was going to be what it was. Mm -hmm. You know, we hadn't gone up against uh, that type of uh, enemy before. Yeah, well, we thought it was going to be a Fallujah type thing, too. And we talked about this on on the unraveling with Daryl Cooper that, we, well, that's what we got told when we got there. Yeah. They're like, hey, you guys are going to, we're going to do Fallujah. And we're like, thank you. Thank you. This is going to be, because Fallujah at that point was a real high watermark for for just awesome, crushing, kinetic operations by yeah. the Marine Corps. And there was SEALs in there supporting yeah. and they did a great job. So we were thinking, okay, like yeah. it's on and it's yeah. going to be whatever. It's going to be two weeks or three weeks maybe of fighting and we'll get cleared through the city. But it ended up not going that way. It ended up being that there's a smart move by the prime minister, who was a Shia, to recognize that if if the Shia army, which it basically was a Shia army, went in there and did this type of crushing kinetic sweep through Ramadi, which was most which was Sunni, it would have set up Sunni versus Shia civil war. And so he said, "We're not doing that. You're going to find another way to do it." And the other way to do it was. A counterinsurgency was going into the neighborhoods and trying to pervert preserve the infrastructure and trying to keep the civilian populace as safe as you can as you do it and yet at the same time do battle with these insurgents so that's what that's what we ended up doing and I I always wonder what it was like for you guys once we started taking a lot of casualties and once we started losing guys you guys must have been like um, a little a little uh, nervous about coming oh hell yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely man no no one had been through you know that amount of uh combat like for us at that mm-hmm. point like heavy combat you know we had uh our group commodore he was out there with us doing our you know uh ore what do they call the final battle problem mm-hmm. and he's like hey man you guys are going to ramadi stand by there's a lot going on there and he was like <laughs> i mean a lot going on there and uh, and I think things really hit home for us. Um, like I remember Cowie, Cowie coming back mm-hmm. when he was shot. Mm-hmm. And like you look at these things, you're like, okay, that's manageable. Like, hey, he's shot. He's coming in through. It looks like he's going to be okay. And then shit really hit the fan for us when Mark was killed. We're like, holy shit, this is we're going into something that we like. You know, we hadn't been in before. Um. So we had, like, we dialed in our training. You guys were giving us information, telling us everything you're doing, what's working, what's not working. We had some hard conversations with our operators. Hey, man, like, someone's going to get wounded. Someone might get killed. Like, we, there's some of these things we can't control. What we can do is our rehearsals, train to this, make good decisions on the battlefield to reduce our casualty levels. But we're going to be shot at. Someone's going to get hit. That's coming. And at the end of the day, it's going to be us standing here that's going to kind of get us out of this shit. So we gotta we gotta run a tight game. We gotta be tight with what we're doing. 
Um, and the guys understood that. You know, the guys understood that. Um, but it's different when you get on the ground and you got a lot of rounds coming at you, you know? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I try to, I'm trying to think of a way to explain the difference that in my mind that you got. Like, it, it seems like but prior to that point, most of the times when guys would go out, even when guys would go out and get wounded or guys would go out and no one had been killed in Iraq yet, but even in Afghanistan, it was like, it was a mission, right? It was like a mission, a, a, an isolated mission yeah. where something had happened. Yeah. And then once that isolated mission is over, it's like you reset the clock and now, okay, we're in, in a different, it's a different mission. And so it's almost like like you do get to reset the clock. Yeah. But in Ramadi, it was like you were in the same game and the clock was freaking ticking the whole yeah. time. Yep. Yeah. And and so you guys knew that you were just going to come and, and get in the game, and it wasn't going to be one mission, and it wasn't going to be three missions. It was going to be mission after mission after mission yep. after mission after mission, and it was going to be as many days as, as you were there. Yep. And, um, yeah, I remember you guys showing up, and, and I remember actually briefing your task unit and literally saying, you guys are going to you guys are gonna take casualties, which is yep. the which was the... It was a thing I was thinking to myself, do I say that? Yeah. Is that a bad attitude? Is that a negative attitude? Is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? Or is that just the fucking truth about what's yep. going on? Yep. And I would rather have you guys thinking, okay, this is the truth, and if we can avoid it, great, but we have to be ready, and yep. we need to do everything we can, but we gotta be ready for it. Yep, yep. I remember you guys were telling us, man, we had we had our go bags ready, so if someone gets injured, our standard operating procedure in place with who's going with the guy that's injured, all of our passports, IDs, everything were in a bag. Someone gets injured, boom, they're getting on the helo with the injured guy. They're pushing out, you know, at least getting them over to Germany. Um, so we were definitely in the right mindset. Um, you know, in our first op out there, you guys helped set that up out there at Firecracker. Oh, yeah. And that was that was a good one with the Marine Corps. God, well, we set you guys up at Firecracker for your yeah. first time. What yeah. assholes. Yeah, you're like, hey, you guys are going around racetrack, and we'll just call this uh, we'll call this operation Firecracker because there's going to be some shit going down up there. God. And, yeah. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a good first shakeout, you know, in the Marine Corps up there. And, you know, the colonel that was running mm-hmm. the Marine Corps, I forget his name, yep, but yep. he was awesome. just a good. Outstanding. Good leader, just good, like, good dude, man. Um, so we set that up and it, you know, there's a, you know, our guys, our snipers killed a few guys on that one, which was good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they, I'm just remembering, there was a Humvee out in the street and he's pulling security down from us and the dude starts, you know, gets lit up with an RPG and like the Marines are dumping out of it and they're doing cover and move drills, getting back and they're taking small arms fire and we're in a position where we can't, the, you know, the enemy's in dead space. We can't mm-hmm. even do anything to support them. Um, they come back, and there was a couple, like, smaller mortars that came in that day. Not, you know, didn't hit our building, but they were out in front of us there. It wasn't too bad. They were small. Um, but it was a good it was a good shakeout for us. Like, hey, a little confidence builder whacked a couple bad guys. No one got injured. These are all good things. Mm-hmm. And then you guys start, started rolling. Then we started rolling. And uh, our first, I was on that mission. The next mission we did, I was not on. And our guys went up down the street, I think from Falcon mm-hmm. and uh, they're setting up overwatch positions and you know, they're, I think they're in the morning time and grenades come in. You know, I think they had one or two grenades come in. They yell grenades. The guys are diving down the stairs and we had two guys get fragged from those. Um, and from that point it was like, all right, 
you know, we knew what we were getting into, but then it's like now it's real. You know, now our guys are getting injured. We knew we were going to get wounded. Now you got two guys wounded with frags. And their injuries weren't bad enough. They had to get medevaced out, so they stayed. Uh, they stayed with us, you know. And it took them about three weeks to to heal up, and they they were okay. And that so was like was your right. second op. Yep, yep. That was like our second one. Check. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, you know, throughout that thing, there, you know, one of the things I realized, and it, this is further down the road, but we did this this river op, and we're going to set support, setting up a combat outpost, and we're using the marine. Riverine yeah, yeah. unit. And those right? guys were awesome. How, yeah, they're awesome. But think how funny that is. Like, hey, the Navy's supposed to deliver the Marines. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> now the yeah. Marines are delivering us. And they were good dudes, man. They were dialed yeah, they in. They were awesome. They were squared away. So they take us down river, and we had all of our deconfliction up. Hey, here's when we hit this point in the water, call up to the security Army security checkpoint up ahead, make sure everything's dialed in. Went through all the procedures, and there was obviously a disconnect. So we get close to where we're going. And um, we can see the security position off to the right, and it's on a two-story building. And we get that, and we're like, that's not good. That's a round coming over our head from the security position. And then we're like, hey, light your strobes, do your shit. And then the boat starts speeding up a little bit to get us to shore. And like, now we're all pissed because we just got shot at. And then we get the, and you're like, freaking tracers are coming over us. We're like, fucking get us to the shoreline, man. So we get to the shoreline and we're dumping out. At that point, it's a full on. Dude, I just got chills. <laughs> I just got chills because when you ta- start talking about it, you're receiving yeah. fire from friendlies, it's freaking yeah. horrible. And then it's a full on. No, we're not shooting back. Yep. But then it's full on. They think we're moved in boats coming down the river, and it's just we're dumping off in the toolies, and I'm I'm freaking hot, man. So I'm dumping in the side of the toolies, and we learned from you guys. Hey, deconflict that with your white star cluster. So I had old trusty right here. You know, and as I'm going to the shoreline, I'm popping this thing out. My weapon's flying all over the place, and I'm yelling at the AOIC. <laughs> I was like, hey, freaking call back there and get this shit deconflicted now. <laughs> and I'm pissed. I'm yelling at him. I'm yelling yeah. at him. He's like, what the F do you think I'm doing? What the F do you think I'm doing? I'm like, well, fucking hurry up, man. <laughs> and so we're yelling back and forth. I'm popping up the white star cluster. And, of course, as soon as you get the white star cluster up, it the shit stops. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't get to that damn thing fast enough. By the time I got it, I had it out in probably like less than 30 seconds. Dude, 30 but, seconds, a long time to be receiving dude, yeah. fire from yeah. American machine gunners. Yeah, we were all sucking mud, man. So it was a, it was, it was a, a good lesson learned. And one of the things with Ramadi is when you go into a, a high-stress environment, there's multiple units in the area. The likelihood of you having a blue-on-blue blue, just go up drastically. You know, you, you've done a lot of podcasts with the Vietnam shit, so mm-hmm. – when you're in those type of environments, you've got to have your deconfliction down. You can't, you can't do it enough, really. Yeah. You know? And you know, another thing I've been thinking about is, from a leadership perspective, a thing that I've been talking about all the time is, is like if if you if you work for me, and I come to talk to you. I gotta understand what your perspective is. Like, I yeah. gotta understand that yeah. so that I can, like, okay, he's reacting like this because of that, and and yeah. m- even more in depth than that, I gotta kind of know what your freaking story is. Yeah. So I can't just know your perspective. I gotta know what your story is. Yeah. Like, oh, this is Steve. He's he's been here for twenty years. He's he's done a good job. He also is known for having a bad temper. He also has some trouble at home right now. So yeah. I gotta know this stuff. Yeah. So that I can assess, like, okay, what approach am I going to take? What reaction am I going to get? Well, guess what? When you're in a combat situation, you better think about the perspective of the people that you're working with. Yeah, yeah. Because guess what? You take a kid that's 18 years old, 
he's scared shitless he doesn't he he's freaking sick of being on this post he's afraid he's gonna get killed yep. he's not being briefed by his seniors he's tired yep. he's pissed off he's got an itchy trig- trigger finger and what do yep. you think this guy's gonna do yeah he's gonna shoot at you yep. if you don't make it clear what's happening yep so it's important to remember that you the, when you you have to understand other people's perspective and understand what their story is and then you need to account for that yeah. somehow otherwise bad things happen and yep. like that's a nightmare man yeah. like if those those there's no protection on those circ boats oh, i mean no. you're if that if one one iteration of fire hit those circ boats you'd have 3 4 guys dead wounded whatever yep. Yep. maybe more yep I mean, you got 10 guys in a boat damn it's a nightmare yeah yeah, it, it wasn't good. I, and just talking about perspective, I know the Army guys, there were a couple units there that, you know, they'd been there for like eight months. I want to say like eight months. And then they get the call, hey, you're going to stay like three more months. Oh, yeah. And them dudes are wore out, man. I mean, they're pulling security out front. They're taking round RPG oh, rounds. They've lost two round. of their friends, three yep. of their friends, yep. four of their friends. They've yep. seen VBIDs go in. Yep. They've heard rumors about boats. I mean... Yeah, and look, the Army guys and the Marines that were there, the most professional, badass dudes ever, yep. ever. But there's a lot of them. Yeah. And if you, if you have, look, you can have a platoon of 40 guys and 39 of them can be the most squared away guys you've ever met and can understand everything and be calm, cool, and collected. But there's gonna be one person in there that's yep. not. Yep. Yep. And, and once one person starts shooting, bro, yeah. it's a real problem to get. Yeah. It's a real problem if you think other people aren't going to start shooting as yeah. well. That's yeah. that's what we literally get trained to do. Yeah. Oh, if there's a contact, start shooting. Help your buddy. Yeah, yeah, not uh, not good. Understandable, but uh, not not a good situation. We definitely could have done a better job on that with us. Um, yeah, it wasn't good. We were lucky no one got hit on that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had one other blue on blue that I know about. I'm convinced there's there was. I'm convinced there was probably quite a few blue on blues going on that you just don't you don't know. Um, there was because I was I was would talk about this with the brigade commander all the time. There was one. There was usually one blue on blue per day, yeah. per day. But that that wouldn't get reported, and there was one blue on blue per week that actually got reported. Yeah. Of like, hey, we were taking fire from this unit at this time. Most of them was like, hey. Hey, get those guys, cease fire, cease fire. Yeah. You know, that's friendly position. Like that happened all the, it yep. happened once a day. Yep. Once a yep. day, you know, usually at night. But the the most harrowing example of that was there was a blue on blue between Humvees. Like one Humvee at night saw another Humvee and started shooting yeah. at it. Yep. And there weren't no moves that had Humvees. Yeah. Like at least the boat, the boats yeah. weren't super common to be in the river. Even the yeah. Marine Corps boats, they weren't nope. super yeah. common to be in the river. So if they rolled out, someone goes, oh, wait a second. I don't know what this is. Yep. This might yep. be moose boats. Let's yep. shoot them. But a Humvee, like yep. that's how itchy the trigger fingers can get. And you got to understand people's perspective. Man, we were yep. so freaking paranoid about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't a good feeling, that's for sure. Jeez. And there's nothing you can't, sh- like, what are you going to do? Shoot back? Nope. Like, you yeah. can't do that. No. Yeah. You've grabbed that damn white star cluster and get that thing fired off, boy. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. We had one other blue on blue where we were out there and we were down there by Grant, Cop mm-hmm. Grant. And uh, we, we went to the unit, deconflicted everything. And, you know, our guys went out there and we're getting set up on a rooftop. And, like, damn, come on, man. 
yeah you know what wasn't good but um those high stress level areas people are getting wounded and shit people are gonna see different things um it's out there it's real you got to be careful yeah well, when Leif and I wrote extreme ownership like we didn't plan to write there's three chapters in there that are just blue on blue chapters yeah out of 12 chapters yeah so a quarter of the chapters are about blue on blue like yeah. that's we didn't think about that yeah. but that's what the reality of the situation was those are well, some of the scariest situations. you know what's crazy is when we went back to trade at and we incorporated our our laser gear oh yeah People found out how easy it is to have blue on blue, just to your point with perspectives. Like we drew that out and it it was awesome to draw that out in training. Um, Yeah. So, so after, you know, after those handful ops, we had, uh, you know, we had November 19th. Mm -hmm. And so this is putting us, you know, right before Thanksgiving and Mm -hmm. we had the whole task unit out. And so we had, uh, you know, our Krigador guys are up in the Papa sectors, our, our, our platoon is down. We're down past Grant. I think we're down past Grant mm-hmm. in that area. We're about eight blocks from those guys, half mile, mile, something like that. Maybe Juliet. Yeah. Juliet sector. Yeah. I don't remember all the sectors, but man, we're out there and things are going good. And like eight o'clock in the morning, we're set up. We got mutually supporting positions with our platoon. They got mutually support, uh, supporting positions with their platoon. Things are good. And I remember the first thing I was like, all right, this is going to be a shit show in here. You know, we had a car going around with the the hazards on, you know, mm-hmm. so they're signaling in the area. Hey, man, U.S. troops are in there. But they didn't know where we're at. We didn't have any, you know, loopholes. We didn't pound out any 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 brick or use explosives. So they had a hard time figuring out where we were throughout the whole day. But as we're sitting there, things start heating up. You know, hey, there's MAMs over, two streets over, and uh, they're all consolidating one area. Hey, they got weapons. And then, you know, hey, it's coming. We're going to get we're going to get in the mix here. And so, like, around 11 o'clock, we started calling in for our, our Gimlers, a guided multiple launch mm-hmm. rocket system. And, it, and we started getting that ready, commensurating coordinates to, to bring in rockets because it, it was different requirements. That wasn't coming from off the rails from the air, so it was easier to, to get it approved. And so as we're doing that, you know, we get a call over the, the radio, you know, that, you know, our other unit from Corregidor's hit. And we didn't know how bad they were hit, but, you know, the, the AOIC came over and was like, hey, man, Elliot's hit. He's in bad he's in bad shape, and so is Joe, you know. And we're like, oh, shit, man. And, you know, they're taking him down to the cash and shit, which wasn't good. And we're like, everyone just got a sick feeling to their stomach, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and we didn't know what had happened until after we got back, but we're like, shit, is he going to make it? He's not going to make it. But, you know, those guys were in a position. They started taking light fire. And as they're taking light fire, you know, they had rooftop jumpers in Ramadi. They'd get as close as they could, and they'd dump grenades right on top of your position. So the first thing that happened is they had a grenade dumped on their position, and Elliot gets sliced in the damn wrist pretty bad. So, you know, they're collapsing off down off the rooftop. And we had explosives up there, so the guys were clacking off explosives to, you know, move the, the rooftop jumpers away from, from their guys. So as they collapsed down into – you know, on the bottom floor, everything's still under control. There's a light volley of fire. They're calling to the other the other sniper supporting element. Hey, we're hit. We're going to call in an extract. As they're calling an extract, you know, the, the, the Iraqis come out and our unit comes out to get in the Bradleys. And, you know, they're hit with some type of white phosphorus explosive device. And I did a lot of analysis on, hey, what that was, it a roadside bomb? What was it? I can never determine what it was. But, you know, it killed, I think, Three Iraqis wounded two. Our two guys, our two SEALs were hit, critically injured. You know, so now they're pulling everyone back into the house. The Bradleys are getting out of there because it's just a total shit show. 
um, the other units fighting their way down the street to get in a position to help these guys out by this by this time. Um, and long story short, you know, everyone's in a bad position, and and, and Elliot was such a uh, is such a good dude. He's sitting there telling dudes he's cool, calm, and collect. He's got shit burning on him, you know, burning through his camis, and he's telling guys what to do to how to patch him up and do all this shit, and he's jacked up. Um, you know, and Joe, he had his legs kind of blown backwards on his lower extremities. So it's a complex situation. You know, outside still heated up, injured guys on the inside, dead guys, our own dead guys, Iraqi troops out on the street, guys fighting their ways back down. It's like a, as bad as a situation as, as you can conjure up, right? You know, they get things under control. They call in another quick reactionary force. They load these guys up, and, you know, and that's when we get the call over the radio that that those guys had been hit. Meanwhile, over in our sector, things are starting to heat up, and so we're spinning up aircraft. We're trying to get our gimblers in position to start launching, and, you know, our guys are out there, you know, laying down some A-dub fire and launching a few Carl Gustav rockets into some positions down there by us. Um, But it was just a, you know, shitty day for us. You know, the, you know, obviously the whole task unit was hit was hit hard on that. Um, wasn't good. Mm. Yeah, and, and I mean, Elliot is probably one of the most severely wounded SEALs from the Iraq War. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he's he's a freaking warrior. Yeah. But he 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 took a heavy hit that day. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, in Elliot's story, you know, that guy never quit. He never gave up on life. And um. You know, he's going through physical therapy and him and his physical therapist fall in love. And Elliot marries her. They get married. They have kids, um, which is just awesome. You know, I've seen Elliot a handful of times over the years, you know, at Bud's graduations mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, you know, just sucks that shit happened to him, man. Yeah, and, and Leif was super good friends with yeah. Elliot. And, you know, obviously we had just all high-fived on the tarmac and said goodbye. and. Yeah. And then the next thing that Leif's doing, he's down at the burn center, yep. you know, trying to trying to give support to Elliot. You know, it's yep. freaking, yeah. freaking rough, man. That shit took the uh, that took the wind out of our cell for the whole task unit. You know, Cause you're just wondering like, what the hell is going to happen? So now we got two guys uh, wounded with frags. You got Joe and Elliot with with what they got going on. And then actually, the first week we were there, you know, we had Jimmy left over from you guys. Mm-hmm. He gets he got shot. He gets a grazer. Mm-hmm. Um, Across his nipple, so yeah, things are starting to stack up, man. You know, and Elliot was a unknown. We, we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. Yeah, and, and I left October twenty first, and that was November nineteenth. So you guys yep. had only been on the ground without us for under a month. Yep, yep. And you had all this already yep. stacked up. Yep, yep. Yeah, we. And so, not to mention, in a way, you are riding in already with the mental thought of all of our casualties yep. and our lost guys. Yep. You know, yep. so you already know that this is just the way. Yeah. Yeah. We had uh you know, so we get past November nineteenth, we're kind of reorging and things are starting to to change at that point. I can't remember if it was November or December. But you know, we had one of the, the tribes out there, they had Al Qaeda come in and they killed a couple of their tribesmen and they were like, F Al Qaeda, we want to come over to the you know, U.S. side, and uh, that was a, that was a, a a big tipping point out there at Corregidor. I forget the name of the tribe out there, but the guys went out there and they're meeting up with the Sheikh and their local guys, and it was a it was a weird situation because at that point those guys were dropping mortars on yeah. Corregidor, so there's this friction. Like I ain't freaking helping these dudes out. They want to join us now. They're just you know the other day they're dropping mortars on us. You know, um, 
So that was that was that was interesting. And then uh, December time frame, we'd set up. Uh, I think it was right before Christmas. We're he- we're up there around racetrack, and uh, the Marine Corps is doing a big, huge push in through to clear out that whole area. That area was still pretty much contested when you guys were there, mm-hmm. and that was an area we'd operate in quite a bit. And so we're st- we're out there for like. I don't know, three, four days, and this is right before Christmas time. We think we're going to be out there past Christmas. And uh, a couple of events there, like the the moose, they were so good at using dead space. You know, I remember we're on a two-story building. We got Marine Corps snipers in position. We're in position. We're spread out. And uh, I go to use the bathroom, and I'm looking out this window, and there's a tank down in my corner. And a dude slips out of dead space with an RPG and, like, moose, boom. He clacks that thing off in under three seconds, melts back away. And you're like, even if I was on my gun, I don't think I'd have had enough time to, to shoot that guy. Um, we had a couple close calls in that area. You know, they had some snipers in vehicles. Mm-hmm. And so it muffled the sound. You couldn't tell mm-hmm. where they were coming from, you know. And when, uh, you know, I, I took a damn shot in through our position right at the 12 o'clock. So, you know, we got our loophole set up and a round 7.62 by 54, big one, punches all the way through the wall right at the 12 o'clock position. So the guy's dead center trying to get into – our hole where we're at. And uh, I just remember thinking, damn, man, that's whoever shot that, that's a good shot. That's not, you know, some JV dude making mm-hmm. that shot. Um, and, and as we're, I got to tell the story, I forgot about this one, but we had our country boy, old Charlie, he's out now, so I'll say his name on the net. But Charlie, we're on the, this is all in this three, four day period. And uh, we're on the rooftop. And it's the same day that I take that round in through the 12 o'clock position. And there's, Mouge doing a center peel down the street. Damn. And so, like, I'm here. Charlie's position is over here with his crew. And we got a, a pilot up overhead. And he's like, hey, you got some – you got bad guys coming down the street towards you. And, you know, Charlie's just a good old country boy. He's like, roger that, you know. And <laughs> he's like, frag out. <laughs> he dumps a frag. And it, like, hit – I don't know how he does it. He throws a frag in the blind, throws it down on the street. It hits in between where these Mouge are at. And the pilot's more excited than anyone. He's like, it's a direct hit. It's a direct hit. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like talking to Charlie. I'm like, Charlie, what'd you do? He's like, I just popped my grenade and threw it out there, you know. And it's like, roger that, dude. But, so. You guys you guys were getting aircraft overhead inside the city? Yeah, we, you know, on the day Elliot got hit, we had a, I don't know if it was a 14 or a 15. Oh, okay. Fast yeah. movers. Yeah, fast you movers. You weren't getting helos, were you? No, yeah, I don't remember having any helo support. Over. They'd <laughs> yeah. be too slow. They get shot down. Yeah, man. the yeah. helos wouldn't wouldn't come in for us yeah. uh, because of that reason. They yeah. didn't want a freaking Black Hawk down scenario unfolding, yeah. which is which would have happened. Yeah, the Apaches came in one time and they left and didn't come back. Yeah, they got they got lit up like it was crazy. It was yeah. a crazy amount of volume of fire. We were putting it in a combat outpost, and they came in. They said they wanted support. They flew in, and it was like. It was freaking crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they flew away and didn't come back. We man, things were so confusing over there. I remember being out there in positions, and uh, we had, you know, these two young ladies, and they're doing clothes. They're hanging clothes, and then this other, what looks like a lady, comes out there, and she's like laying clothes out. Um, but the third person that came out late, they're just looking everywhere. They're looking for us. Mm-hmm. And it was a dude dressed like a woman. You know, they got the garb over their head, so you can't even tell. But he's constantly looking 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 the girls are giggling because it's you know it's kind of mm-hmm. funny to them i was like it took me a long time to put that uh that picture together what transpired and i couldn't do it while i was in the field you know i was like it was just weird i'm like all right that had to have been a dude trying mm-hmm. to find our positions dressed as a woman um and these dudes were just 
they were cagey, man. We were out there in the Papa sector on another uh, mission, and it's me and another dude, and we're set up in in the hole. And uh, and I remember I'm looking, and a guy's looking at, looking directly at us, but he's got like a three or four year old girl right next to mm-hmm. him. But he's looking in our direction. I'm like, that shit ain't right. But he's got no gun. He's like two, three hundred yards away. I'm keeping my eye on him, watching, watching, watching. Nothing happens. Me and me and the other guy rotate out of the hole. He gets in there, and shit. Five minutes after he gets in the hole, we just started, you know, cut, 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 cut into the hole, man. Mm-hmm. And like I'm yelling, "Dude, roll out of there!" You know, and he rolls out, but there's shit flying everywhere, you know. And we're like, "Damn, that was close. Lucky that dude didn't get hit," you know. Yep. But so, that guy was spotting with his daughter. Yeah. If it even was his daughter. Yeah. yeah. Or yes, yeah. spotting with a child. Spotting. That he grabbed out and said, yep. Yep. "Hold my hand. Come over here." Boom. Yeah. And if the guy had a gun. I'd have felt comfortable taking the shot, but he doesn't have anything. So you're mm-hmm. just like, is this just more weird shit going on over here? There's so many weird things going on. Yeah, it's hard to piece it all together. Weird, inexplicable things that are happening all the time. Yep. And they all look freaking crazy suspicious. Yep. I mean, we had a, a ISR asset one time over, go flying overhead, like it was a fast mover or something. And he's like, hey, we got we got a vehicle pulling up. Like we got a vehicle. So there, everyone's looking at this vehicle. I'm looking at this vehicle on the ISR screen. And like it's this looks super suspect. They're stopping. They're looking around. They get out. Yeah. Open the trunk. All right. Oh, they're opening the trunk. They're opening the trunk. You know, everyone's yeah. on this mode. And then, uh, all right, they're reaching in. They're reaching. They're pulling something out. They're pulling something out. They're pulling out. A, they're pulling out an object right now. And sure enough, like everyone's all excited and thinking this is like we need to drop a bomb on this thing. And sure enough, they got out a jack out of the thing and jacked yeah. up their freaking yeah. car and yeah. changed the tire and put it all away and left. Yeah. Yep. And like they tracked them, they they left. They weren't. It wasn't like a a setup, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and man, it's so difficult to to decipher what's go- really happening. Yeah. And yep. you get better at it. Yeah. But it's a tough war to fight. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. a tough war to fight. You know, like I know when we turned over to you guys, you always talked about the hey, it was a good shoot, bad result. Mm-hmm. Hey, that what they're doing is lined up with the enemy procedures. You build the story and you make the best decision you can with what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just to your point, it's actually legitimate, but you don't know that, you know. Yeah, well, that was something I, I learned and stole from the first of the five oh six because yeah. we had or they, they we when we were when we first got there and we were over with them and they had some one of their guys shot and killed somebody and they were like the person was out. I forget what suspicious activity they were doing, but it was like they were digging a hole in the side of the road yeah. and they shot, killed the guy. And then they sent a team out there to inspect and he was whatever, uh, you know, he had, he was planting the plant. I don't know what he was doing, but yeah. it was something that it was not the activity that, that the shooter thought it was. Yeah. And I was talking to their ops officer and he was like, Hey, you know what? This is a, this is a good shot, bad result. Meaning the the guy, our soldier was following the proper yeah. rules of engagement and it turns out that the result of that shot is bad. Even yeah. though the shot was good, the result was bad. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, it bothers me so much when I hear people talk about, you know, these, uh, the U.S. military, you know, causing all these civilian casualties. Man, we go through such great lengths to prevent oh, civilian casualties yeah. and, and yeah. put our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marine at such risk yeah. to prevent yeah. those, casual, those civilian casualties from happen, happening. But... It does happen. That's the reality. Like it's yeah. going to happen, and that's why if you're going to go to war, you better be ready for that. Yep. yep. You, you can't go to war thinking, "Oh yeah, don't worry, we won't kill any civilians." It's like, no. If you go to war, you're killing civilians. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think. I know in the other deployments I did over there, we started doing a lot of collateral damage assessments mm -hmm. before we did anything. I don't remember doing that when we were in Ramadi because like, we weren't really dropping bombs and there was mostly just ground mm -hmm. um, ground units handling business, you know. Um, but anyways, that, that, that became a factor later on for sure. Everything was a CD, you know. Yeah, I mean, even even... Even when I relieved you in Baghdad, we started looking at collateral damage in terms of like breaching. Yeah. Like, okay, we're going to breach this building. What's the collateral damage? Could we hurt someone? Yeah. Can we, are we going to ruin this? You know, how many, how many windshields are we going to, or how many windows in this neighborhood are we going to yeah. blow out yeah. with this explosive breaching charge? And yeah. what good does that do for our overall strategic mission here if we're the assholes that come in every night and blow up everyone's house and windows, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, we're not cool. Yeah. So sometimes it was like, oh, okay, well, maybe we shouldn't explosively breach. Well, then how are you going to execute the mission? At what risk does it put the troops at? Because yeah. the safest way to do a, a direct action mission is to explosively breach the yeah. shit out of them. Yeah. 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 Shock everyone in the building and like, okay, cool. So there's other tactics that we had to develop to, to mitigate the risk. But what I'm saying is we were taking risks for yeah. sure to try and mitigate, and not just us, Every when I say we, I mean the US yeah. military at large mitigates risk of civilian casualties by risking our own yeah. casualties. That's yeah. what we do. And and even as much as we mitigate them, we can't mitigate them all, and yeah. civilians are gonna die. So you need to think about that. Yeah. So how did, when you guys had that horrific incident with Elliot and Joe, then what? Then, like, how did the rest of the deployment? And, and, and I know that yeah. you guys, so one thing that's really positive is, and part of this transition, I don't even know if you knew this, so we were doing everything we could. We, we that whole Sons of Ambar, and yeah. that whole thing started when we were there. Yep. And, and then w the other thing we were trying to do is we were trying to get the Iraqi police force built up, oh. and we just started to get it built. Yep as we left and so you guys got the benefit yep. of the Iraqi police force all of a yep. sudden the local Iraqi police force was respected they yep. were manned they had they they understood the neighborhoods they were tribal most of the guys yep. were tribal guys yep. and so all of a sudden over a very quick period of time the the violence went down a lot yo absolutely absolutely i remember the Police became a huge factor. I think it was late January, early February for us. They came in. They were setting up their own police stations and combat outposts. But, man, them dudes were targeted by AQ. I mean, they had the head police chief. They're, they're trying to car bomb him and his entire family. Mm -hmm. they, they eventually got him. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, was, it was rough. And it definitely settled down everything. I would say in, by the you know mid-January mid to February, somewhere in there is where things really settled in good, where yeah. – Hey, the attacks are going way yep. down. You know, we're still getting the occasional IED. You know, they had a mm -hmm. you know an army uh, civil affairs. They're going down to freaking uh, Falcon, and boom, they hit an IED, killed all four people. Oh yeah, that was, was that was Travis Patrick Quinn, and he's was a freaking epic guy. Yep. That and that was a Major McClung, the the female yeah. Marine Corps officer who yep. was just because the, they were there when I was there. Yeah. And they were both just freaking awesome, awesome people, yep. just awesome. Unbelievable! That was such a freaking horrific no, situation. Horrible. Yeah, it's absolutely horrible. But things definitely uh, died down there towards you know January, February time frame. It was in a good place. You know. Then you redeploy. You came back to America. 
Came back to America, and boom, I'm going to work for Jocko Willing <laughs> at training. <laughs> Rolled into trade debt, man. Yeah. And that was um, that was awesome. Yeah, That was awesome. Did you did you volunteer to come there, or what happened? How'd you Yeah, end up? so before deployment, I know uh, I was working with our group CMC, and they were doing team-level detailing. So he came in, and he's like, hey, man, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, hey, I want to stay out. I want to stay in the area. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, what do you think about going to trade? I was like, so keep me in the area? He's like, yeah. I was like, hell yeah, I'll do yeah. it. So roger that, man. And, it, and it, I was looking forward to it, you know. And you know, the the guy I relieved over there, BG, is just a good dude, smart, and I think he set up a good foundation uh, with with what he had. So I inherited a really a, a good product. Yeah. You know, he was doing good shit. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was it was legit. And then yeah. when you showed up, it was awesome. Um, and then, I mean, what was what was your experience at Trade at like in terms of see now this is interesting yeah. you know I told you that like the seeds uh, of my experience and knowledge yeah. were watered heavily and yeah. fertilized heavily yeah. but I was young yeah. so now you get to experience this in a much in a much more powerful environment because the training we were conducting was so much more advanced yeah. Yeah. Then and also you were more advanced and you were a combat veteran of multiple yep. combat tours and you were a senior enlisted guy So man, it was just it was awesome. <laughs> it was a good experience But I'll tell you what I went in there and I'm like holy it's different when you're Responsible for a live fire range Versus you're going through a live fire range mm-hmm. And so there was there was a lot to that, you know the, the most stressful thing for me during land warfare was doing all the live fire training because mm-hmm. there was definitely a lot of opportunity for someone to get injured oh, or wounded, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? And so it was good. And getting up there and teaching these things, you just learn so much more. I mean, the pipeline should be, we need guys in instructor positions, but you need them at Bud. You also need them over at our trade at. Yep. Um, if there was a way to split that to where they do 15 months at Bud's, 15 months yeah. of trade, it would be ideal. There's just, it, it, it's not practicable, you know. Um, but going to trade, it was an eye opener. And I really started, you know, I'd say around 2003, I started, 2003, 2004, started reading quite a bit. Started, you know, I, I never heard of the last 100 yards. You know, we didn't have a portal with libraries. We didn't have guys going around. If you went in a training cell, you might see it. But I really started building up a good uh, reading block. And I remember talking to you when we were at Trade It and we were reading, I think I just went through um, the Maneuver Warfare Handbook. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I, I'm thinking these things. And then you read it and it reinforces what you were thinking. Mm-hmm. So like now your confidence just goes through the roof. And I think one of the things we did good in, in, in NSW continues to do this is developing our future leaders. I mean, think about when you and I came up. We didn't, right. There was no portal. There was no none of the stuff. We've got stuff hanging, hey, you want to be a good tactical leader, Leader, go read your doctrine, go read these books here, and that is going to boost you up. And the guys that are hungry, they're going to go in there and read it. The guys that are you know, a little bit lackadaisical and they don't want to do it, they're going to meet the minimum standard. Mm-hmm. But you definitely need to have something out there to where you know, your high performers are hungry. Give it to them so that they can become uh, you know, a better leader. So I think we did that good, but just going back to land warfare, I think you know the, the stress levels they were high during live fire training. The field training exercises we did were just badass. We're b- building you know little wood huts all over the damn place on those ranges, and uh, I think the guys, you know, I mean shit, we had a thermal camera out there at one point, and we're videotaping the guys coming in. So when they come back and go through their debrief. We're going. This is what you all look like. Mm-hmm. Here's what we're telling you. Here's what you look like, and the people see what they look like. Like, oh damn, check Roger that. You know, and they're making some adjustments. 
but I thought it was good. I, I was definitely learning a lot while I was there. I wish I had done that um, that assignment earlier on in, in at least a Team 5 training, so it would have, it would have boosted me up a lot, you know. What did you see? What did you notice from the – I mean, the crazy thing about it is you get to – it's the best la- – I, 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 I truly think this. I think that that land warfare training – is the best leadership laboratory in the world. I think that's it. I don't think there's a better leadership laboratory where you can see leadership in action. I really don't. Because you get the whole dynamic. Someone might say, well, you know, in in some business or in some, you know, uh, bureaucratic situation or some boardroom, you you get that part too because you got the mission planning that's taking place. And there's no gunfire going on during the mission planning but you get the stress and you get the people that have to make decisions you get the team arguing with each other and you get the different personalities that are coming out and so you get to watch all this and you get to learn and you get to see how people react and you get to see human nature over and over and over again and you get to see one platoon do it and then you see another platoon do the same thing the same I mean we had all those little uh pet nicknames for all the different <laughs> maneuvers that we yeah. knew that our mooge was going to do. Yep. And we so you'd see a platoon go through the octopus. You'd see a platoon go yeah. through the corner of death, right? Yeah. You'd see the 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 trail of tears. You'd get to see how they would react. And you'd see what a good leader would do. And you'd yeah. see how that would turn the platoon yeah. and all of a sudden they'd be able to get things together and survive and make it happen yeah. and do a good job. And you'd see bad leadership, and yeah. you'd go, "Well, these guys are just—it's going to be a suffer fest." Yeah. And so that that leadership laboratory was just unbelievably powerful, and and really, it was it was powerful for for us as instructors because we were detached and we got to watch it. Look, the troops obviously get a ton out of it too, yeah. but getting to see it over and over again was just ridiculous yeah. amount it, of learning. One of the things I. I really respected about land warfare. You got to see people's true character. Mm-hmm. When they're coming through there, they're up late at night, you're under a lot of stress. Whatever you're thinking in your head or whatever type of attitude you have, good or bad, that's coming out. And you really get to see what you're working with with your platoon, you know. Yeah. And that's a good precursor because when you go to combat, if you end up going on uh, deployment and you end up getting in real combat, you're going to see that that's the only place it's going to come out even more yep. is when you go into combat, people start acting crazy. Yeah. Like, and I'm not talking about, hey, in a gunfight. No, I'm yeah. talking about on a day-to-day basis, you start seeing what their character is. Yep. They, do they want to operate? Do they want to hide? Do they, like, you get to see, start to yep. see all that stuff, yeah. and you'll see it. You'll see it out in the desert in training. You'll see people start to crack, yeah. and you'll also see people step up, and you'll see people start to lead, and you see people that are tough. And when you'd see those good leaders coming through, and look, the good leader could be anyone in the platoon, from an E5 to the to the platoon or the task unit commander, anyone in between. Yeah. You have one good leader or two good leaders in there, and they're gonna do a good job. Yep. They can be countered by bad leadership. So you can have a good leader that gets countered by someone that's an ego jackass, yep. and, and they that ego jackass can actually ruin everything. Yeah. Sometimes if you just have one good leader that's the LPO of one platoon, and he's a really good solid leader, he can carry the whole task unit. Now if you put a jackass senior chief in there, or a jackass chief, or a jackass lieutenant, he can, he can override two or three squared away leaders. 
because he's a knucklehead and yeah. doesn't want to listen and wants to do everything his way and wants to, you know, let his ego run the show. It's a freaking disaster. Yeah. Well, we saw. It's funny. We saw quite a few good leaders come through. Probably the most rewarding thing, having guys come through training. Is they're coming through. They're just starting out as a unit. You know, they're figuring some things out if they haven't been through another block. And they come in and the growth that you see, that you're providing as instructors, mm-hmm. you know, as a cadre, as a unit. And you see them start here, and by the time they finish after that three, four weeks, they're they're up here. 100%. The growth is is tremendous. And guess what? The harder the training, the harder the training, the more the guys appreciate it, the more growth you have. Yep. Right? That's what I physically saw happening with, with our, with our uh, formation. Yeah, because it was miserable. Yes. It was freaking miserable. Yeah, it was yeah. freaking hard. When you're carrying out, I mean, we'd if, if a platoon did a bad job, yeah. they'd have 12 <laughs> down men. They'd be carrying out 12 down men yeah. for three or four kilometers before they could yeah. finally get a helicopter in there to pick up and take the wounded. Then they still got to walk. The rest of them got to walk yeah. out. Like when you got your ass kicked, you got your ass kicked. Yeah. And it would sometimes... You know that was a, another big difference when a when a leader when the leadership in the task unit or in the platoon would say would come back and say hey we screwed up we better fix it oh man yeah they would fix it yep. if the if they came back and said oh Tradet's cheating or Tradet this is this this training is unrealistic if they said that they wouldn't improve yeah and they just fall apart yeah but when yep. they say hey we spent too much time on target or hey we didn't cover and move yeah or hey we didn't give the priorities correctly or we didn't have when they came back and said that and recognized yeah. it and fixed it they'd come out and a good task unit by the end our trade at guys couldn't yeah. keep them under wraps like we, yeah. they would get the the yeah. trade at guys would get their asses kicked because yeah. there's because there's 40 of the bad yeah. i mean 40 yeah. of the of the platoon guys so they could freaking they when they would do good cover move you can't stop them no they're yeah. unstoppable yeah yeah well, that's what I always tell people. Hey, man, the, the people that utilized the laws of combat did good. Cover and move, kept things simple, good communications across the board, prioritized and executed, stayed detached from what was going on, and, and the guys that utilized decentralized command where they're allowing fire team leaders and squad leaders to make decisions at their level because you can't be everywhere as the boss making these decisions. you got to train your you got to train your your leaders up, put up some guardrails, get them to where they need to be, and then you, you let them start making decisions, you know. And that, that's probably like one of the most beautiful things with land warfare. Guys are going out there, they're learning these things, and they're slowly building their confidence to where when they get to the field training exercise week and they start making some of these decisions, then it's even that much more of a confidence builder, you know. It's weird because you can you – can, I mean, look, I would explain this stuff ad nauseum, <laughs> right? Ad nauseum. I mean, I would explain it and explain it. I'd say, look, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. But sometimes, man, it would just take like it happening to someone. Yep. yep. And, and being, and, and me sitting there like literally running over to a fire team leader and saying, hey, what are you doing? Those guys are freaking running right now. You got to get them down. You got to put down cover fire for them. Yeah. And them going, oh, wait a second. I get it. Yeah. And then you'd see this light come on yeah. or I'd run up to a freaking task unit commander and be like, where do you want everyone to go right now? What do you want everyone to do? And he'd say, we need to get out of here. Okay, wh- what direction? Yeah. I said, are you going to be able to move everyone out of here? No. Can you think your fire teams can start moving? Yes. Tell them where you want them to move. Just tell them all and they'll start making it happen. Yeah. And you could see the little like, 
all of a sudden the little light would come on. But sometimes it would just take that. Like you have to live, you almost have to live through it. Yep. So in some cases, some guys would be like, yeah, got it. Cover yeah. move, check, yeah. got it. Because you learn cover move day one or yeah. day one in the teams, you yeah. learn to cover move. Yeah. Yeah. You better freaking cover and move. Yeah. yeah, sometimes it took guys a little while to figure out how to utilize the train correctly. It's, you know, because the, the terrain was a was a factor. Rockies, small wadis, um, uneven terrain, which was hard to maneuver in, especially when you got a down man. Uh, there was something there too. When, terrain? Terrain? Is the is the next level yeah, right? Yeah. The next level is oh, I don't just know how to cover and move. I just don't know simple. I just don't know prioritize yeah. and execute. I don't just know decentralized command. I know how to utilize the terrain to my advantage. Yeah. That's the next level up. That's the next level up when you yeah. realize oh, I can get a little high ground. Oh, there's a little dead space. Oh, there's a ravine over here. I can get the guys yeah. out. That's the next level. And we tried to teach it in that method. You know, yeah. you start off doing IADs in a flat, you know, spot, yeah. and then all of a sudden you start to get use terrain. But when the leadership, when the when the when the whole task unit, when a fire team leader knows how to use terrain, and then all the fire team leaders know how to use terrain, all of a sudden we're in a whole different spot. Yeah, we're in a whole different spot. So yes, the terrain is so freaking critical. Yeah, well, yeah. get, get a little bit of high ground. Yeah. Yeah, we had guys down in that micro terrain doing good things. Yeah, tough stuff on the body. Uh, and we had, I mean, we had rain, we had rangers out there helping us, oh, which man. was awesome. Dude, those guys they brought a lot. And the, and the rangers we had out there, they had all kinds of. Uh, both of them came from leadership assignments within their their ranger unit, and they had a lot of reps, man. They brought a lot to the table. They had all kinds of oh, good yeah. info, man. We were eating it. We were just like on standby. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Keep yeah. it coming. It, it's always it's one of the 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 worst one of the bad things. One of the worst things about the the SEAL teams yeah. is we don't come from an infantry background. Yeah, you know, we're not soldiers. Yeah. We're not infantry. We're we're so we don't have that skill set. Yeah. And you can get lucky, and you can get brushed up against it. I got, I got at least brushed up against it doing ARGs with the Marines and being like, okay, I at least understand what an infantry platoon is. Yep. Because if you're a regular SEAL, new guy, you don't know what the hell an infantry platoon is. You have no yeah. idea. You think a platoon is 16 guys, you know, in, yeah. a, in a platoon. But, but yeah, so, those, so in the Army, you have that infantry background. In the Marine Corps, you have that infantry background. It's so helpful. So having like Rangers out there with us who are freaking great guys, yeah. by the way, yeah. um, and they bring that that infantry background and and, was, and yeah. they were stoked too. They were yeah. they freaking lo- they they loved our training. Yeah, you know? they were awesome. The, both those guys had a lot of reps in uh, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And I know where the the one guy came in and he was really tightening up uh, our helicopter procedures. Um, just you know, with you covered so much, you're like, damn, I didn't even think about that. You know, all my deployments were uh, to Iraq at that point. But yeah, good dudes, man. Did you read about face back then? Oh yeah, so I read it <laughs> when I got to uh, trade it. You know, you had that as your Bible. And, uh, <laughs> damn, what was the guy's name? I had him in here. Uh, there was another colonel that uh, he's got a page on four. Page uh, four something in uh, in about face, but the the guy was just a beast. But oh, he, Glover Johns, that's him, yeah. man, dude. That guy had so many good nuggets on yeah, the page did. and a half he had. Yeah, 
But I remember reading through that, page 402, Hackworth, yeah. and he just has some nuggets in there. He's got like 15 things that he covers, you know, strive to do small things well, yeah. be a doer and a self-starter. Um, you know, the one that, that I always hit home with me because I think it's so true is, uh, what is it, the two, you know, in order to be a good, two good characteristics of a leader is you've got to be a good communicator and you've got to be a good uh, writer. Mm-hmm. And, and the writing piece comes into play as you start moving up in your upper level leadership and management positions because you're writing evals for the guys. Mm-hmm. And I remember being at Trade It and you were kind of like, hey, man, if you guys bring me an eval and the thing requires minor or requires major surgery, I'm only going to be able to do so much to it to make it better. But you bring me an eval that's dialed in pretty damn tight, I'm going to get it over the line. It's going to be a beautiful piece of work. It's going to be a piece of art. <laughs> and you were getting into people's shit on it. You were, you were not a happy camper because there was like all these evals coming yeah, yeah, in. Yeah. But it's so true when you think about it. Hey, how do we take care of our people? A way is in through our evaluation system, making sure – the right people are getting promoted and through awards. Those all require require some type of writing skill. Bro, one freaking <laughs> series, one year of evaluations, probably the first year that you were there. Yeah. The shit that you guys turned in, and I had no choice. I didn't get them till too late. Yeah. And I just had to I just had to do nine days in my office just rewriting every single Damn. one of them. Yeah. And that's why the next year, early, yeah. I said, Hey, everyone. Write me the eval for your best guy, and then yeah. I brought you guys. You, you were in this group, right? I brought I you guys so. into yeah. the into the conference room yeah. and posted them up on the screen. <laughs> I, made, I made you guys read your sentences yeah. to me, and you guys, you guys were just like, you know, like the very first sentence that each yeah. guy read. It would just be like, uh, "This blah blah," just a yeah. shit sentence, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'd be like, "All right." How does that sound? Like <laughs> not good, but that worked so well yeah. because then everyone realized, oh, I should actually read this stuff. I should actually read it aloud to myself. I should actually see if these sentences make sense. And it just helped everybody so, so much. It helped me yeah. because now yeah. you guys were all turning in squared away stuff, which then I could, what to, what would you say, turn into a piece of art? <laughs> I yeah. don't know if yeah. I could quite go that far. I believe in quotations, a piece of art. <laughs> Jocko Willink. <laughs> We got an artist on the net over here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Glover Johns from Hackworth, too, and he wrote a book called The Clay Pigeons of St. Lowe, which we covered on this podcast. And it's written, it's hard to tell because he wrote it in the third person talking about himself as if he was a different person, but it's about him. And it's a great book, and it gives all kinds of leadership lessons as well. Um, One of the things, I want to camp out real quick on on Hackworth. One of the things is I was reading through that book, and it took me, I think, six months to get through it. It's a big book. It's a big book. But it really reinforced, you know, when you're coming in as, as a leader at any level and you're new to that leadership assignment, you're always uncomfortable. So you're trying to figure out, am I making the right decision? And when you're going through and you're reading some nonfiction that pertains to your field, your field craft, it just reinforces what you're thinking. And I remember after reading About Face, the Maneuver Warfare Handbook, I came out and I was like, damn, a lot of these decisions I was uncertain about, it reinforced that I was making the right decision. Mm-hmm. So how do you become better? You read that stuff before you get in those leadership positions. Yep. And who's responsible for for distrowing that out? The leadership. You know, if you're in a leadership position out there, what are you doing to develop your future leaders? You have people that want to want to take your your job. What are you doing to develop them? And you yep. look across the world like we got COVID everywhere. You can get in a car accident. Who's the next person in line that's going to take your job? Who is that person? And what are you doing to develop them? 
you know, we've gotten way better over the years in the military and NSW doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you think about that, it's pretty powerful, you know? Yeah, dude, JP sent, because I gave, I gave uh, JP a copy of, at least I think I gave it to him. Anyways, he got a copy of the new edition of About Face with the yeah. forward in and everything. And so he's like sending me highlighted passages. <laughs> and he's, and he's yeah. not happy. Yeah. And he's like, bro. I cannot believe that you didn't make me read this oh, when I yeah. was a you know when I was yeah. 23 or 22. Yep. And I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. Like I'm a horrible leader because yeah. there's so much information in there. Oh man, yeah. And I just yeah. ripped it off yeah. wholesale. Yeah. Wholesale, yeah. just ripped yeah. it off. Yeah. And and it's like why didn't I share that? Yeah. And and p- part of me was I just didn't think team guys had any desire to read anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. Cuz most team guys didn't. Yeah. Most team guys are like, mm, yeah, beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I did with my about face when I got back over to, when I got over to team seven, I gave it out to one of our younger tactical. See, that's legit. I'm like, here. He's like, that's a big book. I'm like, yes, you need to read that. And, did, then, did, and then when you're done with it, you need to pass it on to someone else. Do you think he read it? I don't know, man. See, it's such dude, a big book, It's man. such a big book. I don't know. It's good. It, and here's the thing. We always talk about making hard calls. You look at those decisions he made in there. Mm-hmm. Those were – he was going to be hated. Mm-hmm. He knew that going in. He didn't care. He knew what the right thing to do was. He made the right calls. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he wind up saving a lot of lives with his guys from it. Yeah, you know? well, see, there's a little nuance there in what you said. Yeah. He had to make hard calls. He knew that he would be hated in the short term. He yeah. knew that there would yeah. be resistance. Yeah. But he knew in the end – he would be admired and he would be loved yeah. because he would be able to keep his guys alive and he knew that, that what, what, what would shine through is the fact that he cared about his men. Yep, That's what would shine yeah. through. And believe me, when we had uh, General Mukayama on, I was so uh, not really worried, but yeah. like going into it, here I'm going to meet a guy that worked for freaking Hack. Yeah, and, wow. wh- and what is he gonna say yeah. like is he gonna be like well you know hack made himself out to be a little bit more than he was or yeah. hack talked a good game but that really wasn't the guy he was there was, i didn't know what he was gonna say yeah but dude he was just 100 percent, 100 percent. hack was yeah. the man Damn. And, and he was a company commander when he when when hack was a battalion commander i mean that's Damn. that's the yeah. that's the leadership wow. so he you know what well, you know and i said did you know who hack was he goes everybody knew who hack was Damn. Yeah. and like that attitude yeah. And, and, and I said, you know, what, what, how did you, what was it that made, he goes, everything, like the way he carried himself, yeah. the way he looked, the way he had his, he had his hair, he was like, he had his head shaved and he just looked like this guy's just freaking squared, squared away. away from yeah. day one. Yeah. But so you're going to make, cause, cause one thing I don't like, and Leif and I have talked about this on the podcast is, uh, the someone thinking well, you know, I'm in charge, so I'm gonna be hated and that's okay It's like no, that's actually not okay. Yeah. If you're hated by your troops. That's a freaking problem yeah. That means yeah. you're doing something wrong for your troops for to take over a, a, a unit or take over a team or take over a position and Say all right, we're gonna start making some adjustments now one thing that's different too in Hack's case when he took over the 439th is he took over a disaster, a known yeah. disaster. Yeah. He had to come in there and kind of swing oh. the hammer a little bit. Oh, he had to bring out the flamethrower, man. Yeah, he, he had, had to, to bar- do some barbecuing. He had to do some barbecuing. <laughs> but 
he also eventually, you know, anyone would do anything. You know, like talking to General Mukuyama, those guys yeah. would do absolutely anything for Hack, anything. Yeah. And yeah. even the freaking, yeah. even the draftees would do anything for yeah. Hackworth. Like yeah. they loved him. Yeah. And it's kind of like you said earlier, when people go through hard training, they appreciate it and they love the training more. When you are disciplined with your troops, when you're hard on your troops, they yeah. respect you yeah. and they respect themselves. Yeah. And you start to get this camaraderie that you need. You know, I think of Hackworth, I think of, a, like you said, a dude showing up, right haircut, right uniform. Just everything he's communicating lines up with his actions. Mm-hmm. And the guys just had to been like, damn, does this guy do anything wrong? <laughs> you know what I mean? Does he sleep? What's going on with this dude? And when you look at that, you're like, hey, my margin of error is going to be small because this, yep. this dude's doing everything he's saying. Yeah. You know, it's uh, powerful. That's, Leadership by example. That's right? how you got to roll. Yeah, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. What? Anything else from trade debt? No, man. We're, no, it's all good. Christmas that's, in the desert. Christmas in the desert. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember uh, Nyland, man. We we were wrapping up, and we had a. It was a good run. The troop came through. Good energy levels, and we're getting ready to go home. And uh, you came and you said, "That wasn't bad, guys." And I was like, "All right." Let me put that through my enlisted decryption device up here. What Jocko's saying is, good job. Have a good Christmas. He loves you all. And you're like, oh, cook, cook. You gave a little chuckle out of there. <laughs> so I got you kind of being huggy bear there right before Christmas. <laughs> the spirits were good. <laughs> uh, so I said that wasn't bad. and That's yeah. that's as good of a compliment as you're going to get out of me. Yes, yeah. I had to translate it for him. But, yeah. Let's check. Good. Maybe compliments weren't my strong point. <laughs> They were not. <laughs> uh, I got some recordings of some of those debriefs. Do you really? Somebody's somebody's hooking me up. Uh, one yeah. of one of my buddies. He's he just texted me a, a, a couple weeks ago. He's like, "Hey, I, somebody gave me recordings of your debriefs." Yeah. He's yeah. like, "Me, you're gonna want to hear them." I'm like, "Chad." Yeah. yeah. I remember being on target out there, and uh, this unit was maneuvering. I forget what siphon we we're at, but. One of the guys' communication is so long. Mm-hmm. Hey, I need you to grab your guys and move to the mountain like in Black Hawk Down. You're like, what the hell? Why don't you, you know, what are you talking about, man? It's just crazy talk, you know? Yeah, I would but, just uh, hit record on my voice recorder yeah. during those things and play it back for people. Like, <laughs> listen to yourself. Yeah. I'd be like, hey, you need to keep your stuff a little clearer, more cl- simple, clear, and concise. I was yeah. keeping it simple. Oh, really? Listen to this. Yeah. Here's you telling your troops peel right yeah. hey i need everyone to blah 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 blah, yeah, blah. freaking yeah. ridiculous yeah yeah freaking totally ridiculous yeah yeah that was crazy so then where'd you go yep so after that headed back over to uh or headed to team seven and at that point i'd already made master chief so i was going and there's the ops master chief senior enlisted guy and then i uh, got pegged to do so i went back there in what uh october 20 2009 mm-hmm. october 2009 just finished up the senior enlisted academy, and they're like, hey, this big one, they're trying to pump as many people as they can over in Afghanistan. So I got hit with a joint individual augment, sure. headed out to a small outstation out in Afghanistan. I was the senior enlisted leader out there, which was a good experience. It was the first time at that point where I really worked in a joint environment. So the, my boss was a full-bird colonel. He was SF dude, good guy. I learned a lot from him. He'd been in like 32 years. He was prior enlisted and then yeah. worked his way up through the ranks, just salty old dog. Um, and then we had, you know, the Army, Air Force, uh, Marine Corps out there, everyone. And then we had, you know, quite a few military officers from different countries. Mm. You know, we had Afghanistan and a few other surrounding countries in there. Um, and and our, our primary goal was 
to Fusion Intel, and then you know we had some uh, reconnaissance platforms up overhead, and the, you know they were doing their doing their stuff in some other countries. But it was good, and uh, that was the first time I really appreciated our special forces unit. And I was working with another senior enlisted leader. He was in another country, and he's like, "Hey, man, here's what we got going on." And me and him would communicate back and forth, you know like once or twice a week. And he's like, hey, I got my SF battalion. We're training up this. And he's like, here's our numbers. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. You guys have this many, you know, ODAs over there, and you've trained up, you've man-trained and equipped 2,000 of these soldiers? He's like, yeah. And I was like, holy shit, dude, that's a big <laughs> deal, man. That's like our formation NSW in action over there, you know? Yeah, yeah and, like by, by that you mean all of the West Coast SEAL and all support yeah. in action. <laughs> yeah. And so these guys are training up these guys, and they're going in, and they're fighting the Taliban. And he's got his ODAs doing it. I was like, holy shit, that's uh, pretty badass, man. Um, so it was a good deployment. Like, not much going on outside the wire. The area I was in was actually like, yeah, I was like, cool, I just got out of Nyland. Then I go over there, and I'm like, damn, I'm back in Nyland. The terrain is exactly, <laughs> exactly the same. The same. Uh, I, there was some hub-hub about us losing our desert training facility. Someone else was going to take it over. Oh, yeah. And I made these, this slideshow. Did I ever show you that? I don't think I made I a slideshow, yeah. and it was pictures of Afghanistan and pictures of our desert training facility side-by-side, yeah. side, and you literally couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me if you think that this isn't the greatest training site for for us to have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyways, that was a, a short deployment. At that point, I'm the ops master chief, but I'm deployed. Come back uh, six months later. I got home right before July. And then as I'm back at the team, the team's going through unit level training. And then we're prepping up for our deployment in uh, March time frame. And that was a weird deployment. Like we winded up. Some of us wound up back over in Iraq, and so this is 2010, 2011 time frame now, and we're breaking down Iraq. Yeah, but then we're also, yeah, we're waiting for our four platoons that are still in San Diego to get over to Afghanistan, and they're going over to do village stability operations. Mm -hmm. So, get over to Iraq, and that you know that deployment, um, it was a long one. It was like eight, eight and a half months long. Um, a lot of you know, the unit we were working with had all the bells and whistles, and it was, it was good, man. So a lot of good things happening. Um, our guys wrapped up quite a few bad guys, and uh, it, it was it was a good learning experience. It was, it was the first time I was in, you know, a professional jock setting where you're actually seeing everything unfold in real time, all the assets you can imagine. Um, you know, and our guys did some good targeting. They got a couple of bad guys that have been – after for four or five years mm. so it was good then came back off that deployment and then took over as the team you know command master chief so explain what a team command master chief is well our primary job is to initially is to set up the platoons you're working with the you know the top five of the team the commanding officer the xo your operations department you know the senior listed in there and the and the ops boss um and your primary functions are manning, training, and equipping the SEAL team. And you're the senior enlisted leader um, and tactical advisor to the commanding officer. Your primary goal is training up all these, you're not training, uh, educating and training, you know, your uh, your platoon chiefs and task unit, uh, senior enlisted advisors, and junior officers. And so you take over this position and you, you start building platoons. Yeah, yeah. And I always used to say about platoons, let's say there's a magic number. Let's say the number number is 20. Yeah. 
in your top four in a platoon, so your LPO, your assistant platoon commander, your platoon commander, and your platoon chief, that number's got to equal 20 when you add them all together. Yeah, yeah. So that means if you have a, 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 a platoon chief that's like a 16 because he's just a badass, yeah. cool. You can give him a platoon commander that's like a two and a LPO that's a one. If you have a platoon chief that's like a, you know, maybe a, a six, you got to give him a platoon commander that's maybe like a seven, and you got to even it yeah, out. Yeah. What you don't want to do is make sure, first of all, you got to make sure that the number gets to 20. Yeah. Because if it doesn't get to 20, you're going to have issues. Uh, then then you got to complement strengths and weaknesses. You know, if you've got a guy that's got a bunch of tactical experience, but he's horrible at paperwork, well, cool. You know, uh, put him with a person that's good at good paperwork. So there's a lot of balancing in, in there that you need to do. Absolutely. And I know... Uh, our 20, when we formed up the team in 2010, we went with some heavy platoons with the idea we're going to go back in Afghanistan. And and one of the things with our our training and deployment schedule is that there's a lot of lag time in there. So things are always changing. And I was like, man, if, when we get back and I'm forming up the team, I want to make sure, just to your point, all these platoons are balanced out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you go heavy in some platoons, that means you're going to be light in the others. Yep. And that comes, that comes at a cost. And, and really what I wanted was you got however many platoons you have at a SEAL team, you should be able to pick up any one of those platoons and snap them in mm-hmm. no matter where, you know, where you're going, what the mission is. They should all be pretty balanced out equally with yep. experience in the platoon, leadership. Yeah, you're, you're, yeah, check. And here's another thing to be careful of, be to watch out for. You, you're trying to get to 20, don't build a platoon with a leadership level 40. Yeah. Because it's probably not gonna work the way you think it is. Yeah. What you're gonna end up with is a bunch of big personalities. Yeah. Like you take the strongest possible OIC, the strongest possible chief, the strongest possible yeah. uh, LPO, and the strongest. What you're gonna end up with is people that well, they all want to freaking stab each other in the back. They all wanna be the guy. They all want to, They have yeah. such big egos and it just turns into a nightmare. Yeah. So building the stacked platoon leadership is generally not a good call. Yeah. And you're gonna, even, even if it happened, if you actually had such exceptional individuals that they actually did work well together the, well then you're it's bad that you have them all together because like you said now you're not balancing out yep. the rest of the teams because because yep. you should take those exceptionally because for for a for a level 20 individual leader actually for for a level 17 individual leader to work with another high performing leader that other leader needs to be a 20. Yeah, well. because that the person that's a twenty and twenty instead of a seventeen, the difference between a seventeen and a twenty is that seventeen can can subordinate their ego. That's the difference. Because yeah, when you yeah, take yeah. two people that are eighteens, they're missing yeah. quality that they don't have is that they don't they don't know how to work with other people and subordinate their ego. Yeah. that's what gets you to a freaking level twenty yourself. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the balanced out platoons. Are, are key for the entire team. Yep. It's yep. goodness. And you think about it. So if I'm bringing in a platoon and, you know, we really spread out our guys with, with two and three platoons because those guys are developing the next set of leaders below them. Mm-hmm. You know, the platoon chief and LPO and everyone's got to develop the other guys too, but those guys have the most impact. When the leadership's gone, they're the guys that are around mm-hmm. and they're showing them what right looks like. So we cross-decked, you know, quite a few guys, got everything uh, balanced out good. And overall, you know, our deployment was uneventful for that one. Went over to, to CENTCOM. 
Um, and we were on standby to standby. You know, that was after Benghazi had happened. So the new normal was, hey, be on standby in case there's a crisis in there. If a crisis mm-hmm. comes up, we want to have special operations postured to go handle a, an embassy-type event. Um, and it was good. So for that deployment, we winded up, you know, in and out of the embassy quite a bit, which was good because that I was like, holy, I've never been in an embassy before. Mm-hmm. So you're talking directly yeah. to the ambassador. and Whole you, new world. Yeah, and you got to be professional. you got to have your suit on yeah. and – you know, you can't drop any F-bombs out there. It's, yeah, yeah, it's a whole know. new world. Yeah, so it, it was a really good learning experience, although nothing happened. I, and I'll say this. We got postured. You know, we had a a unit over in a, a neighboring country, and that country was, you know, uh, they were going through a withdrawal process. And our unit still stayed in position, but we were going to reinforce that unit. So we were staged. We had to stage. So we brought in the aircraft, which – you know, we're going through a full-blown rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Like, we're we thinking we're going to launch our guys. And, you know, our, my biggest takeaway from that deployment was like, hey, these relationships we have with the embassy, they matter. Because <laughs> all we had to do was call up there because we had a tight relationship. And they tell us, hey, here's what's going on. The ambassador's working with the prince and the prince, and they're going through this whole thing. Do we want to launch out of here? Do we not want to launch out of here? Um so it was good, you know, it was boring, but it was a, a good learning experience. Yeah, and for, for people that don't uh, really know too much about this world, there there can be, and usually is, a lot of tension between the State Department, which is the ambassadors and whatnot, and the military. Yeah. Because the State Department wants to solve things diplomatically. Yeah. That's what their life yeah. is, right? Yeah. And the military, we think we can solve things militarily. Yeah. So there's tension. Yeah. There's often tension between those two sides. But if you remember that, hey, we all have the same goal, right? We all have the goal of stability and security and, yep. and overall peace. So if we understand that and we're working towards the same goal, let's figure out the best way to go about it. And those tensions, hopefully, we can overcome. Yeah. Because they can cause, to, they can cause some really bad things to happen. Yeah. You know, There can be times where the military should be used and if the relationship was good, the military would be used. Yeah. And yeah. there's some times where the military shouldn't be used. Yeah. And if the relationship is bad, the military gets used even though it really shouldn't be used. Yeah. So once again, forming good relationships is it's just freaking yeah. critical. No, absolutely. Especially in that environment. More so than, than ever, you know. Hey, going back into when we were forming up, you know, one of the th- first things we did is, you know what, grabbed in our goat locker, you know, our our enlisted uh, formation, E-79. And we went through roles and responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And my, the CMC I had at the time when I was my task unit, uh, when I was a task unit senior enlisted advisor, he'd went through, and I don't know how much you played into the roles and responsibilities he developed or, or if they cross-decked or what, but he went through every position. So I'd already had something that I'd kept for, geez, what is this, uh, four years now, four or five years later. And I've got it, and I go through, and I'm I'm tweaking the verbiage in there to fit to you know to art to our era, our time got frame. It, got it. Yeah, and so go through roles and responsibilities with the goat locker and our tactical level leaders. Hey, here's my expectations as a leader, and and we had your Jocko brief on there. So I had a little reading folder on our drive. Here's what's in there. Read this shit. It's going to make you a better leader. And I think for the most part, our guys did. Like we didn't have too many missteps for that. Um, for that workup cycle and deployment, you know, things were relatively contained, mm-hmm. you know, like no kooky shit, no big events. Yeah. Setting expectations is definitely solid. And in, in the, in the 
SEAL version of the Jocko brief, there's a slide that was roles and responsibilities by person. Yep. Like, task unit commander, here's what you're doing. And it went right on down the line. And I'm sure you guys had to adjust it to, but the point is, and the reason I don't give it really in the civilian, because I don't give it, I don't give roles and responsibilities part of the brief. Yeah. Because I don't know what the roles and responsibilities are in this construction company yeah. or in this manufacturing company or in this financial company, right? It, yeah. it changes, it shifts. Yeah. But in, the, in a SEAL platoon, yeah. in a SEAL task unit, I knew yeah. what the rules and responsibilities were. And listen, and here's something I used to explain. like, If you're the platoon chief and you're supposed to be the, the person that's handling the tactical situation, okay, if the officer is supposed to be looking at the next move that we're going to take, hey, listen, chief, if your officer is not capable of doing that, you better get your LPO trained up so he can handle the tactical situation yep. so you can go and, and figure out what you're going to do next. So so we have to be able to not just do like our specific yep. job, our role and responsibility, but if we have to inside of our platoon, we might have to say, hey, you know what, chief, you handle this over here. Yep. You know, If I got a chief that's not super dynamic on target, and I got an LPO that's a badass. Yep. I'll go, hey, hey, LPO, you're gonna be, you're gonna, you're gonna yep. be responsible for this stuff. You're gonna be responsible for the assault, chief. You're gonna be responsible for the marshalling. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Cool. Got it. You're like, that's okay. Yep. It doesn't matter. Now, let, don't let your ego get in the way. Because yeah. the chief, oh, I'm supposed to be in charge of the assault. Cool. You're not good at it. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'd be much more gentle about it. What I would say is, hey, you know, well, the thing is, I want the LPO to get some experience, so we're going to let him handle some of these right now and see how he does. And in the meantime, you can just kind of handle the marshalling over here, you know, with the with the AOIC. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. but yeah, those roles, responsibilities. So, the fact that you laid those out early yeah. lets everyone know what the expectation is. Yeah. Let's everybody know where you stand. Right, yeah. lets everybody know, like, hey, I don't put up. I'm not going to put up with this. Yeah. I'm not going to put up with that. I'm not going to put up with the other thing. Yeah. If you're out of line, come, you better come and tell me what's going on. Yeah, yeah. If I get blindsided, there's going to be problems. Yeah. So all those, all those things, absolutely. Yeah. Like, that's a great point. Setting those expectations of what you, ex- what, what you need, what you want, what your standards are. You set those out of the gate. It's going to align people real yeah. quick. Yeah. And then you model them. You got to yeah. model them. Yeah, you yeah. got to do what you're saying. Oh, yeah. If you're yeah. if you're not, you might as well just freaking just not even put out the word. If you're going to say, hey, everyone be squared away and you're going to act like a jackass, just yep. don't even put it out. Yeah, it just clears everybody else out <laughs> to do that good. shit. Dumb yeah. move. Yeah. Uh, and then what? And then what? So finish up that deployment, come back, and then I go and work at our headquarters for our uh, force master chief. Which was an awesome guy at the time. Learned a truckload from him, which I'd able, which I'd be able to use for my next two positions. Mm-hmm. And so at the headquarters element, you know what I have on here. Let me just go back one real quick. The headquarters element was was good because it was the first time I'm outside of that that SEAL team. You know whether it's training or just SEAL, you know, um, mission. Mm-hmm. You're up at the headquarters element. You know I was in the same office yeah, you, you were, were but i'm working for the force you're working for the admiral yeah. so it's very similar line did you do how long did you work there for uh right around less than a year and a half got it but it was enough mm, you're oh, ready yeah. to get out of there oh, after 12 yes, months but here's what i would say i wished i would have done that position earlier on probably like as a, a chief or a senior chief mm-hmm. but where, what does right look like where does it fit in the yeah. training i think would have priority because that's going to set you up tactically mm-hmm. But going up there, you're like, holy cow, your aperture just 
opens wide up with actually how things work, you know, with uh, with SEAL platoons going over into Afghanistan, into Iraq, how all that stuff works. That you want more gear? Here's the here's the process to procure the gear, and you're going through all that. And one of the things the guy I worked for did is he was up there and he like he laid out initiatives. Hey, here's the initiatives I want to get over the line, and then. I was the guy, you know, when he's on travel back at the the Black Palace trying to move these things forward as, you know, as quickly as possible without missing anything. So it was it was a good experience and the, and the guy I worked for he had over 30 years and mm-hmm. he'd bounced around just he was a good dude, man. Yeah. So I learned a lot from him. Yeah, well, you're right. I did work it. We worked in the exact same front of the call it the front office. Yep. And and for sure when you start to see you start to see how small of a Role right, like you're small. There's like there's like the whole military. That's the yeah. first time you get a taste of. Yeah. Did, like, did you go to the Pentagon? Did you go on travel with your boss? I went back to uh, SOCOM. I didn't travel that much with those guys. Yeah, so yeah. I was going to the Pentagon, bro. Oh, the yeah, Pentagon. Yeah. yeah. Well. I was. I was. I was. You know, sitting in in the back, in the back of the meeting yeah. with SOCOM. You know, over and over again, and, and hearing the word being put out, and seeing the seeing the the handwritten notes from the Secretary of Defense. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, yeah. all of a sudden, you realize how big this machine is. Yeah, and and that puts things in perspective for you. And yes, you learn a lot about you know how to make things happen and how well yeah. not how to make things happen, but how things happen. Yes, and then you can at least provide some level of influence on yeah. trying to hopefully make things happen yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a big <laughs> understanding. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Cause now you know how to navigate it. Yeah. And you yeah. also know, like I'm, I'm oh, there's no point in getting frustrated about this thing over here. Cause I yeah. can at least explain to the troops, Hey, this is why this is happening. Yeah. I know it seems crazy, but guess what? The money that's getting spent for weapons right now was actually allocated five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. if you're going to be mad about it, yeah. that's fine, but it's not going to help. Yeah. That, and that was issues. I remember we were getting gear three, four years later that was designed for the previous three, four oh, yeah. years, and it was already obsolete. You're like, I yeah. don't, need, I can't even use this stuff yeah. right now, you know. But it was good, and I remember being up there in 2015, and I think that was when you and Leif sent your first published copy of Extreme Ownership up there for approval. Oh yeah, well then it wasn't a published copy; it was probably like a manuscript. That's what it was. Yep. So I got me a copy of that. Oh, really? You got yeah. the early one. I got the early one. So I read through it. I didn't know what to expect, you know. And back then, everyone's going, hey, man, people are on the net writing books. I'm like, oh, let's see what Jocko and Labor write about here. <laughs> a little courtesy copy. And I remember picking it up and I read it. I'm like, damn, this is really good because the way you guys translated into the business world mm-hmm. was just, you know, it made sense, you know. So And plus, you recognized it all Yeah. Yep. from from the Jocko brief, which yeah. is... Yeah, you know, basically yeah. where where it all came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your guys, the way you wrote it, the position on it was from a humility standpoint, which people are going to appreciate that. So it was good, man. Yeah, no, that was a that was a big um, obstacle to overcome mentally. Yeah, you know, like uh, for me, it was massive. You know, I can't speak for Leif, but yeah. like for me, I mean, we just talked, opened this whole thing up about talking about reputation. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, you can you can destroy your reputation yeah. by becoming that guy. Yeah, oh, you yeah. wrote that book, and you know, and and that, so that was horrible. That was yeah. a horrible uh, experience to go through. It was like walking into the unknown, and you can't look, and you can't. It, there's look when you write a book, 
it is not a humble act, right? Yeah. It, like there's no, there's, yeah. it's like saying, hey, I'm gonna go freaking uh, uh, start a podcast, get a designer <laughs> suit, yeah, or start a podcast. Hey, I'm gonna go get a designer suit, but it's not, for, it's not for me. Yeah. Like it doesn't work. Or hey, I'm gonna start a podcast and talk a bunch. Like, yeah. what do you got to talk about, yeah, dude? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to say you're gonna write a book or you're gonna start a podcast or you're gonna put a spotlight on yourself is basically what you're doing. That's that's yeah. what I'm saying, right? Yep. When you write a book, you're putting a spotlight on yourself. Look at me. Yeah. And yep. and there's no it doesn't matter what that book says. Yeah. At least at the initial impression. Like you 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 are putting a spotlight on yourself. And yeah. I hated that. And it was really, it was hard to overcome that. Yeah. But then you think, the, here we are working with these civilian companies, yeah. and they are being able to move forward and yeah. execute better. And it's like, you know what? The stuff that we learned is probably worth teaching. Yeah, yeah. The stuff that we learned is people need to hear it. Yeah. And then uh, one of the, the Admiral, uh, you know, I kind of had that kind of conversation with him. And he says, he said, uh, he goes, you know what, Jocko? We are quiet professionals. We are not silent professionals. Wow. And some of the stories need to be told. And some yeah. of the lessons need to be taught. Yeah. And the way you're doing it is the way it should be done. Yeah. And, and that was real... Um, you know, obviously, yeah, that was yeah, yeah. about as much reassurance as I could get. And then, and then you know, just having... Uh, Having friends that read, read the book in the in the teams and were like, "Bro, Dude, legit." Good to go. And then yep. and then same thing with the podcast. Like when yeah. I started, bro, when I started with the podcast, when all, when all my friends started like yeah. calling me, like, "Dude, that podcast was sick," and, yeah. and everyone like, that's when I was super stoked, you know, because yeah. you feel horrible uh, and you feel like you're shining a spotlight on yep. yourself. Yep. And what I realized was that people saw that I was actually trying to shine a spotlight, not on me, but like yeah. on the community, not even yeah. just our community, but yeah. the Army, the the Marine Corps, yeah. like every, everyone that is out there working hard is yeah. where where the spotlight was trying to be shined. It's just that I happen to hold it, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. pretty sketchy to pick that thing up, bro. Well, think about this. Think about if there were podcasts going on in the 90s, Right. When we were coming up, where we could learn and go and get information on books to read and lessons learned from people that were in, in Vietnam that are talking, hey, here's some things we jacked up. We had a blue on blue. I wish I'd have done this. Here's what I did as a leader that was jacked up. I wish I would have, you know, came over and talked to Echo on this thing. I mean, how much better would we have been? We didn't have, we had we, we shit, had man. We, we had, had nothing. nothing. And and that's, um, believe me, I think about that all the time. I mean, even yeah. when I when Mike Thornton came on, yeah, and and we did a full debrief. I was like, I was in the SEAL teams for 20 years, and I never got that debrief. I never read that debrief, never saw, never didn't know all those lessons that he learned. And it's like, wait a second, that's so wrong. I felt horrible. And and so, you know what, now it's like, oh, you can bring on Roger Hayden, because Roger Hayden taught me stuff. But how is a new guy gonna learn about Roger Hayden and his lessons? You know, and it's not even just lessons about, hey, cover move, or hey, keep it simple. It's lessons about, hey, when this happens, when you lose a guy, when you get a guy badly wounded, when you get somebody that's, you know, acting a certain way, when someone's losing combat, like all those lessons. Yeah, yeah. Being able to to learn them is freaking so powerful. Yeah, it only helped people out in the future. 
you know, it's good. I mean, yeah. when I had James Webb on, the, who was, you know, Naval Academy, Marine Corps, Navy Cross, uh, you know, Secretary of the Navy. <laughs> but yeah. when we got done, and I mean, he, he, he wrote the book uh, Fields of Fire, incredible book. Yeah. And it's sort of the book that all Vietnam movies are based on. Yeah, all, all every movie about Vietnam is based on yeah. that book in one way or another, and it's based. And that book is is a thinly disguised autobiography. But when we got done, we walked out, and he was like, "I never got debriefed like that. No one ever debriefed anything anything that I did in Vietnam like that." Wow. And he goes, "You know, I wrote. There's some stuff written down in some library in the." 12th floor of the Pentagon, you know, row 17 alpha He goes, no one's ever gonna read that and and to be able to debrief like that It's yeah, he's like, thank you and 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 his son was in freaking Ramadi. Wow Wow, so yeah, there's a I'm I'm saying do believe me. I mean I meet (laughs) I meet Marines and army guys and team guys all the time They're like, oh, yeah episode this episode is freaking awesome because just what you just said, we didn't get that opportunity yeah. to be able to get the debriefs from people and hear yeah. these lessons. Yeah. And it's so we're so lucky to be able to do that. It's a powerful learning tool. You know, a lot of the things we do, just to your point, in the military translate right over into the business world for everyone to learn mm-hmm. from, you know. So then what'd you get done? You got done with Warcom, what yeah. happened? So got done with uh, Warcom. And uh, went over, and uh, at that time we were doing rotations with uh, Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force. Task Force that goes into Iraq, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they deal with the siege of soda. You know, they're in charge of the maneuver elements. Yeah, so um, basically this is a group that's in charge of all the special operations in a area, in this case, Iraq. Yeah, yep, yep. So went up there, and I think we had, you know, you're working with all these other countries and they're reporting to you. We're working together as one big team, one big unit. I think we had in between 800 and 1,100 people with the siege of soda. And guys are dispersed everywhere. And this is a, a point in Iraq where, you know, ISIS has a foothold up in Mosul. And we've got, you know, it was the first time I actually worked with uh, MARSOC. We had uh, their MSOTs and their MSOC out there along with the 05 headquarters. They were up north. And we had our NSW unit, and they were co-located with us. Um there in Baghdad and so it was a it was a good experience you know and we're figuring out hey how are we gonna take take uh down Mosul and you know there's been several rotations before us where everyone's just waiting one of the Iraqis gonna want to do it one of the Iraqis gonna want to do it and uh that came to a head on our deployment which was good um and so finally we get approval guys come in there and so uh, what year is this this is 2016 2016 so you know uh Guys go in there and start clearing out Mosul, you know, and at some point, you know, one of our SEAL units rotated out and Jay and his formation rotated in, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Jay's, Jay's team was, was awesome. Him and his uh, commanding officer did a great job building that out. You know, they were – it was, a, you know, one of the best SEAL teams I'd, I'd seen. Um, so it was good. Anyways, they come in and start clearing Mosul. Me and my boss, we push up to – uh, Erbil, and then out of Erbil, we were running a, a small jock out of there. So we were co-located with, God, I forget, the sea jock. And mm. the sea jock was the one who could clear airspace to drop ordnance. And we needed to be co-located with them to help deconflict in case anything got snagged up. Um, so anyways, there was a lot of kinetic fighting in there going on at that point. 
but a good experience. We're working with, I think, seven or eight different countries. First time I've been inside a siege of soda working like that, and you're up in the upper leadership and management position, you know, taking on everything that's going on. I'm trying to provide my, my boss with the, <laughs> the best advice I can on, you know, what I recommend. Um, you know, and the, and the boss I had back then, he's an admiral now, but he was just squared away, just good – even-tempered guy. People loved him. The other countries loved him. They're like, hey, where'd you get this guy? I'm like, that's my first time working with him. But he's dialed in. He had a great reputation. You know him. Um, so it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was a good deployment. You know, and probably the things that, that weighed the most on that deployment is I'd never really been a part of a, a ramp ceremony mm-hmm. to where you're like, you're leading this thing. And uh, we had one of our warrant officers, and this was our first ramp ceremony, and so we had a, a pilot that was shot down, I want to say it was 2006 time period, and his remains were never recovered. And our warrant officer went off this, and he's working with a shake. And the shake's going, hey, we got the remains if you want them. And they start doing negotiations, and then the shake's like, hey, we want this amount of money, and our guy's going back and forth. And, and, and just a point up front I want to make is when you assign the right person you know, the right talent to that, to what you're trying to accomplish, you can get a lot over the finish line. And I'm saying that up front because there was other agencies that had worked with this shake to try to get the remains back. They couldn't get it over the finish line. But here was a guy with never done this before, the right temperament, the right attitude, went in there and was playing a little hardball with this guy, played a little softball over here, and he got it over the finish line. You know, we winded up, you know, you know, negotiating with the shake we got the remains back we went through our, our ramp ceremony back here and then we got the you know the remains back to the u.s so the you know that officer could be properly uh buried and he was a, he was a a pilot that had been shot down um so it was powerful felt good you know felt good and then we had a few other ramp ceremonies we know we lost uh this was one of one of jay-z od's bubba's but he was hit you know up there in, in mosul with an IED and he, and he was killed. And so we did a ramp ceremony for him, brought him back. And, uh, we had one other guy and I want to, I'll tie this back into Ramadi, but the, the third guy we had, he was, you know, he's doing some stuff in another country. He was hit hard. He was killed and we brought him back to us. And it was like the night before Thanksgiving back in the U S and in Ramadi, we were operating right before Christmas in you know, the siege of soda commander pulled us out and we were pissed off. We were like, what the hell, man? We were planning on being here in through Christmas Eve and through Christmas. And the siege of soda commander back in 2006 said, Hey man, I don't want to report back to anyone's family that their son was wounded or killed, you know, before Christmas. And then here we are, you know, damn near 10 years later in, in Iraq. And this guy gets killed right before Thanksgiving and his family's over with the other family or his wife and kids are over with their family. And they got to get notified. We're coming back here, going through all our procedures to make sure everything's tight and he's getting his uh, proper respect before we send him out. But those things, like when you're putting an American on an aircraft in a casket with the flag draped over, man, it just, it's a gut punch, man. It sucks. It sucks, man. Uh, it's something I never, you know, wish upon anyone. Um, and it really hits home to, to you, you know, not good. How long was that deployment? That was a six-monther. And the Iraqis took massive casualties on oh, that man. deployment. Oh. They, before we left, they were like 
the special unit we were working with, and it trained up over the years. To, the SF actually trained them up. I think we had a hand in the pie somewhere in there, but they were dialed in. They were the best unit that the Iraqis had, and these guys had a lot of pride, but they were like over 800 casualties uh, when we left. And it was just, it was, I mean, ISIS was no joke over there, man. They were, they were barbaric, brutal. And, you know, there's a, there's a fraction of, of people where you think you're going to come in and you're going to talk some sense into some people mm. like that. You're not, you're not talking to them. And if they get a hold of you, it's not going to be good for you. You're going to get your head chopped off. And that's the type of, uh, that's what, that's what we were dealing with over there. And those, you know, that unit that our guys were working with, they laid it all out there. They were going in there for their country, for Iraq, to secure that city, to make it a better place. And, man, they took heavy casualties. I mean heavy casualties. Um, you know, the, the, the truck bombs they built from 2004 to 2016, they up-armored them in 2016. So when they're coming at you, there's no way – there's not a good way to, to defeat them. You need some type of missile system or rocket system coming in on top. Or you need some type of arresting device to where you can stop the vehicle from coming at you. Um, you know, we had some good penetration with some of our heavy caliber weapons with stopping them, but it was hard. It, it was not easy. And, and they'd hide them underneath, you know, vehicle or, or uh, carport um, entry points, and you wouldn't be able to tell what it is. And next thing you know, that big, huge you know, truck bomb is on the move and there's up armored all over the place and there's just a small window that they can look out. And guess what? If they come off the seat or anything happens with the seat and their adjustment, the thing's rigged to just blow. So as soon as it hits something, the whole thing's going up. And man, we just remember watching CTS units, this damn thing would be coming. You'd be trying to call in an airstrike, but you got like a minute and 30 seconds to clear airspace overhead to get bombs down on target. So it's like, it wasn't going to happen. So you had to be able to handle business as a tactical unit on the ground to take this thing out. You know, we'd give these guys rockets and, and ship, but it, they weren't effective. Um, so it was a super complex and frustrating um, environment, you know, and took a lot of casualties. Yeah, I know uh, Jason was saying that, they, you know, at a certain point they were thinking that the Iraqi unit that was doing the majority of the fighting was just going to run out of guys like they just weren't oh. going to they, they were just going to all be dead or all yep. be casualties yep. which which was freaking scary and i i was horrified you know when he was telling me that now it's i was hearing some of that while while you guys were actually over there but at the same time even though it kind of horrified me at the same time i also was this is going to sound wrong but i was happy to hear it because what it told me was that the iraqis were fighting yep yep and when we were in Ramadi, the Iraqis, they, they, some of them would fight, but it definitely yeah. wasn't. They weren't looking to take massive casualties to try and take a city back. Like, yeah. they didn't care that much. Yeah. And they would run away. And we had a whole battalion quit. A, a whole battalion yeah, of Iraqi soldiers said, yeah, we're out. Yeah. Well, we had one entire company disappear. Like, there was a, a, a strike on, their, on one of their checkpoints. And they all just bailed. That was that. Yeah. So to hear how hard the Iraqis were fighting and they were taking it to ISIS and that they were staying in the fight, that was just freaking, um, that was just, it was awesome to hear that. It was so yeah. horrible to hear that they were taking casualties, but it was great to hear that they had found the will to fight yeah. and that they yeah. were unified and, and fighting courageously to, to liberate yeah. other Iraqis inside their country from these 
actual f- savages yeah, yeah. that are doing the most ha- committing the most heinous atrocities imaginable and and it was all it was awesome to hear that they were that they were fighting like that and and it was also you know when when ISIS decided to you know wear a uniform and put up flags it was like right on yeah. well, let, let's see how this works out for you <laughs> yeah freaking yeah. legit uh and then what? Then what? So finish up with, with that deployment, get back off of that, and then uh, that's when I rolled over to Group 1. And so, you know, started, you know, I got a good six six month of getting saturated with group-level stuff. And, you know, at the group, you're responsible for all, you know, four West Coast SEAL teams and three other commands. So you got roughly right around 1,800 people or so. Um, and your primary function there is manning, training, and equipping. So I'm working directly with the team command master chiefs. Um, on some occasions, they're commanding officers. And so you're in a position of a lot of influence at that point. You know, and I'm directly working with our Commodore on on our initiatives and moving the mission forward. And you're also dealing with uh, whatever sort of, you know, uh, equipment, like trying to get equipment for the guys, yep. trying to just the whole nine yards. And, and overall – Responsible for their training. Did you go out to the desert during that time? Went out there a couple times. Damn, bro. And it's so it's weird. It's different when you're up at that level. When you come down in, it's never the same. Yeah, it's never. You Everyone's know, you're the guy. A show for you. Yeah, you're the guy. Then it's like, hey, I'm coming in there to see this, and you're like, hey, man, you guys might want to tighten this shit up over here, you know. But um, it was good, you know. Uh, damn, who was there? I think Jay, yeah, Jay was at Traded at the time. Mm-hmm. So it was good. So Jay was always there as a right-hand man I had out there. And we had a good crew of uh, team committed master chiefs. And one of the things we started doing back in 2015 with the, the force I was working with, the force command master chief, is he started implementing a, a screening process. So we were basically going through a hiring to make sure that we were getting the right leaders in at the, the master chief level to take over some of these command positions. And it's not perfect, but it was a hell of a lot better than where we were. Um, they also, we also started implementing in, you know, platoon chief and task unit senior enlisted advisor screening, mm-hmm. and that was developing. So it's uh, it's getting better as we move forward. Bottom line is, you know, things are getting better. You're moving things forward. That's what you want um, for a better formation. You know, and, and just going back to work on real quick. One of the things I realized when you're up there, you know, when you're down in the troops, you're just like, give me my gear. I want to get go to war and do all these things. And people talk a lot of shit about everyone above them. And here's the deal with the people that are above you. I'm you. I'm you. I was the E5 talking that shit, saying all those things. And guess what? I moved up positions, but I, I moved up in, in positions to take care of people, right? And so there's a lot of kooky things that come out. You're the guy behind the scenes squashing these things, you know, to make sure that our, that our people are taken care of. And I always had, I had a buddy that was, you know, he was a hard case and he's like, Hey man, won't you ever say this? Won't you, you need to stand up and say something about that. I'm like, Hey man, I'm handling that shit behind closed doors. I'm not going to come here and open forum with the commander and disagree with them in front of all these people, man. That's not, that's not smart. I'm getting nowhere. Yeah. But if I come around the backside here, do a little flank, plant some seeds, you can have a, a lot more influence that way. Um, so anyways, you're always going to get that shit with the hard cases. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then how long was that tour? So that was a, a two year tour, you know, and, and I wanted to finish up my career there. And, and, and towards the end, you're like, I mean, what, what, what were you thinking? What was on the horizon and what was your decision making process to, to decide to punch? 
punch. Yeah, so I punched right at like the 28 and a half year mark. So I, I could have gone another year and a half, but man, I was out of juice. And one of the things people talk about is, hey, you know when it's time to go. And man, I was in that position and we had some high profile cases out there and they just wear on you, man. You know, it, they just wear on you. And even before that happened, I knew it was time for me to go. I'm like, all right, I'm going to do this position. It's time for me to to move out of here. I don't think I had anything left to add value to the mission and the organization. I was topped out with my leadership capacity. And we have plenty of guys that go out there and do the the TSOCs, you know, the Theater Special Operations Command, and that's a high level of, of influence. Those are action arms in the operational uh, areas. And I was like, man, I just don't see myself going and working at that level. You're working with general officers, with admirals. And I was like, man, I just, and I was up at WARCOM, kind of got a, a, a little bit of a taste of that. And I was like, that's just not me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need people to do those positions. Hell, we had quite a few East Coast guys go in, in, uh, in, in into those TSOC positions. And you need them because that's a huge, a high level of influence that the that we have in NSW. If you have your guy in there, mm-hmm. he can help influence some outcomes, which is super important. But I was definitely maxed out, uh, out of gas, uh, time for me to pack up and go home. And one of the things that always uh, it, it comes to mind with me is in 2003, you know, we had Posey out there, our mm-hmm. Vietnam guy. Good dude, man. Just good family guy. Vietnam had mm-hmm. more stories than you can imagine. But he was like, man, Steve, you guys are stronger, faster, smarter than than we ever were. And I was like, damn, what's he talking about? And then I look back, you know, 28, you know, 15 years later, whatever it was. And I'm like, these young guys that are coming in, they're hungry. They're smarter. They're stronger than I was. They're faster than I was. Meaning, hey, the community's in a good spot. We got our next generation coming up and through our ranks, doing good things. You know, and one of the things uh, one of our head leaders for the Navy put out, uh, Mick Pond Stevens, he said, hey, work hard, stay out of trouble, and be a good person. That's all I'm asking the formation to do. The entire Navy, That's that was his mantra. Work hard, stay out of trouble, be a good and, hu- uh, be a good and decent human being, be a good person. And I never kn- knew what the hell he meant by stay out of trouble. And then, you know, as you start moving up in these positions and you have high-profile cases and things going on, they can bring your entire community down to its knees, meaning it's hard to move initiatives forward. It's hard to to focus on what your actual job is because you're dealing with, you know, NJP, you're dealing with court-martials. All those things weigh on you, and it's never good. And my boss in 2015, our force, he, he hammered it home to me, and it made sense. He said, hey, Steve, We've got to protect the mission. We've got to protect our credibility. Credibility that's built in other people's blood. It was spilled in other people's blood. We've got to protect that at all costs. And he's like, it's hard for us to protect the homeland if we've got, if our credibility is damaged and we can't get employed overseas to wrap up bad guys. And I was like, yeah, check. That shit makes sense. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, well, that's the, it's the same thing as a reputation, right? Yeah. The community has a reputation, and you've got to do everything you can to protect that reputation. Yeah. Because if you're, if you're, yeah, just it's just what you have to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and you do your best. You do everything you can to protect the reputation. I mean, that's yeah. just what you got to do, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. Man. Any other, uh, Echo, you got anything? said something about a firecracker earlier like uh-huh. a firecracker uh-huh. scenario or whatever and you were like oh you got the firecracker like right off the bat or something yeah. like it that was a, like it was that was the some nickname, big deal it was the nickname for an area in ramadi that was north of route michigan and 
it was this little road that wrapped up and around. It was called Firecracker. And the reason mm-hmm. it was called Firecracker was because there was a lot of bad shit going on there. Yeah, a lot of fire there was cracking. a lot of fire, a lot of fire cracking off, <laughs> as you said. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay, and that was like your first. That was our first uh, operation in uh, Ramadi. Yeah. Dude, that's okay. a welcome to Ramadi yeah, situation uh, right there. Damn. Yeah. yeah. That was good. That was good. That's all I. Freaking crazy. I Anything else, Steve? Nope. Any closing thoughts? No, that's it. <laughs> right, all man. Well, uh, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I'll say one more thing. At one point, probably you were like six months out from retiring, and you said, uh, "I have three courses of action oh, for yeah. what I'm going to do when I get out." <laughs> yeah. Echelon front, echelon front, echelon front. And I yeah. was like, "Right, all man, yeah, freaking yeah. awesome," uh, which is a ripoff from the Marine that I covered the book on the podcast where when he was getting ready to graduate from the basic school and they had to fill out what they wanted to do, and this was in 1967, they had to fill out what they wanted to do in the Marine Corps, and he put one, two, three, infantry platoon commander, infantry platoon commander, infantry platoon commander. It's like, that's what I'm gonna do. I was like, roger that, all right. Guess we're gonna execute on this thing. So it's freaking awesome. Thanks for what you did to the teams, for the teams, obviously, for America, Obviously yeah. and 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 for freedom and I know we had an awesome time working yeah. together in the past I have I still I just when I drive at night Whenever I drive at night, especially out here in California in the desert mm-hmm. I'm always thinking I'm driving back from from the desert from our desert training facility and Just with just totally yeah. amped because yeah. I wouldn't be able to sleep because I'd be so fired up for yeah. the teams yeah. and for the boys yeah. and I'd be like just amped driving back knowing that we made some freaking guys ready for war yeah. so it was awesome working with you then and uh, awesome working with you again right now man yeah hey, I really appreciate it I'm glad to be on with with echelon front it's uh it's awesome can I say one thing real quick yeah hey I'd like to thank my wife Allison she's put up with me for all these years <laughs> she was prior military Good Southern girl from Arkansas, um, and she runs a tight game. She keeps me in. Yeah, she keeps me in line. So I love her with all my heart. She's an awesome person, and uh, my kids. I love you guys. Right on, yep. man. Yep. Awesome. Well, uh, Echo. Yes, sir. Speaking of getting awesome. after it, speaking <laughs> speaking of being awesome, what do you think we can do to uh, become more awesome? To strive. Strive, strive strive for awesomeness at the very least how about that strive there was some podcast we did from some ancient warrior shaking the world shaking the world with your awesomeness oh yeah oh uh, <laughs> well you know that's a that's a big step going striving to shaking the world mm-hmm. you see what I'm like that's that's kind of a big step for sure so mm-hmm. let's start with striving cool good all right well hey in your path to strive for awesomeness mm-hmm. or in the event that you're just straight up trying to shake the world with awesomeness hey look you might need some supplementation mm-hmm. okay let me let me start this by uh, steve you know you listen to the podcast yes. um how often do you listen to this part of the podcast what percentage of time <laughs> 
I, I'm probably 50%. 50%. You, yeah. you hang on. I right? hang on. That's or is it just you can't hit stop on your freaking <laughs> iPhone, so you just have to roll with right. it? It's like Driving stuff. Well, there's so many new products coming out. You've got to listen to it to kind of go, all right, is there some new line coming out here I'm not tracking? Yep. Oh, Jack. Yep, it's true. He makes a good so, point. So he's saying 50%. My guess is he's kind of rounding up to be nice because, you know, he doesn't want to be, like, harsh to Echo hey, man, Charles. That's cool. All I need is 1%. That's all I need, that's right. man. He's over here at 50. Shoot, that's 40. Here's what I know. I just got a text from JP and uh, and uh, Dave Burke. They want to know if you're going to talk about their discipline go. Some sour apple sniper. You mean good deal, Dave? Good J- deal, Dave. Okay. JP just just tracking on it. Yeah. Like tracking that Steve's here and then sending See taking the I time mean. to send a text <laughs> to say, hey, make sure you make talk sure. about sour, sour apple sniper. Yeah. Okay. And Dave. Bye. Dave wants to make JP jealous, so you got to mention Dave's uh, afterburner orange. Dang, okay. Bro. No, no problem. Uh, we're on it fully. These, so, these but, two guys are just breaking in the game. That's how, man. That's how. And I dig it. Either way, before we get to the discipline or discipline go, which are, you know, they're kind of different but kind of the same, we're going to talk about joint supplements. Mm. These are important because you don't want to think about this kind of stuff while we're trying to, what, shake the world with, you know, with awesomeness. awesomeness or strive or whatever. You know, you don't want to think about your joints. You don't want to think about your immunity, getting sick, all this kind of stuff. So you take these supplements. Joint warfare, joints. Super krill oil, joints. Hmm. Vitamin D3, immunity, and general health, by the way. Mm-hmm. Vitamin D3 is good for a lot of stuff. All kinds, especially at this moment in time in particular. We're yes, talking sir. about factual Fact- information straight up about factual. the glory of the vitamin D. It's true. Absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, a Cold War immunity supplement. Keep those in mind so you don't have to keep the other stuff in mind. Well, yeah, that's okay. what I, I you, you've you've finally gotten through to me. It's only taken 260 episodes mm-hmm. of uh, be, now I understand that you're like, oh, it's good to to not have to think about your joints bothering you. Yes, that's a good thing. That is a good thing. So now I understand you. We don't want to wake up and be like, I hope my joints hold up today and work out or whatever. See what I'm saying? Yes. You just want to go into the workout, warm up if we you got to. get it done, but as they yeah, say. Exactly right. Also, we have a supplement called Discipline. It's a supplement for your brain, for your body, for your whole thing, really. For your life. Your life, man. Your life. Powder. Take Discipline powder instead of coffee. Try that. Good call. It could be something, is what I'm saying, as far as the routine. Also, Discipline Go, which are and, or should I say, were capsules. To begin with, they are capsules. Yes, so if you're on the go, see what I'm saying? Yes, you did that. They're then, they're a, they're very popular at Echelon Front. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, can I say something on the Discipline yeah. Go capsules? Yeah. Hey, so I've been using that stuff, uh-huh. and so when I'm going in and I'm doing a speaking engagement, that's why they're so popular at Echelon Front. I take Front. two, yep. and, and here's the deal: like when I'm communicating, when I'm not taking that stuff, it's like I'm going down the highway, and I. I really have to think hard about the words I'm going to communicate. It's like the the words are in off the a shoot off a street. Uh-huh. When I'm on the discipline go, the words are right there yep. on the road. I'm going 60 miles an hour. You're like, boom, 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 clear, concise communications. And I don't know what's in it, but it definitely clears up your mind. <laughs> it clears up your mind. It works. You got to get, I'm telling you, if you're a boss, you got some things going on, a meeting, a high-speed meeting, you're talking to people, it helps. I promise you it helps. I wouldn't I wouldn't say it if it did Yeah. No, that's why. That's why at Echelon Front, where we get up and we have to, not only do we have to speak, but we yeah. got to take questions, interpret questions. We got to come yeah. up with answers and solutions. And so the team is always like, mm, yeah, 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 I'm going to, I want to bring the A game, yeah. right? Yep. 
how do you ensure you bring the A game? Take a little discipline go. Yeah. Discipline go. And then if you have like a little more time or maybe you want to enjoy that a little bit more, <laughs> you, can have, you can get a can of yeah. discipline go. Yes, which is what you mentioned, yeah. right? Many flavors mm-hmm. now. Shoot, yeah. the flavor roster getting big over here. So most recently, Afterburner Orange. Good deal, Dave Burke. Boom. <laughs> Before that, Sour Apple Sniper. JP yeah. Dinell. What are they competing with each other? Now? Oh, good lord! That's what's going on. There's some competition. Before okay. that, Jocko Palmer. Hey, which, by the way, which, by the way, Jocko Palmer. Jocko Palmer is not Jocko Palmer. What it is is it's fifty-fifty iced tea lemonade. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Some people were thinking it was pomegranate because we also oh. have Jocko pomegranate white tea. Yeah, that's which true. which you probably remember, Steve. Yeah. Tell us about that's the origin story right there. At Nyland, me rolling into those briefs with that oh, big old dude. plastic uh, 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 protein shaker with yeah. freaking with with pomegranate tea, yeah. which I would get from wherever, and then I'd just sit there in the front row, and they'd give their brief, and be jacked. I'd be just taking notes. <laughs> they'd be like, "All right, <clears throat> you give your points." Or actually, like you know, whatever the 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 front line instructors would give their points, and then you'd give your points, and then yeah. it'd be like. You'd be like, you got anything, boss? And I'd be like, oh, <coughs> <coughs> a couple of things. Is there caffeine in the mm. There is. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little That's bit. That's why the whole yep. thing. Yep. Yeah, so speaking of caffeine, and just a little bit, yes, Jocko Palmer, that was the one before that. And then before that was what? Who's the first signature? Oh, Dax Savage. Was the, the first, first signature was Dax oh, Savage. Man. Yeah. Dakota. Tasty. Yeah. Is that Dakota. your go-to? What's your go-to? I like the Dak Savage, uh-huh. and I like the story behind Dak Savage. Yeah, dude, he's a monster. Man. If you can just get yeah. a, if you can have a little bit of mentality of Dakota, yeah. then your your whole your whole being is better. Yeah, no, not, no offense to JP and Dave. I, I know, mean, God, I want to have dang. their mentalities too. But let's face it, it's Dak Savage. It's freaking yeah. Dakota. We're kind of yeah. in the game. Dakotas kind of take. Do, do you did you drink Dr Pepper when you were a kid? I did not, because that's kind of the. Yeah, it's kind of the flavor apparently. It's tasty. Yeah, it's tasty. Yeah, that's yeah. my that's my wife's favorite. Yeah, which what do you think of that, Dakota? Yeah. I see you tracking on my wife. <laughs> <laughs> you tracking, <laughs> tracking on my wife, Dakota. Uh, yeah, so that one's kind of a sour apple sniper. Is I'm gonna say if you have a little bit of a sweet tooth, yeah. probably sour apple yeah. sniper is your go to. It's true. Jocko Palmer is is if you like iced tea and lemonade. Yeah, that was my favorite before the the orange. The orange is your favorite. Currently my favorite. Yeah. Yes, sir. But hey man, you know, teach their own and you know, we're gonna move forward. So what this is though, discipline go in a can, energy drink, health energy drink, healthy mm-hmm. energy drink. No health drink in the mm-hmm. form of an energy drink. Yeah. It's been hard to figure out what to call it. I, whatever you were just saying. Steve was pretty legit about just going down the road and finding words and everything's <laughs> yeah, in focus. Good. And I'm like, yeah, it's dude, true. I know what your feeling yeah. is. Yeah. yeah, and that's what makes like the, the can so good. Because you know how, like, let's face it, you're just doing whatever during the day, whatever we do during the day. And you're like, oh, you know, I'll grab a water, I'll grab mm-hmm. a juice, I'll grab a soda sometimes. Some of us. Mm-hmm. No. This this exactly right though. This is like you can grab it. No, you don't get the bad parts of soda. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, if you're going for a water, cool, man, do it. But if you're grabbing like a Red Bull or I shouldn't say any particular brand, mm-hmm. but <laughs> if you're grabbing a soda or an energy drink, 
I'm yeah. just saying you're going to pay a price for that. You're paying a price. You see what I'm saying? You're paying a price with your health. Yeah, and, and with this, discipline, go. It's you, paying you, you would a price. Think, you would think that somebody would have already made an equivalent, right? You would think, you would think yeah. that. It's real obvious. Hey, I'm going to make something that makes you, enhances your performance, but it's actually good for you. You'd yeah. think somebody would have done that. Yeah. Why didn't they do it? Number one, cost too much, and now they're now they're not making, they're not maximizing profits at the freaking cash register. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And number two, it was hard. Yeah, it was hard to do because we had to instead of just throwing a bunch of chemicals in there so it wouldn't go yeah. bad, we had to pasteurize yeah. it, which no one does. Yeah. So there you go. Boom. And you, and not only that, hey, well, how are you going to make it taste good? Well, we'll just put a bunch of chemicals in there that that are bad for you, but it'll t- make people taste good. And we don't care about the people that we're serving this to, so we'll just let them drink poison. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just let them drink poison. What did we do? We said, no, I was like, no, we're not doing that. Yeah. We are gonna sweeten it with something real, it's monk fruit. So that's why it doesn't, even that doesn't seem like a lot of barriers to entry, right? Yeah. Like, hey, we're gonna pasteurize it, we're gonna put, we're gonna sweeten it naturally, we're gonna only put healthy ingredients in it, You'd think that the, those those bars to entry aren't that high. Yeah. You'd think someone would have done it, but they didn't. Yeah. They didn't do it. So we did. Amen. Like I said. Now yeah. everyone else can get in line. <laughs> as far as getting in line goes, for sure. Also, speaking of tasting good, milk. Mm-hmm. Superior protein in the form of a dessert. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Um, you know Such I, a good dessert. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. So. Uh, Brian, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this, but Brian sends my son and me. I'm more of a secondary thing, but sends my son milk bars. Oh yeah, right. I don't know if they're still in the experimental stage or the, whatever. The version that you're getting right now is pretty close to a done deal. Yeah, yeah. So it's like it's one of those things where yeah, man, if you want a dessert, like milk is the dessert, yeah. and it's super as far as like um, you know how like sometimes you're like oh I need a dessert, but I you know I'm on the path, yeah. so I'm gonna have a dessert substitute. Something like mm-hmm. this. You know what I'm saying? You had those out. I thought those were out already. Milk I was eating, bars? Yeah, I was eating something back in uh, December last year. We were we were in the experimental phase. Well, they were tasty then. Yeah, they've gotten better. <laughs> wow, they've yeah. gotten better. So yeah. it's been hard, man. It's yeah. been really hard. There's another. It's the same. It's the same kind of battles you're fighting with the like with with making the drink and how do you actually keep it stable there's yeah. more there's there's well not more but there's different things in play trying to make a bar how do you keep it stable how does it maintain its texture over time what happens when it's sitting on a shelf for two months there's a bunch of things to deal with so we find in the version that you're getting right now echo we finally figured out how to overcome all that and do it naturally and make it taste good and have the right flavor profile and stay stable on the shelf so it's been a long road it's been a road that we almost backed away from. Mm-hmm. And and you know me, I'm not one to mm, D-O-R. D-O-R, as they say. <laughs> as we say. Sure. Yeah, but either way, yes, milk, protein, in the form of d- dessert. Not a dessert substitute, by the way. Just mm-hmm. simply straight, dessert. Straight up. Where do you get all this stuff? OriginMain.com. Originally, originally, mm-hmm. there's many other places to get it. But before we go there. Okay. Let's go here. Jocko White Tea. You mentioned the pomegranate white tea. Jocko yep. White Tea. Yep. That is available. We're not just talking about Jocko used to drink white tea. Now he doesn't. Bruh. Drinks even better white tea. I had it Jocko today. Jocko White Tea. Yeah, remember you still drink it in that big jar? Mm-hmm. So bring the big jar. Oh, I used to bring like it even back in the day. Like a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah. Nonetheless, yes, that's available as well. At OriginMain.com. Also at the Vitamin Shop offline. 
what do you call it like brick and retail retail yeah boom vitamin shop go get it also the discipline go cans are at wawa Mm. in florida currently yeah and by the way if you live in florida and you've been and look i i asked and said hey please this is the mission we want to we want to go into the full chain of wawa we needed to go hard in florida we needed to go in there and clear shelves. Well, you all that have been clearing shelves, thank you. Keep going. We're on the path to victory. Don't let up. That's true, man. Keep getting after it. Because <laughs> yeah. you know why? Because people in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Maryland, they're they're counting on Florida. It's all eyes on Florida. We got to yeah. rock and roll in Florida. We're on the right path. Don't let up. But it, it's true. And the, the thing is, again, I said this before, it's kind of a big deal, though, to go and get like an energy drink or whatever, and it'd be legitimate healthy for you. It's like, crazy. That's a huge deal. Yeah. When you, you like, you don't even really have to think about it. But, but in my so case, you just went, you just you went back. It, I mean, we were talking about that 15 minutes ago, but we're talking about it again. That's think, cool. I don't think I've, I, I capitalized, not capitalized. I broke do down it? the Maximized. entire thing about the bars and the, the thing we got to do yeah, and how hard but, it was. Yeah, but that wasn't about, good enough. But not about the price you pay when you when you take drink an energy drink or a soda or something like this. That price you pay versus mm-hmm. the price that you don't pay, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. I didn't think I maximized the, uh, how should I say, the communication of that big deal. Check. I think I have now. Okay. Also, at originmain.com is American-made stuff, jujitsu stuff, gis, rash guards, some, uh, some athletic stuff. Let me stuff, ask you a question. Can you wear a gi when you go to the grocery mart? Grocery mart? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, as far as grocery marts go, yeah, sure. I mean, you could technically. Yeah. Advisable? Well, you know, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and advise that, but okay. man, if well, you're gonna do it, go ahead, do that. Okay, was there something that we could wear that would be more acceptable? Sure. Like what? Maybe some jeans. Ah, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Maybe I don't know, but maybe yeah. But, so, but where can you get American-made jeans? Uh, you know, it's very hard. Um, well, how should I say? As far as uh, options go, there are not as many options as you know one might hope, mm-hmm. but. Thankfully, yes, I am here to tell you at originmade.com, you can get American made denim jeans. Y- y- you know what? You probably are thinking, if you're an American, you're probably thinking about like iconic. Sure. Iconic. I'm going to say three words iconic American jeans. Mm-hmm. And we all know there's a few brands that fall into that category. They've been around for a long time. Iconic American jeans. I got news for you. Your iconic American jeans, they're not American. They're not American. Brutal. Brutal. So if you want to get iconic American jeans, I'll tell you where you go. You go to originmain.com and you get yourself some iconic American jeans. We're bringing them back. Yes, sir. Yeah. Good work. They're doing some good work over there at Origin. Speaking of good work, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store, obviously. So, JockoStore.com. That's where you can get your Discipline Equals Freedom shirts, hoodies, hats, a bunch of stuff on there. Really cool stuff, in my opinion. See if it's your opinion, too. JockoStore.com. Oh, also, we do have a t-shirt club. Kind of creative Can you come designs. up with something else to call this besides t-shirt club? Uh, yeah. Okay, please. Probably. I have that capability, sure. Uh, yeah. I don't know. T-shirt platoon. T-shirt brigade, T-shirt gang. We'll just say. You see so what I'm saying? You it, rolled right into the. It's, it's something a, that, like, you know, yeah, sure. my 11 year old daughter sure. has a yes. roller skating club, okay. right? You see okay. where I'm going with this? I, yes, Tighten sir. yourself up, bro. <laughs> 
Hey, it's a working title, and we're doing our best over here. Nonetheless, this is what it is. It's a subscription-based situation where you get a shirt, new shirt, every month. Creative Designs. Anyway, check that one out, too, if you're interested. Boom. Do that. Good for a gift, too, by the way. There you go. Jockostore.com. Also, subscribe. Oh, wait, wait. We have other podcasts. You didn't even mention this podcast. Uh, well, we're on this podcast. <laughs> okay. We do have other podcasts. Oh, guess what? The podcast you're listening to, it's a podcast. It exists. Yeah, we already know that. We don't got to mention that. Okay. So, so yeah. Uh, yeah, subscribe to the, all these different right, podcasts. Jocko Podcast, Jocko Unraveling Podcast, Grounded Podcast, and Warrior Kid Podcast. Mm-hmm. Check those out. Leave a review. Sure. Because they're funny. If you leave a review, make it entertaining. Put some layers in it. It's appreciated. Yeah. Past reviews have been pretty impressive. You know what I haven't done for a while is read reviews like online or reposted. I got to do that. Those are awesome. It's true. I'll do some of that. Also, also we have a YouTube channel, uh, video version of this podcast. You know, you want to see what Steve Ward looks like, handsome guy, I would say, hmm. as far as handsome guys go. But nonetheless, if you want to see what... Thank you, Echo. Oh, and you're welcome, <laughs> of course. But nonetheless, yes. And we have some excerpts on there. You want to, you know, watch slash listen to those. Uh, that's, where you, that's where you can get on the YouTube channel official, by the way. We got it. YouTube. Boom. Also, Psychological Warfare, if you don't know what that is. It's an album. Jocko's album with tracks. Not music album. Not yet. Not yet. We're working it. Yes. Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's an album with tracks of Jocko helping you through a moment of weakness. Like, you're going to skip the workout. There's a little track on there that'll help you not skip the workout. Put simply, that's what it is. Flipsidecanvas.com. Speaking of Dakota Meyer, he's got a, a, a company where he prints cool stuff to hang on your wall. That's all you need to say. Check that out, flipsidecanvas.com. Got a bunch of books. We talked about one of them today. We talked about a couple of them today, but About Face by Colonel David Hackworth. Highly recommended. There's a new version that has a forward in it written by me. You know how freaking stoked I was to do that, man? Damn, that's awesome. Did I tell you that how that happened? No. They were So it started selling again, kind of like when I started talking about it all yeah. the time. And so they eventually pulled the thread and tried to figure out why it was selling. And they eventually figured out it was selling because we were talking about it all the time on the podcast. And um, they wrote me and said, hey, do you want to write, we're going to re-release it. Do you want to write a blurb for the back, which is like a little quote, like, hey, this is a great book. And I wrote them and said, uh, I'll write, can I write a forward to it? And they'd be like, you want to write a forward? And I said, hell yeah, I'll yeah, write a wow. forward to it. Most forwards are about 500 words. If you Google, like, how long should a book forward be? Should be about 500 words. My forward for this is 5,000 words. Damn. (laughs) Yeah, it's like a freaking, because I just went off and explained how I found it, what it meant, you know, all these, the lessons I learned from it. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been awesome. So if you want to check out that book, About Face by Colonel David Hackworth, then go ahead and check that out. Also, Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. So good. You what? You just had a company that told you uh, what? They just said yeah. What? Well, we so they'd already they read Extreme Ownership and their leadership team has them. They have the dichotomy of leadership, and I was like, hey, do you guys have leadership strategies and tactics? And they 
one of them purchased it. And they're like, yeah, they're inbound. We got them for the whole team now. <laughs> and the beautiful thing with it is, is you got an issue, you can find it in that book with a, a good solution. And it might not be a 100% solution for your situation, but you can take that, formulate it, and, and utilize it. That's the, the beauty of that thing. Yeah. That, so powerful. That's exactly the what I had in mind when I wrote it was, can you look up in here, yep. okay, let me go, I'm having a problem with my subordinate. Yeah. What, how do I do, what do I do? Yeah. You know, I'm having a problem with people getting on board with the new plan. What do I yeah. do? And just be able to look it up in there, find the solution. The, the beautiful thing about it is you don't even have to tab it. Because the answers are up front. Hey, you're having this issue? Flip to this page. And in in one to two pages, you find your answer. You read through it, digest it, boom, implement it. So easy. Check. Uh, The code, the evaluations, the protocol. If you need some guidance on where to go. Look, in the military, we got told, hey, you're slacking a little here. You could do a little better here. But we go through life without an evaluation of ourselves. How do you expect to know where to go? Get the code, the evaluation, the protocol. Get the Discipline Equals Freedom field manual. New version, bigger picture of my head. Yes. Therefore, you know, obviously yes. better. Another 35 or 40 pages of writing in there. Ideal, I'm gonna say it. I don't like to throw that out there, but kind of an ideal gift book. Right, yeah. it's not just like oh, I went to the bookstore and I randomly found this book over here called right. whatever. Yeah. No, it's like I got something with a little substance. It's a little bigger. It's yeah. a little heavier. Looks cool. Looks cool. Space. You could put it on a table and just have it be there. Just <laughs> and if you read it, you're doing even better. Yes, sir. <laughs> what up? So I got this. You you gave me a signed copy a few years ago. Oh, yeah. But I'm just trying to see what the difference is. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the difference is there's about bigger. 40 extra pages of yeah. where I wrote more stuff. Gotcha. gotcha. More information. So there's that. And then also there's Way of the Warrior Kid 4 field manual, which is what your kid wants for Christmas. Yeah. That's what your kid wants for Christmas. Because all these lessons that we talk about, look, you can learn them when you're 40 after you read freaking leadership strategy and tactics, or you can learn them when you're seven and you can go through life understanding these things and you can end up in a much better place. So what are you gonna do with your kid? You're gonna put them on a path to mediocrity? <laughs> mediocrity? Are you gonna put your kid on a path to being average? Are you gonna be put your kid on a path to blame other people and be a victim their whole life? Or are you gonna put them on the bath, path to be a warrior kid and step up? I'll tell you what I recommend. Yes, Way the Warrior Kid 4 field manual. Go ahead and get some of that. Also, Way the Warrior Kid 1, 2, and 3. Mikey and the Dragons. Oh, you know what kids have to deal with? Being afraid. And it's not just kids. But why not learn at a young age how to overcome fear? Get Mikey and the Dragons. And also Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. The OG books. Did I say OG? Yes, sir. Yes, okay. I did. Uh, we also have Echelon Front. It's our leadership consultancy. It's Steve's with us now on the team. How long have you been on the team for? March. Officially March. I've been, yeah. you know, ever since I got out, I've been kind of shadowing Dave and uh, some of the crew. So, so if, you wanna, if, you, if you want to work with us, if you want help aligning your leadership, if you want to learn the lessons that we learned, if you want us to come in and help your leadership get aligned, help find where the friction points are, Help figure out where you can be more efficient as a team. Go to echelonfront.com. We solve problems through leadership. We also have EF Online, 
which is where we solve problems through leadership online. And we're on there all the time. So if you if you want to if you want to come on there and you want to ask me a question, you want to ask me a question. You might think, uh, how could I ever ask Jocko a question? It's easy. You go to EF online, you can ask me a question. I'll be sitting right there. You want to ask Steve a question about how he handled a certain situation, how he organized platoons, how he put teams together, how he handled these leadership challenges? Go on to efonline.com and you can ask Steve a question. He's literally be sitting there. So check that out. efonline.com we have the muster. We're scheduling the muster for 2021. Go to extremeownership.com for details. We have EF Overwatch. If you want people that understand these principles to come and work at your company, go to efoverwatch.com. And we have people that were transitioning from the military to the civilian sector, and they'll come to your company and work. And if you want to help service members, active and retired service members, their families, gold star families around the world, check out Mark Lee's mom. Mark Lee's mom's organization, Mama Lee. She's got a, a group called America's Mighty Warriors. And if you want to donate or get involved, then go to americasmightywarriors.org. And if you, let's say you just desire anguish and pain in your life, in your own life, we can give it to you if you want it. We can give it to you. If you want more of my mundane discourse or you need more of Echo's unfathomable phraseology and you can find us on the interwebs on Twitter on Instagram which Echo only refers to as the gram and on Facebook Echo is at Echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink where are you at Steve I'm at Steve Ward 194 Steve Ward Instagram. 194 Whatever Instagram on Instagram. Is. On Instagram. Steve at Instagram. Steve dot Ward one ninety four. Is that how it works at Instagram? <laughs> what do you post? I don't do, know. Do you post anything? So I I probably will here soon. It's hunting season. Have you posted have you posted anything? <laughs> uh no. What are you really. hunting for? Ducks. Hell yeah. Right on. It's fun. Yeah. And it's good living. Good living, not as good eating as elk <laughs> or deer. <laughs> but you're gonna get what you can get. We're gonna get what we can get. Yep. Check. Uh, yeah, Steve, man, thanks for coming back on. It's, yeah. Or coming on, it's yeah. freaking awesome, and uh, appreciate everything, everything, man. Yeah, everything. And thanks to all of our other military personnel right now out in the world on watch. As Steve said, you you all are smarter and stronger and faster and more well-equipped and better trained than we ever were. So thanks for uh, holding it down. Make sure you train up the people underneath you. And for our police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and Border Patrol and Secret Service and all first responders, well, thanks for protecting us here at home. And to everyone else out there, you know, Steve talked a lot today about setting a good example, modeling the right example. And you also notice that at almost every phase of his life, he talked about learning and how he learned. Well, I would say that's part of that good example is don't ever stop learning. Don't ever stop growing. Don't ever stop trying to improve. You can only do that if you stay humble. So stay humble, listen, 
learn and lead and also make sure that you keep getting after it and until next time this is steve and echo and jocko out